Good morning and welcome to Other Faces. Welcome to Scraps and Scrolls, part 15 of A Dance with Dragons. Hello, welcome, how are you? I am Sir Buckley, your resident green person, here to take you through another four chapters of the end part of the last book that we have so far anyway, for this wonderful series that we call A Song of Ice and Fire. I am talking to you from, unfortunately, a rainy England, it must be said. The snow is all washed away. It was fun while it lasted. Princess Zelda the puppy, she loved it. I loved it. Good times around. Now it's back to rain and mud. So you're all going to have to step up today, along with these chapters that we have, to keep that energy going in my voice. And I must say, you've done a good job in the week since I last spoke to you. Part 14, last episode, obviously, as you might have seen, was the longest ever Isle of Face episode by a country mile maybe two or three country miles nearly four hours of talk and we know why it's because there were such major chapters involved Theon and his escape from Winterfell with Jane, Drogon returning big deals being made on the wall everything was happening so that's why we had to talk about it so long and it seemed to be great success now you'll know if you've been listening for a while that don't like to uh, promote the work too much or whatever else but I did say uh, this time on Twitter hey this thing is four hours long it took a lot of work which it certainly did my wrists are in shreds still my fingers are cut to the bone but I mentioned on Twitter hey if you want to retweet this hey I wouldn't mind and you all came out in force you all stepped up to the plate and I'm going to thank you here right at the beginning everybody patrons non-patrons everyone who retweeted and shared and listened of course because that was a lot of hard work I don't mind telling you putting that episode together it's a hard episode to get through anyway with all our Jane talk so that really meant a lot that everyone listened to that and made it worthwhile so thank you everybody for contributing to getting that around and also it worked because it ended up being our second biggest single day ever for downloads so well done everybody thank you again and also on top of that more good news because i can confirm to you that january 2021 is the biggest month ever for isle of faces in total downloads so i'm gonna have to say it again aren't i thank you everybody for sharing and downloading and mentioning the podcast or mentioning me here there and everywhere don't know any way ever to say it just thank you again and i suppose a specific thank you must go to radio westrots because they had me on their live stream this month i have no doubt that contributed in terms of numbers and getting it out there so my extreme thanks not just having me on in the first place but for that promotion as well lady gwen and yoke boy we always owe our thanks to those to those two don't we and speaking of just to throw it in there if you're not part of the radio westeros discord yet you should be because there is tons going on there it's a brilliant community ditch your social media you don't need those come and join with our community instead there's basically no stone left unturned in terms of conversation and what they talk about a lot of fun really welcome environment so if you're not part of that yet i recommend you do become it because it's just the best place now before we move on to the big task of trying to top last week i'm not sure if we're really going to manage it that was a big old week again lots of high emotion lots of heavy drama we have just a couple more quick things to cover. Firstly, you might remember that last week I gave a shout out, an extra shout out to some patrons and to some other people for getting in contact and having conversations and just interacting with me on many different levels. And I've got to say, you've kept it up. Same people, different people, more messages and emails and talking on Patreon and stuff like that. And it's wonderful. I love it. So keep it going. I so, so appreciate it all. Whatever form it might come in, 
I've had some wonderful, wonderful compliments on that episode or just the podcast in general. The ones that really, they honestly do blow me away and touch my heart. And some of them aren't even about uh, A Song of Ice and Fire specifically. It might be about other stuff. I'm not going to repeat the compliments for you. I think my head might swell a bit too much. But honestly, those of you out there and I've contacted, I've replied to all of you, you know who you are. It blows me away. So thank you so, so much. I am going to actually specify one comment one person in particular because our beloved patron Archmaster June she had lots to say about last week's episode and about the Theon chapter especially that one of such high emotion and such a deep dark hole to go down and there's no other way to put it Archmaster June we've got to get you on the podcast you've got to get your own podcast because your takes the way you explained this chapter and the importance of it, it was way better than anything I came up with to be honest I was quite jealous when I read your comment I'm not going to read the whole thing out for you here everybody but Archmaster June's comment, among other things, it talked about the horror of systematic dehumanisation, the hopeful message you can find in Fionn's story, the importance of using Jane's name in this chapter. It isn't Ned's girl, it isn't I, it's Jane that he's saving. I mean, Archmaster June, you were very kind to me, but we've got to give that all back because this was just a wonderful breakdown of the chapter. And like I say, we've got to get you on. You've got to get your own show or something like that because the world, as well as your healing hands, helping out everybody in this horrible pandemic, wear your masks, everybody, stay indoors. You're also killing it on the Song of Ice and Fire front. So well done, you. So yes, keep it up everybody, keep sending in your messages, whether it be about A Song of Ice and Fire, or an episode, or the podcast, or anything else, I'm always willing to chat to you, it's lovely just to hear from you in general. And yes, while we're here, we do need to say some incredible thanks to all of our patrons, but especially Aegon the Six, Lord Commander, Namian Darklin, KM, and the aforementioned Archmaster June. Thank you to all, we've had some new people turn up this week as well with some further nice things to say so that's wonderful and you're always welcome to come and have a look everybody if you fancy. I think that's just about it, that's enough prep, that's enough talking about part 14, the biggest episode ever, the one still soaring upwards and downloads. Thank you, thank you again, yes it was very tough to get through, thank you Jane, Peter fucking Bayes, very tough to get done but it was worth it, you all make it worth it. So why don't we try and forge another classic here with part 15, another four chapters for you and obviously we've got a lot to deal with in the fallout from 14 so how are we going to tackle that first, which chapters are we going to see? Well let me tell you now, we're going to begin with Cersei 1, mm-hmm. she's back everybody so we're going to have bunches to talk about in that, I don't think I need to explain it to you. Then Barristan Selmy makes his day this late into the book into the series even we have old sir barry ready to roll and show us what marine now looks like after daenerys i'm going to get all into what each of these chapters mean in a moment when we're actually talking about cersei after that we'll have victarian one the iron suitor yeah unfortunately not all good news this week we've all put with this guy again and we'll finish with someone we actually have seen before someone we do know Tyrion in Tyrion. 11. 11 out of 12 chapters for Tyrion, so you know that's going to be very, very exciting. But we'll break those all down further when we get to them each individually. Let's crack on now. Let's begin with Cersei 1. So we've got a really tough task on this week's episode. These four chapters, somehow this part 15 of A Scraps and Scrolls of Dance with Dragons has to follow last week. Those massive, huge four chapters with the massive events and all the many, many talking we did during part 14, during last week's record-breaking episode. So how in the world is George going to follow that, follow those massive dramatic moments or the weighty decisions, whether in Marine or at the Wall or in Winterfell? It's a tough old gig, isn't it? These guys have really got their pressure cut out for them this week, especially when you consider that those are two kind of arcs ending there. 
we don't have a camera in Winterfell anymore. We're not going to find out what's going on there. So we're assuming, again, we're looking at our physical copy that pages are starting to thin out. We're thinking we're probably not going to see the Battle of the Vice. On the flip side, Daenerys has just left Marine, so we don't think anything's going to happen there. That'll turn out we will get to see a lot there, but we're not to know that. Even if we do think, well, maybe she's going to come back at any second. Maybe we even think Fionn's going to be recaptured. We don't know as first-time readers, do we? But George obviously did know, and he thought, I'm going to have to fill in something here. I need something to put in the gap to supplement these two kind of arcs, at least ending temporarily. And how does he do that? Well, it's by opening up the field, basically. We've already had that in parts of Dance. We've already made a big deal of those era markers there, the different signposts that Dance has throughout. And now we've got another one because here on the aisle, it's pretty much, we can call it the Hello Week. Yes, despite us having just 18 chapters until the finish line, we miraculously today have not one, not two, but three new POVs to introduce for this book. I've been mentioning, and I've been sprinkling it in a few times in the last couple of weeks, but the ending structure for Dance of Dragons, the final act or whatever you want to call it, is pretty damn outstanding. It really does go against the grain, both for George as an author and for the series, and it continues to astound me, to be honest. Now, like we say, this is a new era that is brought about by the massive event of Danny leaving the narrative. And we can throw Theon in there as well, but I think Danny's probably the more influential. It just takes up more characters, takes up more POVs, especially. Obviously, the main beneficiary of that is Barris and Selmy, but it does open it up to all. There's a lot of people affected by Marine and this grand, grand change. The door is now open for Victorian. Tyrion is going to take advantage today. Quentin will have to return next week and have put his two cents in. At the same time, we have King's Landing making its debut in the book as well today. And John Connington will end his long chapter gap next week too to remind us of his new influence on Westeros. So we have so many different storylines, so much different stuff all suddenly flying in here at the end when they either haven't been included at all yet or have been very sparse throughout. So that just makes it a really interesting decision, a really ballsy one, to be honest, to end your book like that. On paper, it sounds like a strange idea. And I realise, you know, who am I to say, who am I to question? But I'm just giving you my opinion here. If you were to describe this final act to someone before they read the book, even if you left out the fact there was A Song of Ice and Fire, if you just said, here's this book, it has many, many POVs, there's these main three or these main more than three if you really want throughout and then at the end you sprinkle all these new ones that you haven't seen for ages and brings up all these old plot lines and stuff like that that hasn't been included in this book it does sound strange and yet George makes it work you would think that would ruin the flow but really I think it's just a major sign of how this was all supposed to build into a transition to wins one that George probably wasn't expecting to take 10 years plus and we'll come back to this in a second, but obviously that transition, that linking between the end of Dance, beginning of Winds, was supposed to be a lot neater, a lot closer than any other of the books, to be honest. So I think that's why we're seeing these people included, because George needs to get them in before he can kick off Winds. He needs something to fill in this gap left by Fionn or Winterfell and Daenerys and other things, because there's still key points that they have to reach later in the book. He doesn't want to push those to Winds. So it's all just a massive structuring thing and you know i do like that but it's also just a sign of what we're going to see going forward this build up this great big jumble of storylines and povs everyone converging together and us having to jump around from here to here from head to head we're going to only see more of it aren't we going forward especially when we reach the real end point where we think probably most people are going to be in the north somewhere maybe we're going to have a whole lot of people around winterfell this is just a marker of the series starting to tighten up into one or two key area points 
like it was right back at the beginning, if you remember, and we're probably going to see that again when we reach that final horizon. It's just interesting to see it here at the end of this book, especially when this theme, this pattern, is going to carry us through to the close of Dance. Yes, our Triforce, they will return, especially John and Danny, because it really is their book, I feel. They're going to deliver the ending shots, but we're still going to have this major focus on non-major for this book kind of POVs right until the end, if you get what I mean there. Now let's backtrack a little bit, because like I said earlier, we are introducing in this episode today specifically three new POVs, all of them right next to each other, one after the other. So as we covered, this is late in the game, it's ballsy stuff. And we know the why of it, of course, we've already mentioned some of it, but the other half is we're catching up on feasts, sure, and that plays off the necessity of, for instance, a new viewpoint in Marine to fill in what we've lost, because we need a new camera in there. But it does kind of seem weird still. That's not to say that it doesn't work. Again, I'll make that clear. I'll invite your own opinions on whether the pace or flow or whatever you want to call it is interrupted at this late stage. I don't think it is personally, but it is obviously just another strange part of the essentially unique link between dance and winds. I said I want to revisit that. The long wait for winds aside, no two books are interconnected in quite the same way, not even feast and dance. And this is just part of it. George being constricted by time in some places, by need in other, or there's also the desire for the big moment. He's got to mix that all together, try and get something out of it here, try and get something out of it at the beginning of winds, which I think we can all agree is going to have an opening act completely different from anything we've ever seen before in this series. We're really, really aware of that. We have the Battle of Ice, obviously, we have the Battle of Fire, but there's plenty of other things that are primed to make a big splash, whether it's Storm's End, whether it's what we think the prologue might be in the Riverlands, that's my opinion, everywhere, really. So that opening act, completely different. So that makes sense that the end act for dance is also completely different because they're going to be right next to each other, even if they are actually the furthest apart in terms of real time. Those needs that I just mentioned that George is kind of constricted by, we're going to see those three actually today in this episode with our new characters. It's all a setting of the table for what is coming in wins, of course, especially in terms of, for example, Victorian, who, if we're honest, he would be the one that we could most easily cut from this book, but George wants him here so he can hit the ground running of wins. Again, it's just all so interconnected more than any other book. Barristan is going to be used as the capper to Marine and the opener to the Battle of Fire, along with Tyrion a bit as well, while Cersei... She needs to hit a new milestone in her own arc, one that most certainly says, hey, you think you've had enough dark moments in this book that make you rethink your opinions? Well, watch this, we're not done yet. So it's all just got to be fitted now, and we'll see as we go through these chapters why they might have been placed here rather than there, etc, etc. That's to come later. Let's keep going with this talk of arc and structure, because you know I'm obsessed with it. Our first chapter today, which is Cersei 1, that is chapter 54 of A Dance of Dragons, and we have a new POV. That is just strange to say. And the same can actually be said for chapter 55 and chapter 56. And 55 is actually a brand new POV that we've never had before at any point. At least Cersei and Victorian have come before. So it just makes it even more amazing, doesn't it? This is really just out there. We're really into unknown territory. For comparison, I don't think you'll be utterly surprised at this. None of the other four books come close in terms of their latest introduced POV. I have had a look at the numbers, I know you always like me doing that, so let's go through it. So in Game of Thrones, you might remember all that long time ago for this project, Sansa is the last POV to be introduced. She's the last one to have her first chapter, obviously. And that is in the 15th chapter of the book, out of a total of 73. So that's about a fifth of the way into Game of Thrones. Clash of Kings. Well, somewhat surprisingly, the mark is even earlier. Daenerys is the last POV to get a chapter, and that is in the 12th chapter of the book, our 69 total. So that's about 17% of the book. Now, obviously, the slight difference is in Game of Thrones, all the POVs are new. 
that's not serving Clash. So the latest brand new POV to be introduced that didn't appear in Game of Thrones is Fionn, and he actually appears just one chapter previously to that Daenerys chapter. In Storm, the last introduced POV is also a brand newbie in Sam, who debuts in the 18th chapter out of a total 82, which is good for 22% of the book, so that's pretty similar to Game of Thrones, obviously. Now, all of that makes sense, doesn't it? We know the first three books are incredibly similar in their more rigid structure, and George saved his much larger flair for different structuring and POVs come feast. So what about that book? Well, we're closer, at least. Ariane is the last introduced POV, and she's also a brand new POV, and that's in the 24th chapter of Feast, out of a total of 46. So that's basically halfway through the book, nearly exactly. So that's a lot closer, but still, it's nothing so daring as what we've got in Dance. And if we want to be technical, then Victorian, who's our last introduced POV, is in the 56th chapter out of 73, which is good for basically 77% of the book. So we're three quarters of the way through here, and we're still introducing a new storyline for the chapter, as well as the two that come before it. So you can really see there with the backup of some maps by me, how much of an anomaly dance actually is. So clearly, given that we're starting three quarters of the way through, we're not expecting big arcs here, are we? We will have spoken about this a million years ago in the prep episodes, so you can always go back and check that. But Cersei and Victarion especially are going to have two chapters apiece in fairly quick succession, to be honest, because there's not a lot of space, is there? And that makes sense. They are both feast characters, so we're more capping off previous arcs. But there's even a distinction in that, because I would say that statement is more true for Cersei than Victarion. These two chapters you could easily have seen being in feast. I'm talking about Cersei here. If that was a longer book, then maybe we could have seen them be included at the end. It's in keeping with her nosedive of an arc. I think it's closer time-wise as well, I'm not too sure on that. And it's sticking with her imprisonment and the High Sparrow, and it serves as the unfortunate end to her time as queen. The end of the great fall from ruler to one who has had all their power stripped away. Victarion, on the other side, is continuing what was given to him in Feast in terms of his mission, but like Asher before him, he's going to morph it into a dance storyline more than a continuation, obviously with him going to Marine and joining in that storyline. He's in a completely different setting, he's in a dance-focused part of the world. He's heading towards, again, that dance-focused storyline in Danny and Marine. so he's something a bit separate, a bit different from Cersei. And then obviously the outlier of these three is Barrast and Selmy, who has four chapters similar to Davos, similar to Quentin, more than Bran, for example. And he's going to have all of those four within the space of 18 chapters. So he's at a really, really high frequency. He's got big news coming with it, a very, very important storyline, both for capping off what's happened in Dance and linking through to Winds. So he's actually got a really big responsibility that we'll touch on later, because let's talk about Cersei herself now. This is her chapter in, and... Well, when it comes to Cersei, how long have you actually got? We could talk about her all day, because we have before, remember? You don't need any reminder about Feast and the train wreck that it was, the incredibly intimate look we got into her psyche, and then again, that maddening nosedive she took at the end with the risks that she had, the deaths that she caused, the mistakes she made, both large and small. And I'm lecturing things that you already know about. We covered it at length. It's famous in the fandom anyway. But it's obviously a big deal to now be revisiting and reopening such an important famous storyline because that really did dominate Feast. We've had a long, long gap since without any kind of mention to it. We've not been in King's Landing or anywhere near Cersei, really as much as Tyrion might have mentioned her. And now we're throwing that into this great big mixing pot that is Dance with Dragons. So it seems like George is just giving us everything for a little while here. He's really spoiling us. And I suppose in a way that is another preview of what we're going to get in wins because that book isn't split. All of the POVs we have left are going to appear in that book, as far as we know. They're all going to be mixed and jumbled together. We're no longer going to be restricted by geography and the timeline and we'd hope it's going to kind of become a little bit clearer. 
So this is George's way of saying, hey, get ready because you're going to see a lot of this in this next book. It's really going to be an experience for you. And no, this isn't going the whole hog. Obviously, we're missing a lot of feast POVs like Brienne, Sansa, Sam. We can go on and on. But this is just a little hint for you. As for Cersei specifically, we have the general follow-up on her cliffhanger. Now, we sort of had that already because we knew Jamie's reaction to her letter. We saw that in Feast. We've already seen him in Dance deal with it since. But there was still a lot to deal with and revisit with her. She is a top-tier character with her entire life hanging in the balance along with all that she's linked into via her POV. So we've already had the breaking of Cersei, the payment of a mistake, and her crash down into a cell. Now we're going to keep on with that follow-up as we revisit her past crimes in this chapter, both known and hidden. We're going to tie her whole series arc together in this chapter, and we're going to combine it with both Cersei refusing to be broken, and Cersei kind of being broken but not admitting it. Which does sound a lot like her, doesn't it? We'll see that inner strength and determination... We'll see her version of damage control, or what she believes is damage control. We'll see her blaming others, surprise, surprise. And her finding out she doesn't actually know how to get out of this, that others actually have more power than she thought, and she's basically underestimated everybody, slash overestimated herself. Again, surprise, surprise. Yet for all that, in this chapter, we'll end with the sparks of her having some hope of making her way back, some hint of light at the end of the tunnel. Obviously, what she, and the first time I don't know, is that that light is actually the door to her walk of shame which we'll also obviously get a lot of setup for in this chapter and is the real point of Cersei being included in this book because it changes everything for her. For someone who only has two chapters in this book, she really swings the bat very hard and gets a major moment, a top moment in Dan, so it's pretty efficient stuff there. We also have so much to catch up for in King's Landing in general. Obviously, a major setting in this series. It's got so much coming towards it in Winds. We've got so much to follow up from the Feast. It might have been easy to forget after the length of Dance and how many dozens of open storylines there are still going in general, but we need to move everything into a spot for that opening of Winds. That includes King's Landing, it includes being aware of the arrival of John Con and all them people, etc. So we get lots of that talk. We have a big focus on Kevin Lannister, his part in the Walk of Shame. I think we'd best get into it. I've probably introduced that one to you enough. So we're back in King's Landing now, on this first page, for the first time after spending so much of our reading experience there before in previous books. It's something we probably did mention back in the prepper episode in terms of differences with Dance, but it's worth reminding you that we spent so many pages in the Red Keep through the first four books and then none at all in Dance, so it really has been a stark difference. But now we're back, specifically we're in the Sept of Baelor, so we don't get back to the Red Keep just yet, but we are in King's Landing. And since it's been a while, George is going to link it to more of the feeling of what the world is going through, specifically the North. Because in this opening paragraph, we're told it's getting colder even in King's Landing now. Now, is that supposed to mean physically? Is this the encroach of winter? We did see snow in the Riverlands, don't forget. Or is it more talking about the weakening of Cersei's resolve right here at the beginning? Her situation just feeling physically and emotionally worse as we go. Certainly, George wants to remind us of her situation here in this first paragraph. The cell she now inhabits, the bareness and cruelness of it all, how is the opposite of what she's used to, obviously, being as privileged as she is. And also, just to remind us of Cersei's arc and who she is, we get this detail of how she screwed herself over by letting her anger rule her and tearing up that first shift they'd given her, which is the perfect emblem of what Cersei was like in Feast, to be honest, and with her now having to eat crow and accept a replacement even though the embarrassment burns her. So right there, we have the setup for Dance, Cersei's plot, all summed up in that first paragraph. Consequences, comeuppance to a certain degree, even if it's not really a fair deal if we're talking walk of shame, and Cersei having to swallow all semblance of pride, try as she might. We're going to get that all just in these two chapters. Next, we highlight the importance of a window in a cell. It's true for all people who find themselves in such places, but especially for a queen, a Lannister who has never lacked for anything. Cersei is the last one of the trio to experience this, the Lannister trio, obviously. 
Jamie was captured. Tyrion was arrested. They've both had their privilege removed at various points in the story, but Cersei never has for all her personal troubles. This is obviously applicable to every part of this imprisonment in terms of freedom and comfort and servants and food, but Cersei has also always had a large field of input, even though she's barely ever moved from one place. She's always been able to see huge views and look across the city. She's always had lots of people around her and basically had grand access to the world, and now all of that has just been reduced to this little square window. That's her only lifeline and connection to the world, a world that she believes has very quickly turned against her and could be working against her right now, out there, unknown. Her one connection to her beloved Tommen is a square window, and more for our purposes here, is also her one connection to the saviour she believes is coming in Jamie. Here's your first quote. Jamie would be coming for her, but how would she know when he arrived? Now, it probably is quite cruel for us to chuckle at this, knowing how false Cersei's supreme confidence slash arrogance is, especially when we know how important this is to not only her fate, but to her emotionally as well. Yes, okay, it is quite cruel, but it's kind of irresistible. Just remember who we're dealing with here. I know, she's in a bad way, she's in a prison cell, but she put herself there, and she basically deserves it. Let's not forget how many people she had killed in Feast alone, let alone across the series. So she does deserve this, and it's one of our best instances of knowing more than the character, more than the POV. Jamie is not coming. He already wasn't back in Feast before his dance chapter, now we know he's definitely, definitely not. I'm sorry Cersei, but you had your chance of Jamie, now it's Brienne's time. Still, her confidence about Jamie continues through the paragraph. She thinks it's just simple fact that he would just cruise through and rescue her, because despite all her venom towards him in recent times, she still sees him as the warrior, the golden warrior that can do no wrong, like Tyrion does often. And as we did in Feast, she compares that old golden boy on campus with the new when she asks about Loras, which is a good reminder of one of the more interesting mysteries we have in Feast, one obviously created by Cersei's own storyline. Although, again, it just strikes me as odd that George is bringing all this up now. I'd love you to hear your thoughts about this and this placement in this book. Yes, we get reminded of all these other storylines and mysteries and tidbits, so I don't know, does it take away from the pace and flow of everything we've had in dance? Let me know what you think. Personally, I don't think it does, but it's just, it is something weird about it. Anyway, we'll keep going. Cersei obviously isn't asking about Loras because she cares and maybe feels guilty about sending him to his death back in Feast. She just wants to see if there's a space on the Kingsguard yet so she can put a plan in place. So we've got some setup for later on in the chapter that's going to come back. Just as the window is now her only view of the world, the population of that new world numbers at just four, which is obviously another departure from what she's always been used to living at either the Red Keep or Castle Rock. And that four includes her three essential goalers slash scepters in Unella, Moel, and Scalera. In typical Cersei fashion, she thinks of them all in terms of their looks and their age first, because we know how she values other women and their looks and their bodies, and how that is often her first point of attack. She despises these women, she tells us as much, because they are obviously acting towards her in a way that Cersei simply cannot compute as possible to act towards her. She is a queen, after all, in her mind. We covered how unbelievable all this was for her in her final feast chapter, and here in Dance we're getting the continuation of that feeling. And because she despises them so, she's obviously not going to be kind about their looks. We talked plenty about how Cersei values other women and her own issues in that kind of arena. Now, out of the three, Unella is probably the one we need to take the most notice of. She'll be the one who records Cersei's confession later in the chapter, and we don't know, maybe that'll be important, that role, further in the future. So remember her name more than any other, but to be fair, Cersei hates them all equally at this point, 
And we can look at that in two ways. We can see why she hates them because these things are being done to her. But it's also kind of undeserved hate. They're kind of just doing their job. Now, there's an argument to be made that, yeah, you're doing your job, but it's a damn evil job, isn't it? So there's swings and roundabouts to that one. In fairness, maybe we are paying a bit more attention to these scepters now because we know that a new one will soon join their ranks in Tyene Sand. So maybe we're thinking that these three will pop up and again with importance or in relation to Tyene. But then again, it's a wonder which POVs that they could actually turn up in. Cersei, of course, Ariane, maybe even John Connor, all possibilities, especially when the trial gets going. How are we going to see what Tyene gets up to? We don't quite know yet. And Kyburn is the fourth. He's also mentioned here, but he doesn't receive his focus until a little bit later in the chapter. It doesn't actually appear until the next chapter itself on the page. So we're going to have to wait for some Kyburn talk. And that's all just on the first page. Now, as we reach the second, well, surprise, surprise, Cersei wants to play the blame game. Turns out she has learned nothing from her short stay in jail. And there's no clarity or perspective for her because, well, this is Cersei and she just doesn't have those things. Everything is still everyone else's fault. She only failed because of betrayal, etc, etc. Again, it's just always someone else. And I'm just saying things that we've already said a thousand times before in all of our Feast Cersei coverage. Case in point, the first man she brings up is Osni Ketoblack, who apparently didn't stand up to torture well enough for Cersei. Well, what a reminder of how absolutely loopy and callous and removed from reality and any empathy this woman is. Osney is bad because he gave up information under torture. How dare you, Osney? What a fool you are. What a weakling. Yeah. And let's remind you, it's information that is true and that he only had because of Cersei. He was only being tortured in the first place because of Cersei. She genuinely thinks that he should have died for her and he should have chosen that and liked that option. She can't understand why someone wouldn't do that for her. She, again, she's just on a different planet. So it's a great refresher from George about how insane Cersei is, if we're going to talk straight, and how she views other people i.e. all of them being beneath her and all of them being expendable and all of them being absolutely worthless unless they can help her. It almost makes you laugh to remember. It's kind of astounding how numb we became to it in Feast when we saw it so much we got used to it happening in basically every chapter. Now we've had a big old break, we've been away from her, we get reintroduced to it straight away here and it, it, does, it just makes you laugh how off her rocker Cersei actually is. She's just, again, a different planet. Her list of male grievances continues now and while some of their own motivations and deceptions are included this time round, such as with Orain Waters, Cersei still refuses to accept any responsibility for her part in this. She sees absolutely nothing wrong with the fact she surrounded herself with yes-men and those she liked or those she didn't see as a threat or those that could be controlled. And then she has the audacity to be surprised when it all went wrong. And I feel like I probably used that audacity word an awful lot back in the Cersei Feast chapters. She put Orain Waters on her council, despite any logical reason to do so whatsoever. He looked a bit like Rhaegar. That was pretty much it. She lifted him up. She gave him the ships, even with repeated advice to not do that. And though it doesn't excuse him being false and a betrayer, she also provided him with the motivation to abandon her because she was so clearly a sinking ship that he didn't want to be attached to. And it was so obvious that she could be taken advantage of. But she doesn't see that still. Of course she doesn't. The same thinking can be applied to the rest of her list. The Merryweathers, who obviously knew that they could be tainted as Cersei's buddies and be dragged down with her. She doesn't recognise that. She doesn't recognise that, of course, Pycelle is going to abandon her in this cell, given how she treated him throughout the book. She was awful to him. A child could work that out, but she's just that out of touch with reality and with consequences. And again, just sees people as empty playing pieces with no soul or feelings or motivations. And I'm sorry, Cersei. That might work if you were in a lesser author's world where characters were 2D and flat. But this is George's world 
and they're definitely not like that, are they? Again, we can continue. Of course, Boris Blunt and Merrin Trent are going to be useless in getting you out. They're useless in general. And yes, some blame must be given to these men. Let's not excuse them here, but Cersei doesn't admit to a single inch of it being her problem. Thinking of all these men leads her back to the most important male in her life. Well, the most important living one anyway. Let's not get into a Tywin obsession just yet. Yes, it's back to Jamie, And it's nice to see that he dominates her thoughts more than she did his in Jamie's one chapter of this book. Her absolute confidence in his appearance to play the hero and fulfil the romanticism trope is repeated here, as is the letter that she sent him just to remind us of what she said. That confidence is so strong, she believes the only possible reason Jamie wouldn't come is that he never read the letter. Kyburn, and note that he's pretty much the only one she doesn't ever suspect of abandonment. She thinks he might be dead or in prison and the letter was therefore never sent. That is the only possible explanation to her. So we've had the small instances of her being oblivious and unwilling to take responsibility for her part played, but Jamie is the big one. She does not recognise the reality of what's happened to their relationship. She doesn't realise what she's done to Jamie, how her actions have consequences, and how serious he was in what he was saying. It's all gone completely over her head, and she's always figured in the end Jamie would be there regardless. To be fair, that is taught behaviour, that's always been the case right throughout their lives, so you can see why she thought that, but she still failed to see that things have changed, they are completely different to anything that's come before. She thought she could just say and do whatever she liked, treat him however she liked, and he'd still be there. That has always been the case with him and with her life in general. And I'm not trying to downplay the considerable hardships that Cersei has had to endure, specifically with the many abuses laid down by Robert Baratheon, but overall, she has always been a woman who got what she wanted, and normally she had her cake and ate it too. She failed to notice the change in Jamie though. She failed to take him seriously and realise what she was doing to him and their relationship. Now she has actual evidence, which we love, because this is absolutely deserved, again I'll say it, and she still can't bring herself to even see the reality of the situation, let alone her part in it. So it's delusion city for a little while longer here. Another quote. She hated feeling helpless. No, we can't. So you can't blame her for this feeling, especially when she has spent so much of her life being pushed around by males, given society made positions of power over her. We know from her arc that finally taking control of her life with no husband, no Tyrion, and no Tywin to mess it up was a huge deal for her. That's been her mission statement kind of from the beginning of the series, really. It's just a shame what she did with the eventual opportunity. Obviously, her current situation is the most literal translation of that feeling. She can't help herself to anything at all. And she's also very much in a situation of immediate danger, obviously. Being helpless as a woman in this world is always a recipe for danger, of course. But especially where she is now, surrounded by fanatics. Although, again, it is a situation of her own making. Really, the next paragraph is just a confirmation of what we've been talking about. She threatens. She commands. Because that's always worked before. Right since birth, that's all you had to do. Besides, that's the only model of leadership she's ever been exposed to. Thank you very much, Tywin. That doesn't work here. So she lowers herself down to fake charm or bribery. That's her second tier. They are both beneath a queen as powerful as she, she believes, but needs must. And that doesn't work on the scepters either. So every weapon that Cersei's ever had to use is now apparently blunt. And that turns it on to prayer. Not out of being genuine, but just as another hated road to get her out of this situation. She's happy to be false if it saves her. So she'll provide an image of the repenting, pious queen. At least she recognises what she needs to do. That's a skill in itself. But privately, she still spews hate. She still hopes for violence. Yet there is some genuineness in there as well, actually. It almost sneaks up on her. She does actually want to get out of here. And if actual praying will do it, well then why not? There's not much else to do in there, is there? Any god in the storm, she thinks. She's just desperate for the outcome. What road she takes to get there, even if it's a religious one, fine, sign me up. You could actually apply that thinking to Stannis as well, couldn't you? She says she'll give up everything to get out of here, except her tears. That they will never have, is what she says. 
which is some obvious setup for that being the exact price she's going to have to pay along with so much else in her second chapter. Another quote, she hated feeling weak. Given the huge gap we've had from Cersei, and don't forget, we were used to her having a really high frequency, she had the most chapters in Feast, and given the unique, completely opposite situation from normal we find her in, George is taking the opportunity to take an almost meta-dive into her psyche, and why Cersei has become who she is, why the shit show that was her reign came to be. And obviously we get a much better look at that in Feast, but here, in this case, we briefly revisit her near jealousy of men, in a way, or at least of their physical strength, and how she would use it if she had it. Specifically, we're told that she tried to fight them physically, and it didn't work. That was another dead end, and she considers that a weakness. Like the folk up in Winterfell, she's also being tortured, let's not joke around here, in terms of sleep deprivation. They let her sleep, but only for a short time before waking her, over and over again at all times of the night. She never gets into her proper REM cycle, she never gets true rest. And as I'm sure you've heard plenty of times, sleep deprivation is one of the most effective forms of torture out there. Cersei herself says that it slices at her wits. She feels worse in herself, she gets slower, time has no meaning, everything becomes more confusing. She is being tortured, and much as we might dislike Cersei, it's a good reminder of what this establishment of religion is capable of in terms of abuse. They know exactly what they are doing in rushing a coerced confession or anything else that might help them. And it has started to work. Cersei is breaking down, thinking her chances forever low. She starts worrying that she'll never be allowed out. Her resolve solidifies in the form of Tommen, to her credit, but she, under the heavy influence of the lack of interaction or stimulation, the chilly weather, the sleep deprivation as well, finally allows that she needs to confess in order to help Tommen, which is exactly as the faith planned. Of course, Cersei being Cersei, she mentally paints this moment of acceptance as one of strength. As she always did in Feast, she paints herself as the daughter of the rock again. She is being strong to accept confession. She is helping her son. It's noble. There's really no other way to get it past her own mental barriers. So if it works, it works. She confirms what we've been saying right here for us. Exhausted by her lack of sleep, shivering from the cold that stole into the tower cell each night, feverished and famished by turns, Cersei came at last to know she must confess. And then later she thinks, I have sinned. So, apparently satisfied with this refresher and moment of introspection for one of his major characters, George now returns to pushing the plot forward, as Cersei confesses to Septuinella, and in fairness to her, she knows how to play the part, she puts on the role. So the deal is upheld for now. She confessed, so they finally let her sleep, and that is truly valuable to her right now. It's exactly the same as giving water to a woman dying of thirst. Cersei not only gets to dream sweet dreams of her and Jaime and Joffrey, she gets to feel rejuvenated. Her soul reloads, so she's ready for another fight, even if she knows she must still play it false to get out of this immediate situation, which she does straight away with the pious noises she makes at them again. In turn, that gets a response that she's been missing so much, specifically when Scalera refers to her as your grace. Here's the quote. Your grace. Those two simple words thrilled her. During her long captivity, her goalers had not off bothered with even that simple courtesy. There is power in titles, we know this, especially when so much of your ego and self-worth are tied up in such. After what Cersei's just been through, a completely new experience for her obviously, hearing those two little words that denote power and control and worth again is so important. It's another part of the rejuvenation, it's another hit of confidence. And it's also funny how she still thinks that people who imprisoned her and have essentially been threatening her and have all the power over her should still have been using the title out of manners. It's just, again, funny how detached she is. Because of this change of heart, Cersei is now allowed to meet with the High Sparrow for what is basically a negotiation, knowing that Cersei wants one of those trappings of power back so that they may deal more even footing. This time it is the ability to bathe and dress properly. Cersei knows how much of her power relates from giving off that aura of beauty and dignity. 
Besides, it will make her feel better about herself. And that, of course, relates very, very closely to her walk of shame and how that and more is going to be taken away from her so that the aura and grasp of power is completely destroyed. We're going to have a lot to talk about when that finally comes around. And we've still got to really see the after effects and wins, don't we? It's a no-go, though, on the bathing and clothing. So while on their way to the High Sparrow, Cersei sees what else she can get away with when she asks after Tommen. He is a big priority in all fairness, but she also likely knows that he's the only problem she can legitimately look into without getting into more trouble. She gets this reply. His grace is in good health, said Septus Scalera, and well protected day and night. The queen is with him always. And Cersei thinks, I am the queen. Well, we said there is power in titles, but oh boy, we know this is the ultimate Cersei button to push, don't we? Calling someone else the queen. Only stuff about Joffrey and Tyrion can probably wind her up this much. We saw it in Feast, of course, how much this kind of thing burns at her. The promotion of Marjorie, and therefore the inferiority complex that it gives Cersei. There's the fighting over Tommen, the fighting for general power over the city, or the illusion of such anyway. There's nothing worse for Cersei to hear that other people believe Marjorie the true queen, because then where does that leave her? She's basically crazy about her need to correct that opinion. For her, for everyone else, she needs that validation. And the fact is, they're right. Marjorie is the queen. But Cersei's never been able to accept that. So she just stays wallowed in denial, of course. Somewhat impressively, Cersei actually manages to swallow her outrage here and present the front that she is supposed to if she's got any hope of actually getting out of here. It's generally impressive, again, even if on the inside she's raging about what she's just heard. And that's ignoring the actual content of what Sclera is saying here. Marjorie is out. She's with Tommen. That's big news, both to Cersei and us, I think. I, not, I don't think we're told that at the end of Feast, you can correct me. So we want to know, we want to know what effect that's having on the city outside, how it came about, because we've clearly got no idea just yet. There is just so much to catch up on in this city. Sclera nearly gives us more, confirming that Marjorie will still have to have a trial, giving the impression that she's been let out on bail, that type of thing, and that there is something to talk about with her brother as well, before Unella interrupts and tells her to stop gossiping. Damn it, Unella, come on. That's infuriating for, again, both Cersei and us, because we want to know what's going on. We want to know these answers. So what was she going to say about Loras? Is there news of him? Did he survive? Does he have something to do with that Kingsguard spot and Marjorie's trial? Are we even talking about Loras? She just says the word brother. Could be talking about Garland. Maybe even Willis, although it's pretty hard to see how. For the first timers, we're annoyingly left with the mystery. As Cersei is finally delivered to the High Sparrow, another figure surrounded by questions of his identity, although I don't really buy into that myself, questions of his motivations or goals and his potential within the plot for these trials or what happens with Tyene or whatever happens with Aegon Landing or even Daenerys if he lasts that long. Although, again, I say he's not going to be around by that. He's a figure of much discussion in our fandom and within the plot he captures our attention just for upsetting the established order and bringing Cersei down through his own machinations so he's dangerous, he's clever, he's scheming. Let's see what he's got for us this time round. Already he's flying in the face of the structure that Cersei has always lived within. She thought she needed bathing and proper clothes to have power. He dresses as commonly as possible, yet he still has that power more than her. That's part of the reason he's so intriguing, that he doesn't bother with all the bullshit. That's part of why he was able to hoodwink Cersei, because she completely buys into the bullshit, and therefore underestimated him. She doesn't focus on that though. She knows this is her chance, so she goes for it, almost a little too quickly. She can sense the door is near, so she gets going with her grand, woeful speech of a confession. But already, the High Sparrow is stumping her plans, just as before, when he interrupts so that Anella can stay and record all that she says. So, hang on. That's already a step up from what she was expecting. There is now an official record with an official witness and that changes things considerably. Now she has to be extra careful in what she says or implies. She has to be extra careful to not make a mistake or give them any opening. She can no longer just say what she needs to and then deal with it later. 
or at least it would be a lot harder to do that now. And that all worries her, it all makes it seem that much more real. So she tries to cover herself by double checking that this will actually get her out of the door, or what's the point of doing it? And the High Sparrow replies, your grace shall be dealt with according to your sins. So he's just as we remember him, always a step ahead, always implacable, as Cersei calls him, so he's not giving her any opportunity. Instead, he completely intimidates her with what she could still be up against. But however true that is, she's still low on choice. She wants to get out and get to Tommen still, so she has to go for it. And there's plenty of confessing to do, and she's going to try and give no more than she has to if possible, so it's going to be a long, drawn-out process. Again, everything has to be doubly considered now. Any stone could sink her. So this is a true moment of tension that could decide how the rest of her life goes and how long it lasts. She opts to begin with a confession of cheating on Robert. That seems like the least of the crimes laid against her, but also the one they have some of the best evidence for via Lancel and Osney. So it's pretty much a given that she has no choice over it. And I guess I should point out that's cheating on him after he died, which is still a big no-no for her position. But anyway, that is of course not enough. The High Sparrow wants details, and it's fitting that the scratch of Ananda's quill is loud in Cersei's ears as she considers her answers. Again, tension is everywhere. She admits to Lancel and Osney because to not do so would basically achieve the exact opposite of what she wants. But then she throws in the other two Kettle Blacks just as insurance because there's every chance that Osney has named them too. She has to be careful not to make this mistake. Besides, in fairness, it's true. She's not making anything up here. The only name she doesn't give up would never give up is Jamie. Not only because of the obvious implications for what it would do for Tommen and Marcella as well and losing the Iron Throne, but it would also be a crime from which there is no recovery. I don't know what side word is appropriate, but I imagine there is one for cucking a king and putting up false children as royals. It really doesn't get much bigger as crimes go, does it? But even more important to Cersei is the fact that her relationship with Jamie is too private, it's too personal, it's too much a part of her to ever admit to. She's admitting to sex here with the Kettleblacks and Lancel. With Jamie, on whatever level, it is both sex and love, and therefore it's hers to keep in her heart. After she confesses to the others, she also gives a little speech on why she did it, just to cover her bases. It was never to get back at anyone, it was never to plan or better her position. <laughs> okay. She plays on the image of a lonely widow, in need of love and protection, and thinking she only had one means of finding it. She seeks sympathy, and therefore maybe leniency down the road. Better that than the truth of the scheming, and the revenge, and the cruelty. She knows that this story is a much more acceptable image that might just hide some of her other crimes, so she's willing to play the part. But the High Sparrow wants absolute confirmation of sex taking place, which Cersei does admit to as she continues spinning her tale of a woman beset by a bad situation only wanting to defend her son. If she's going to confess to crimes, she figures it's best to say that she was forced into them and never actually chose any of it. And some of that is true on a deeper level, but obviously it's not the same as she presents here. She even touches on the old mother's madness trope that we've seen throughout the series, mostly with Catelyn. After Joffrey died, what wouldn't her mother do to protect her next child, she's basically saying. She seems to be really into this excuse, and maybe she believes it will save her. And to be fair, she's right, half of the Kingsguard are useless. So she's really getting into it now. She knows this will work if it's presented to the right people. The High Sparrow gives nothing away though. Her tale, specifically designed to find sympathy or even guilt from other men, does not get past his shield. He'll not comfort or go easy on her, so she has misjudged her enemy yet again. Instead, the High Sparrow defers to the gods, which is his constant refrain that allows him to keep his hands technically clean and also nullifies Cersei's trying to paint a narrative. He pushes, again, for more and more details. Her explanation might work for the Kettleblacks in taking advantage of her, but what about Lancel? And Cersei is smart enough to know to tread carefully here. Lancel would have given the more comprehensive confession, and voluntarily, not under torture. 
Plus, he's one of them now, so she can't paint him in the same dark light as she did with the Kettleblacks. She instead paints it as her just being taken with his devotion and wanting another protector for Tom and a worthy person. He was pure at heart, she basically says. And that fails a bit when the High Sparrow still accuses her of corrupting Lancer instead. Oh yes, backfire. Realising that, Cersei goes for the Oscar as she completely overdoes the sympathy card. She even blames her gender as weak vessels because she knows it's the face's own word and will again paint her as not at fault or not entirely in control. Over and over she repeats this, until we have this paragraph here. She began to sob uncontrollably. The High Septum made no move to comfort her. He sat there with his hard eyes fixed on her, watching her weep, as stony as the statues of the Seven in the Sept above. Tense as the situation might be, and as much as we might not want to see the High Sparrow win, per se, it is pretty cool to see Cersei's games and schemes just not work whatsoever here, because we know it's deserved. Again, it's the bullshit. She's been playing one game her whole life. Here comes someone who just refuses to play. She doesn't know what to do about it, just like we saw in Feast. He lets her finish. She's been weakened now by the crying, physically, I mean, but not him. He's just the same as always. And he keeps on. But this time he does throw her bone when he agrees to the story that she spins about women and their weakness and what widows can get up to. How they use their genitals to tempt men from the correct path. How they are the corruptive ones. It's typical religious sexist bullshit that we're all too used to seeing in the real world and it really does anger up the blood, doesn't it? Through all that, he doesn't actually confirm whether he believes Cersei or not, but now does confirm that this is not treason, which must be music to Cersei's ears. But we know he doesn't need that particular crime. He's got bigger fish to sink her with. So he again clarifies that none of this happened while Robert lived, which would obviously be a different case entirely, and again we see that she keeps quiet about Jamie. So Cersei swears her oaths that it's all true, but who cares? Because now he can move on to those bigger fish, he can move them onto the playing board, and they come in the form of Sir Osney again. She has admitted that he told the truth about sleeping with her. She was forced to admit it, basically, and the High Sparrow knew that, and it's backed her into a corner somewhat. If she says he told the truth about that, then why would he be lying about these bigger crimes, such as the murder of the previous High Septon, and all the lies she made him tell about Marjorie in a bid to manipulate the Faith into removing her for Cersei? So now she's on the back foot. She can do nothing except deny it and lie through her teeth about how much she loves Marjorie, and all this rubbish that, even to the High Sparrow, who is supposed to be new to the area, must seem like absolute tosh. She allows some concession in maybe Osney thought she wanted the High Septon dead because of her connecting him to Tyrion. She figures that might at least cover some of the explanation, but she won't confess to that one or she really is doomed. Take me to the Sept and I will stand before the Father's judgment seat and swear the truth of that in time, said the High Septon. That is damning, of course. It's bad news for Cersei to hear and it's definitely intimidating. It puts her whole situation into a real view and also confirms that she'll basically have a trial no matter what she says here. It's good timing because the High Sparrow also chooses now to lay the biggest crime at her feet, as true as all the others, that she killed Robert. Cersei knows she's in trouble here too because only beloved Lancel could have given this information, so now she needs to be more careful than ever. Her first technique is to make the claim seem outrageous. Look at how ridiculous they are. She's not a boar. The boar killed Robert, not me. I couldn't have possibly had a part in it. Are they trying to say I killed Joffrey too? That's just as stupid. She says that to try and discredit the claims, make them seem stupid. But the High Sparrow, as ever, is unmoved. So she has to go for the straight approach. She denies it. And that doesn't get a reaction either. He's just creepy. He's really freaking her out. And Cersei probably thought that was the worst that she could expect, but now he actually goes another step. He lays an even worse crime before her, worse in the sense that there would be so many more consequences that would affect and change so much. The issue that we've already brought up, her children being bastards. And it's ironic in its way that it's the much bigger crime, given that this is a claim she's had to deal with the longest. It's the one she's had the least control of as well, given Stannis' letter, etc, etc. And it's the one most widely accepted, much as she might not want to admit that. 
So luckily, she has her answer preloaded, given this come up a thousand times already. It's a lie from Stannis, a claim born of greed, one that Stannis is just making up out of convenience to take her down and usurp her power. So it's actually a convenient excuse for her as well, isn't it? And here the High Sparrow plays some games. He first allows her to think, just for a moment, that she's safe and that this is all work. She even says that she feels reassured here, because Stannis has turned to a law, so by pure luck, his accusations would have no basis here in the Sept of Baelor. At least that would be the case, except that Stannis is long past the only one to be claiming it, isn't he? So after letting Cersei breathe that sigh of relief, the High Sparrow now comes straight back at her. If your grace has told it true, no doubt a trial will prove your innocence. So there's the dagger, the confirmation. Cersei thought that confessing would get her out of here. That was supposed to be the hard part, lowering and debasing herself to that level. That was bad enough for her, but yet not enough to get her out. So this is very, very bad news, because a trial could easily mean her life, as well as Tommen's. What she's discovering is that the game was rigged from the start. The only way to avoid a trial was to confess to everything, which would just land her in the same death spot anyway. So we do sympathise somewhat, given how the faith is set up to ensnare and entrap people, making it impossible for them to prove their innocence. And it just so happens, okay, they generally do have a guilty person right here, but we can still feel her frustration and worry right now. The realisation of this and the certainty of a trial, again, she knows she is guilty and pretty friendless among the faith, so this is very worrying, has put Cersei so off base that she has even forgotten to be angry for once. Instead, concerned about making matters even worse, she actually is meek and begging, probably for the first time in our eyes. She truly has been broken, and we've got much more of that to come. If rescue and freedom have been taken from her, there is only one more target, Tommen, which she still has the strength to ask for, as a form of mercy let her see him. This time, the High Sparrow pulls the reverse of the trick he just did. Let her think it is a no, because she is still one of these wicked, essentially unclean women that he's always talking about, and then do the switcheroo. So however ultimately unsuccessful Cersei's day might have been, she is given something. She will be allowed one visitor a day. No, it's not Tommen, which is heartbreaking for her, but it is a connection back to the world. It is some small modicum of control or influence, or even a comfort if such a thing as a friendly face still remains in this city. Considering what she's been through in her captivity, this is huge. The queen began to weep again. This time the tears were true. You're too kind. Thank you. The mother is merciful. It is her that you should thank. So not only do we have that broken vibe again, but you also just can't even pay the high sparrow a compliment, can you? This is how unyielding he is. Implacable. Again, there's that word. So it's back to the cell for now, with the three scepters. And they all seem so proud of her. They seem to reward her for confessing by actually being nice. It's amazing, really. They could be half plotters, they could be half hopeless fanatics that really buy into what they sell. You can't actually tell, can you? And that's what makes them so dangerous, I suppose. Cersei tells them she feels reborn, and in a sense it's true. For her weakness and tears in there, she does feel the fire and motivation again. The Cersei we know comes back somewhat, as she thinks of and champions her secret times with Jaime, the one in question the morning of her wedding day, which I guess she feels is really sticking it to them all, considering the crimes just laid against her. She's back to imagining violence against these scepters as well, and commenting on their bodies again, so it really is the Cersei we know. She's even smiling. She seems to enjoy having these secret thoughts that cannot be taken from her. The trial is very bad news, true, but her self-confidence remains. She can do a lot with those visitors. She has a chance. When the question comes up of who she wants as those visitors, her obvious fault is Jamie. He remains the ultimate, but we know that ain't happening, even if Cersei doesn't know why. So she skips to Kevin instead. Whatever happened between them before, he is still powerful in terms of maybe bringing a Westerns army, if nothing else. He can cause the biggest fuss, and he's bound to her by blood, so he can be properly manipulated, you would hope, anyway. 
Deceptives confirm that he is in the city, so we think we're finally getting another glimpse of him after Jamie spent half a book chasing Kevin and Anster around in Feast, but he's also taken the title of Lord Regent, which is unsurprising for Cersei, but it's still pretty big news. He's taken up the biggest seat going in the city, and where is that supposed to leave Cersei? She doesn't seem to really consider that fact here, or the fact that he turned it down when it was Cersei offering, so we'll find the truth of that soon enough. The rewards for confession keep coming in terms of a nicer cell and getting breakfast as well as sleep, allowing her to re-energise even more for the next morning when Kevin Lannister, a very important figure for this late part of the book, returns to the page. Cersei is at least smart enough to realise the wounds she forged in Feast with their parting are still being born, or she at least believes that's the cause before it turns out she's wrong. Kevin isn't pissed about that, apparently, I bet he is really. It's what she has done to his firstborn son that's been confirmed to him now since then obviously, an element of the situation that Cersei has never ever considered. Those types of things just don't matter to her, they're not in her world. To Kevin, however, who Lily lost Ansel to death and now seems to have definitely lost him to the faith, he traces it all back to Cersei. Some of that's fair, some of it's not. Part of it is frustration over losing a firstborn and losing control of Dari, etc. Plus the fallout he's had to deal with as a man looking after his house and looking out for the future of his children, but some is also genuine anger over thinking, as you would, that Lancel was safe being left with a family member, an older family member, who could have guided him and looked after him, and all these things that Kevin mentions now. But then again, some of that you have to think, really? You ever thought Cersei was the person to do that? Doesn't seem like that would be the best idea. I wonder if Kevin actually ever dreamed of maybe making that relationship official, Lancel and Cersei, once Jamie was captured. I really don't think that was ever going to happen with Tywin alive, but maybe Kevin dreamt, who can say? Kevin's blaming of Cersei also drives into that wanton woman idea that we just discussed with the High Sparrow. Cersei so obviously tempted and corrupted Lancel, drove him to the faith. He basically removes any responsibility from Lancel himself. And yes, like we say, the majority might have been Cersei, sure, but not all. But then again, these are just the first hints of the super anti-woman stance that we have from Kevin. And it turns out he's got a lot more of that to deliver just yet. On the flip side of that is the hilarity of just how delusional Cersei still is. She has this quote, Lancel wanted me more than I ever wanted him. He still does, I will wager. She just doesn't change, this woman. She's ignoring that she nearly killed him with that punch of his wound, that she drove him into this life-changing faith that he is now utterly dedicated to. She still thinks she can command him through sex. She's just not paying attention. It's delusion, it's ego, it's ignoring the facts of history and her own ageing as well. Let's not forget that she's, that's just not something she pays attention to. Cersei plays the same defence that she used with the High Sparrow. She was alone and weak and she couldn't be helped. She'll admit to all of it if it can just move the damn meeting along. Get this bit out of the way, let me talk about what I want to talk about. And now she can't wait any longer so she's proactive and forces a hug that Kevin can hardly turn down. She's going to get it moving on by sheer awkwardness apparently. But his voice is still flat and cold though. So we need to bear that in mind. Now when Kevin walked in, he already teased that there was news that she needed to know. And we're hungry to know. So we're saying, come on, get on with this. And he does it again here. He hints that. So we're ready for finally getting an update on King's Landing that we can nerd over. As is Cersei, she actually does want to know. Who thinks that his worrying tone is more about tidings than not towards her. Later, much later, she'll find out it's actually both. As much news as there might be about the city, she wants news on Tommen first. Which makes sense and it's understandable given the recent history of what's happened to kings of late so he holds her at arm's length before talking which i think is pretty symbolic he breaks off this hug 
he holds her apart from him there's that disting already he already considers her unclean he's already removing her from house lannister in some ways we find that tommen as well so that's a breath of relief for us all that was the most important for cersei as well everything after that is going to be negotiable for her in one way or another that's all a problem that can be dealt with later let's make sure tommen is okay and as i say that's nice for us to hear as well we can never be too sure with someone sat on the iron throne and we just always feel so bad for poor tommen He's even further in the game now with more Tyrells and there's Kevin there. They've got a constant tension to keep him in place. But to be fair, he's also probably happier on a day-to-day basis away from Cersei. It's just always worrying. I don't think we're ever going to lose that. And it's probably a good idea because I'm not sure how the horizon really looks for Tommen. So that's the good news for Cersei out of the way. But yet again, she gets switched up on from up to down very quickly when Kevin gives his next piece of information. One that is devastating for her. Jamie is still in the Riverlands. He has not come. Now, she did kind of guess that because he hasn't appeared, but it's another thing actually hearing it, confirming it. And she tells herself, yet again, the only possible reason for him still being there is that the letter never reached him. She can't handle any other explanation. And I hope one day, I really have crossed fingers, that she is told, no, he read the letter, he threw it in the fire, because I really want to see what that does to her mind. Splits it apart, I would guess. But there's also this addendum that they don't know where in the Riverlands Jamie is. Now, that seems odd because his job, as she thought, was pretty straightforward. He should be at a named place, whether it be Riverrun or Rivendry Hall. Maybe he had to go to the Twins for some reason. But he should be somewhere at one of those. And he should be easily reachable at all times. So what could have changed? And how will this affect her ability to re-recruit him and get him back to her ASAP? That's what she wants. I need to know where he is. I'm still going to need him down the road. And while she's thinking all this, it also passes her by that she was the one who sent him there in the first place. He didn't volunteer. It's just another consequence that she never saw coming. The big, big news, of course, is of him going off with Brienne. And I must admit, I made a mistake here. I always thought that came in the epilogue. But no, we get it here. Cersei is told straight up. So that's very enjoyable for us. I'm not sure who in Jamie's camp knew that that was Brienne. Knew that she was of Tarth and got it back to Kevin. But that's how we found out. So that's a confirmation for us that Jamie did accept Brienne's invitation. We always imagined that would be so, but now we know for sure. So all those ideas that we had at the end of Jamie's chapter of traps and trials and meeting Lady Stoneheart and revisiting old O's, as well as a major change in the relationship between he and Brienne, as well as possibly the future of the Riverlands as well, well that can all officially be happening somewhere right now. So of course we're very, very hungry to get to that in wins. I think that might be my most interested storyline. And while it is worrying to think about what Brienne could be leading him to, there's also a part of our hearts that's just glad the two of them are together, because that's what we've been wanting for so long. And of course, the fact we're hearing this through Cersei's ears of all people, Cersei who is uncomprehending, Cersei who has never ever had to worry about Jaime and other women, hears about this one who might end up taking her place. That is brilliant. Here's the quote. Her. The Queen remembered the Maid of Tarth, a huge, ugly, shambling thing who dressed in man's mail. Jaime would never abandon me for such a creature. My raven never reached him elsewise he would have come to be honest it makes it even more of a haha moment for us cersei thinking of brienne as ugly and unworthy and therefore of no match for beautiful cersei oh yes this is a definite sign of what we all suspect that the beauty of brienne's soul will blow away the ugliness of cersei's in the battle for jamie's heart and even if that does never actually come to pass you can make the argument that brienne has already won she was the catalyst that changed Jamie's life and set him on the path to emotionally abandoning Cersei and becoming a better person in some ways at least before she actually appeared now and included the physical side as well. And at the end of that quote, we see the strict belief that at the very least, Jamie would never have chosen Brienne if Cersei was there presented as a choice if he had that letter. So that makes a moment of even more incredible reader satisfaction because we know that's exactly what happened. Jamie could have gone to Cersei, never did, definitely went with Brienne instead. We love it. 
Now, Kevin's just been sitting here and he obviously doesn't care for her personal issues or the secret relationship that he knows is real. He's got actual tidings of political importance that need to be discussed. Ones that, again, we're super interested in hearing, even if Cersei's not. So let's drop the high school stuff for a little bit and return to the important, shall we? Cell swords are landing all across the Stormlands. It's an invasion, good and proper. And Kevin assumes that it is Stannis because who else could it be? Well, we know the truth. We've got a lot of that sense of us knowing more than the characters in this chapter, don't we? Aegon and John Connington have come. They've arrived. After it being a full 30 chapters since John Con's POV, with some very, very slight updates ever since, we now get that confirmation. Their mission worked, was begun at least. Their journey is complete. They are here. And that's very, very exciting, obviously, to see this actually happening. We've been waiting for a Targaryen invasion since the beginning of the series. We never envisioned it would look like this, but still, here we are. Off we go. So let's relish that knowing more than the characters, because this is no mere bunch of random swords, but it's the mighty Golden Company, come for that true invasion and more motivated than ever before. We know how strong they are in terms of arms and numbers, we know John Connington is willing to do anything to get this done, and we know that a decent part of Westeros, and maybe this very city, will join in with them if the story of Aegon spreads the supposed story. First timers are probably going to assume that we won't really have time to see this get going anywhere in this book, but still it's the ultimate flip of the table. The characters, the continent itself, has no idea what is about to happen to it. Westeros is already in the worst state of repairs and this could very easily change everything for nearly everyone, from all those in King's Landing to John Con's bunch and for Daenerys as well. We spoke about it a lot in John Con, but it's great to see it really mattering now and we don't have to wait too long until his second chapter where we can actually see the evidence of this. So it really is exciting. We've been waiting again, like I say, so long without news and we want to know more, which we can probably apply to all of Kevin's news really, because he claims that the realm is in no state for defence of any sort. Duh, yeah, pretty true there. Westeros is still recovering from a huge war that brought it to its knees, one started in large part by her own family, and it's still going up in the north. All the food is gone, winter is coming, and there is still Euron to think of, although no one mentions him here. The government is also in tatters, and this city specifically only just survived the last assault. The Tyrells can help, they do have food and numbers still, but they won't, thanks to Cersei's plotting around Marjorie. We knew she destroyed the realm in loads of ways, but here comes a brand new one. Kevin outlines how Marjorie needs to be sorted out if Mace is going to be satisfied and then used to protect them all from these invaders. Obviously, giving the hint that Marjorie is of much higher importance than Cersei right now and pointing towards why she's really been let out where Cersei hasn't. But Cersei isn't listening, not to her part in weakening the defence of the realm anyway. She out and out says she doesn't care about Stannis or his sellswords, she only cares about herself. So yet again, she proves to be an awful leader that can't even recognise an important threat, let alone move against it. The place that she's supposed to be queen of doesn't actually occupy any space in her mind whatsoever. As I say, she cares only for herself, and she just kind of skips over all of that and asks Kevin to take her out of this place. This is why she was really hopeful about visitors, because it might allow her to bypass the failure that she had with the High Sparrow earlier and get her the hell out of here. That's why Kevin was chosen. He represents the Lannisters, the all-powerful in her mind. Kevin is the head of them now, the closest you can get to Tywin, and her self-perceived exceptionalism comes out. She honestly believes that Kevin can just walk in here with his name or his gold or his army and get her out. Lannisters get what they want. It's always been that way for her. And this new world is not one she can really get used to. And up to a certain point, maybe she was right about what Kevin could have done if he really, really wanted to. That's the discussion we'll come back to in the epilogue. For now, he denies his own ability, citing a lack of men. And again, that might be true, but we still have to ask what he really could have done if he wanted to. Besides, Kevin turns to the window now in a very dramatic, typical soap opera moment before turning back and revealing he's actually been negotiating with the High Sparrow already, as confirmed that Cersei will not be released unless she atones. 
When Cersei argues she's already done that, that's what this whole chapter has been about, it gives the opening for Kevin to announce his big news. His crime against his own family in some ways, and his definite crime against women, and also the next big moment of Cersei's life. I have confessed. Atoned, I said, before the city. I walk, no. She knew what her uncle was about to say, and she did not want to hear it. Never. So boom, there it is. And re-readers really feel the weight of the moment, for we know what is coming. This is a scene that really does look different when rereading, and after having some time to consider Kevin's own part in this. He's angry about Lancel, sure, but he's also just a dick to women, and whatever Cersei might have done, or how unfit she still is, it's still cruelty. And when you read it back, you can almost sense his hunger for it in a way. He's really eager to do this to her, because this guy is a piece of shit. He is not nice, not at all. I know I recommended this back when we talked about Kevin a lot more during the feast days, but I'll mention it here again. The Brendan Beefish essay, I believe it's called The Lion's Shadow. That is a great read for really exploring just how bad of a person Kevin is, not just in relation to Cersei, but in general, although that is the main focus of the Walk of Shame and everything like that. But I really recommend you give that a read because unfortunately, I don't think we really have time to get into it here. This chapter's going long. We will a bit more in Cersei's second chapter and obviously Kevin's epilogue, but still, I'll find the link for that for, that for you. Make sure you go and read that. Cersei instantly knows the cost and fallout of this proposed walk. There can be no bigger nightmare besides Tommen's immediate safety. And we really can't blame her for this opinion. It is horrible. We thought we were done with George turning our hate into sympathy now that Theon has finally finished his arc, but apparently not. Cersei says she would sooner die. And again, it's not just the cost and fallout in terms of power or prestige or whatever you want to call it. It's a genuinely frightening, scary, dangerous experience. Of course no one wants to go for it. Of course it is evil at its highest peak. And we don't even really know what they're talking about. He's suggesting a walk of shame, but it isn't really outlined for us here in this chapter, even if we do get the general idea. Right now, he suggests it was the High Sparrows idea, but look at how he pushes it. Look at how he tries to persuade. So we've really got to label some question marks here. He's also completely unmoved by the possibility of Cersei dying if she chooses not to do it. He even uses it as a persuasion technique, as he lists all the many crimes now officially put up against her for this upcoming trial. So he's really trying to pressure her into it. And Kevin probably likes delivering this as the kicker, that it's this or death. It's another level to her having created her own problems as well with the killing of the High Septon. She never foresaw it as being this kind of a problem, obviously. Kevin then essentially cuts off that part of her complaint by playing on her paranoia and suggesting that they are being listened to. And maybe that's true, very easily could be. But it might also just be an effective way of shutting her up. Now we get some further details on the trial, most of which won't be important until wins, but a trial by battle is mentioned, which opens up another plot thread. For Kevin, up to a certain point, other than her death obviously, the trial doesn't matter anyway. Some things it will not change, including the fact that her rule is at an end. Hooray! Yeah, I know we've just had this bad news about a walk of shame, but let's not mess around. Her rule needed to be ended. It's so very much deserved and it's a huge plus for the city of King's Landing slash Westeros in general, even though it's bad news for Varys or Jonkon or the like. In the vacuum, Kevin will rule as Tommen's regent until he comes of age, which is still seven years away, I think, remember, so it's no true position he's taking on. Maybe he doesn't ever expect to last that long, but still. He will lead a new council, which gives us some setup for the epilogue, as we will see that new council come to work. It's a council that should have been formed a lot earlier, after Tywin's death, if you have interest in actually serving the realm. It has a heavy Tyrell influence, which will turn out to be very important, not just for trying to take a step forward into a new era of King's Landing rule after Cersei's awfulness and using the people best qualified for that, but also in the soon-to-come plots such as the defence against Jonkon, or even particular friends in the Reach theories. Again, we'll come back to that in the epilogue. Pax the Redwine, he sounds good as Lord Admiral, doesn't he? Well, signed up for that one. But what about Randall Tarly? Now just a car of the entire realm. Hmm, not so keen on that one. We remember what we saw of him playing that role in Feast. We saw how awful he can be. No thank you. 
As with her thinking and feast, Cersei can only think of the Tyrells as enemies and doesn't give a fig about what's best for the realm. As always, she just fixates on Marjorie and gets awful jealous on the fact that she's been free and Cersei hasn't. Kevin gives the story of Randall riding up with his army and insisting, which is exactly what Cersei was hoping for, and maybe the same thing could have happened with her, but they weren't bothered basically. Maybe it's just because of Kevin's lack of army, or the High Sparrow considering Cersei the larger danger, but there's still something funny and again deserved in there. We can feel her frustration building and we get that sense of comeuppance again. That sense definitely keeps going as Kevin outlines how all her plotting from Feast has just fallen apart. None of it worked. The accusations for Marjorie have fallen away and all it brought was completely ruining the lives of the Blue Bard and Hamish the Harper. We remember the disgustingness of what Cersei had done to the Blue Bard. Again, we gotta say, comeuppance. We do at least get another mention of Kyburn, which gets Cersei's cogs working for what she'll come up with at the end of the chapter, but it doesn't get focused on again. Before that comes the last big information point as Kevin moves to news of Dawn and Marcella. And typical Cersei, as soon as she mentions evil word, she just goes straight for Tyrion. So some things don't change. She doesn't even shut up and listen to a man who's trying to tell her about her daughter. She just wants to talk Tyrion. What's he been up to? It was all him. It was definitely his fault. Tell me what he did. She's obsessed. And it's bloody annoying for Kevin, so he hits at the bone as he tells of Marcella's maiming. Now we get to see Duran's plan of framing Darkstar for other parts of this in motion, which is pretty cool. Now this part, maiming of Marcella, we obviously know to actually be true, but it's going to work in conjunction with the heiress Oakheart news in a second. <sighs> Poor Marcella though. Again, we already knew the truth, but it's still harsh just to hear about it and just hear her being used as a plaything again. We don't like that. The Oakheart news comes with the framing, like we said, and again, she only sees Tyrion in it. She's just as obsessed as always. She's always filling in her own shadows. We also have the letter from Balon Swan via Marcella. So Ariane obviously did her part in persuading Marcella to tell Balon certain things. We figure that also means that all other parts of the plan have been put into motion as well. The Sand Snakes have likely departed and two of them are coming here. Unbeknownst to us, Kevin's news actually links together. The news of Jonkon and Aegon will also reach Sunspear and massively redirect their plot when a new plan is conceived for Ariane to really enter the main plot, the overall plot, and drag Dawn along with her. Even with that though, Cersei is still just going on about Tyrion. She truly sounds like she's lost it at this point, to be honest. It's all Tyrion, all forever. She's lost it. She at least convinces Kevin as much as anything. But she does sense opportunity when it finally filters through that Aerys Okart is dead. So George is fitting all the pieces together here. It's wonderful, really. We could not have foreseen it way back when, when Aerys died via Aria Hotar. How is this going to affect Cersei all the way up in King's Landing? And yet it does. So I guess we're just going to see much more of that in the final two books. And, and well, I'm not complaining. I doubt you are either. All these storylines all converging and affecting one another. Finally, we have her thoughts go to Kyburn now when she thinks of how she might be able to save herself finally with this mystery monster that we still have no idea about. Cersei is still very much alive here and we are going to end the chapter just with this thought of there's so many tendrils, there's so many different storylines we've got to sort out here in King's Landing. We're getting hints of them all, well not even all, we're getting hints of lots of them right here but there's so much still to cover. We're going to get some of that in the second chapter, but not a lot really, because that's obviously a fairly contained chapter around one specific event. That's going to be very, very hard to deal with. It's going to massively affect Cersei. It's going to change the power balance again in King's Landing. And then we'll get even more of that in the epilogue, obviously, when we reach the end. For now, I'm going to leave it there for Cersei, because we've spoken an awful lot about her. We've still got to meet two more guys and then get to Tyrion. So we'll move on now. We'll leave King's Landing for this week. We'll be back next time. For now, we're going back over to Essos. We're actually going back to Marine. We didn't know if we'd be back or not, but here we are with, I'm proud to announce, Barristan 1 slash The Queen's Guard. So we're going to one-up ourselves now. We've had a new POV for the book, 
How about a brand new POV for the series? Like we said earlier on, it is obviously the latest ever. It's our last new POV for the series, which you'd expect given that it's about to end. And it is by no means a throw-in either. This is an important arc, a short arc in terms of the total chapters it's going to cover in the book, the space in the book that it's going to cover. This will be our highest frequency ever. Again, as we mentioned earlier on, but it is a brilliant mini arc to deal with this post-Daenerys Marine or pre-battle marine whichever way you want to see it this really is more of the Miranese not than I think we get of Daenerys really all the plots and the questions and the who is doing what who is really aligned with who what's going to happen we get more questions here in these four chapters than I think we actually did for all of Daenerys's previous so this is going to be a really interesting kind of like I say mini story we're going to get at the end here brought about by the necessity of Danny leaving obviously if she had never left then we wouldn't be getting this would we but it provides not only a different viewpoint from Daenerys some things we could never see through her eyes but it just provides a dozen different storylines all on top of each other as everything really builds really explodes into what we expect to be a climactic battle at the beginning of winds so we've got lots and lots to cover and we're going to do it through the eyes of someone who is a really well-known character a classic character an important character who's been around since the very beginning i'm pretty sure i'm pretty confident in saying this is the longest we've known someone before they've become a pov now feast and dance they were filled with new povs but how many of them were characters that we'd met before it's not actually all that many yeah you've got the big guns like brienne and cersei obviously We'd obviously known Cersei really intimately before that came about. And if you want to be technical, you can throw in a Victorian, an Aeron, even an Asher, because yes, we had met them before, but they weren't big characters, especially not to the degree that Barry is. And besides, that was a whole book before. Now we're talking about dance, where our new POVs have been newbies, your Quentins, your John Connington's, your Melisandre, who's probably the only real contender for person we've known longest before they become a POV. What I should do really is go back and check the numbers, see who appears in the most chapters before they actually get their own POV. I'm still going to put my bet down that it's Barristan. You never know, maybe Mel could get in there, maybe even a Samuel Tarly or Jamie someone like that if you remind me i will make sure to research that for you and mention it next week because we're going to have barry pretty much every episode from here on out because of that super high frequency so we have this really heavy plot to deal with as well as having to get to know barristan selmy the man the man beneath all the stories that we've heard before and everything that we've been presented so far which many people are looking forward to i personally love barristan selmy as a character he's a divisive character for many in the fandom and we'll see why as we go forward he's by no means an angel of course not but i really like him i like his place in the story i like who he is for the main part and i liked his deeds throughout the series again for the most part so it's really cool to get him as a pov we all know this is a big breakthrough for george in coming up with including barristan's point of view and that was a big thing for getting dance done and solving at least part of the Miranese knot it also fits him very well with the kind of character he likes to write it's another knight it's another king's guard but more interestingly for our purposes he kind of joins jamie as one of those only people who are around back in the court of Ares. he's basically our biggest treasure trove of information we've had yet in certain aspects anyway i'm pretty sure i'm right in saying he's our oldest POV ever perhaps Minasandra we'll put that one on the side and maybe Maester Crescent as well if you want to include him but generally I think you get my point this is a really cool character to have as a POV we'll look into that as we go through this chapter these specific advantages of having Barristan Selmy and why we like him so much I won't waste too much of your time doing an intro there because I'm aware I did talk about the beginning of Cersei quite a lot before we actually got down to the chapter before we start then just one more nod it's to the chapter title The Queen's Guard I love that title personally I'm sure you would do as well because it's just giving honour to 
too generous. It makes it all that more official. Although really, maybe that's a bit late because at the beginning, it obviously begs the question, oh, hang on, you didn't guard her, did you? And the guilt of that failure after all that's happened throughout the arc and since Barry met Daenerys, all that build up and all that's been promised and the fallout of said chapter of her going off of Drogon, that's going to be a very, very large focus in all of Barristan's arc, but especially here in the establishing opening chapter where we have a lot to do. So I'll jump right into it for you now. We have bunches of news and catching up to do with Marine. We knew that obviously from when Daenerys flew off and we were left wondering, okay, well, what happens now? Is she coming back? Are we just not going to see any of this going further? Are we just going to have to see it all through Quentin's eyes maybe? So here at the beginning, we're kind of still struck that, oh, hang on. Firstly, we're struck at the fact that we've got this long-time character as POV. It's probably a pretty big surprise. No one was expecting to have a new POV this late in the book. So we're dealing with that fallout. But then after that initial shock gets over with, we're thinking, ah, yeah. And now we get to see what all those storylines that we were left with in the pit are actually going to amount to. What does happen in the vacuum of Daenerys? We've got all this news, like I say, all this catching up to do, and much of it comes right at the beginning of this first page. But we also have to mix that with the emotions of this new POV that we have. And the opening scene that we get with Barriss and Salmi is a semi-repeat of one of his most famous scenes previously, which is being fired. While we were told about the many legends of Barristan's youth right from when we were first introduced to him at the beginning of the book, he never really stood out to us until he threw his sword down at Joffrey's feet, which is still just a, a super cool moment. For many readers, that's the time when you fall in love with Barristan Salmi, and I was definitely one of them. Even if you can invite certain questions about Barry not doing something for good until it personally affected him, but still, at least he did it, didn't he? So what we have here is not quite the same situation. There's no throwing of swords just yet. And technically, he's not being completely cut loose. He's just being shifted back out from the main stage and put into the shadows instead as part of an overall basic cabinet reshuffle. That's what's going on here. It's a rebranding of the throne of Marine in the shape of his Darzolarak now that Daenerys Targaryen is gone. That's essentially what this first page is all about detail the main changes that have already happened in the city. And for our American friends out there, it kind of seems like what's happening in the real world, just in reverse. You're getting some good finally injected into your lives, whereas a Marine, it's pretty much the opposite. But before we are overloaded with that, we have a key sentence just to get us on board with this new POV. Here it is. I am the Queen's man still, today, tomorrow, always, until my last breath or hers. Brass and Selmy refused to believe that Daenerys Targaryen was dead. So that walks him straight into our hearts. It aligns us with him. Oh, Barry, we know you've got issues. We know you've got problems, but we like you because you are loyal at the very least to Daenerys. So we like that. And obviously we've already suspected that anyway. We don't really need confirmation from his inner mind to tell us that. We've been seeing it since Storm, but it's still great to hear it, isn't it? Even when the whereabouts of Daenerys are apparently so up in the air. We might have been expecting, oh, she's gone to the top of the pyramid. Maybe she's living there with Drogon, but no, she really is gone. Because first time is didn't know that she was definitely disappearing at the end of her last chapter. We talked about that before, but we now confirm she's going to be gone for an extended period of time. Otherwise, we wouldn't have this new POV, would we? So we're entering very uncharted territory now, and this is a wonderful anchor to begin with. Because remember, yes, we've had two Quentin chapters, but neither of them were in Marine. That was all pre-Marine. So this is the first time we're seeing this situation, this area of the world, in someone's eyes other than Daenerys's. Yes, Tyrion's very, very close. He's just on the outside. But even when he actually entered the sea, we weren't there with him. So this is a new first for us. This is a really big mark in the sand. His stars are the rack. He seems to be doing plenty in her absence. He seems to be getting on with things and is certainly casting him in a certain light in terms of how much we want to align with him. Others around the city will abandon the idea of Daenerys as they jump ship or just try to do what's best for them. But many will remain loyal still, either because they need her 
or because they believe in her. And Barry is going to lead them in that regard, that second regard, believing in Daenerys, not giving up on that ideal just because she isn't here physically. Plus, we, the reader, obviously don't want to believe that Danny is dead either, so we're very much aligned with Barristan right here at the beginning. He's been sold to us by George within these first few paragraphs. Here's another quote just to back up that point we made about Hisdar. One by one, Hisdar removes us all. So part of that wondering whether Danny would be gone or not was obviously in conjunction with what would happen in her absence because we had no idea what was going to happen. And the majority of those thoughts did focus on his dar at the time. He's been truly prominent in the last few chapters as Danny's new husband and we've looked very heavily at him trying to inch into that spotlight to take up that little bit more of the throne than he should be. And slowly he just lowered and lowered Danny's power and control. We talked about that at length. That was all working with Danny still being around. Now his dad took a definite stance at the end of Danny 9 when he was screaming to have Drogon killed. So it might have been interesting how that would have gone if Danny had stayed, but instead we have this situation, which, let's be honest, is Hisdar's wet dream. Daenerys is gone, she was removed by an outside force or factor that he clearly had nothing to do with, and that was witnessed by thousands upon thousands of people. So no one can claim that he had anything to do with it. There was no foul play, and it even works in his favour that no one knows that she's dead. The question buys him time. It allows him to act as though everything is in her interest that he's working for her still. So that stops any of her supporters going for broke, as Skahaz will suggest soon enough. And the door is basically now wide open for him to do what he wants as the official King Hisdar of Marine. So this is everything that he wanted, just way, way quicker and cleaner than he could have ever hoped. So he is not going to waste the opportunity, as Barry details for us now. So we said we needed updates, and now we get a whole bunch of them very, very quickly. We'll start with Belwas, who still lives, but is apparently on death's door. So that's at least something positive, because we might have easily thought he was already done, but apparently he's clinging on, and the locusts have been fingered as the cause, so the suspicion and blaming can start early now. Which Barry proves by thinking that the Blue Graces, being under the control of Galaza Galaire, might be doing their best to finish off Belwas instead of healing him up. Belwas is an obvious Danny loyalist, and we'd, and we'd would be a huge problem if it ever comes to swords. So he figures if you've got the chance to take him out, then why wouldn't you take it? And that sets the tone for this and all of Barry's chapters. Everyone suspects everyone. There's double crosses and false intentions everywhere. This is a city on the edge of about a hundred different parties, all supporting one side or the other, but with many turning out to be false. So this is going to be tense all the way through as this Miranese knot really does get very, very tangled now, even worse than before. If you thought it was confusing already, well, get ready for these last four chapters. Barrison also thinks of Skahaz and the hostages being given over to Yunkar, now we already knew about those, but still it's important that they have been not returned, despite the fact that Daenerys, the one that the Yonkish supposedly don't trust, is no longer around, so we might have thought we'd get some of them back, but obviously not. And then we have the news of the Dothraki and the Unsullied, and that's a tough hit because they are apparently no longer around. The Unsullied are hunkering down in their barrack and have withdrawn from proceedings entirely. We'll come back to why in a moment. Meanwhile, the Kalasar has gone across the river to search for their queen. So that's the two most loyal factions to Daenerys, the ones that Barristan Good trust absolutely and the ones who also happen to be the fiercest or most effective fighters, they're all off the board now. And that obviously leads to concern over Barry's chances to A, make any changes here in post Danny Marine, or B, just survive. He is certainly low on allies now, which Skahaz will use to his advantage later in the chapter. Even poor Missandei has been removed just like Barristan has, which is kind of lucky for her, I guess. 
She's not been cast out, just pushed to the back again, because his dad doesn't want association with slaves. I think we can guess we'll likely be seeing more of that policy throughout the city, just the removal of slaves, the removal of their prestige, and his dad trying to separate from them, possibly because we know what kind of deal he's still going to make with the Yunkish. So that leaves Barristan also being dismissed because he doesn't fit into this new Hizdar vision. The new king doesn't want anyone being reminded of Daenerys, not when there's a Hizdar to look at on the throne. And in fairness, Barristan doesn't really seem to mind. He says he once would have seen it as an insult to his honour. Well, we know the truth of that, we were there in King's Landing. But Marine is so alien and corrupt to him that he just can't make it work within the parameters of honour that he's used to. Now you could ask the very relevant question of how much honour he really saw in his years at King's Landing, especially at the end there, but at least he had the memory of such back home. Besides, he doesn't want to serve his dar any more than his dar wants to be served. So already on this first page, we've had Barry declaring that he's forever dedicated to Danny and he will not recognise his dar as king. He thinks that man is a consort and nothing more, so it's a way to get into our good books right from the beginning here. But we're also told there's a specific occasion that Barry is being shoved aside for. The Yunkish are coming back to the city to essentially seek payment for those who died down in the chaos of Daznak's pit. That's actually going to turn out to be the focus of Barristan's second chapter. We've hardly had a chance to think of such consequences with Danny's thrilling flight, but we'll discover that some big names went down in that pit, and in turn, much of the plot will take a sudden change. When these Yonkers come, his Dan wants to appear in full power, as if all memory of Danny is gone. So is this a display of a job well done? Perhaps he'd promised to get rid of her with the locusts anyway, and has therefore wound up the same ending. Is it a display of power so he can take a larger spoil of anything the Yonkers might cough up? If so, it would eat away slightly at our idea of how closely they've worked together in these peace deals. For my money, it's just Hizdar proving his worth and prestige now that he can't play the cotton wool dampener role for them with Danny anymore. But as with everything else, Danny leaving has changed much, and this relationship isn't exempt, so Hizdar's just kind of covering all bases. He needs to find himself a new platform here. And another thing that's changed is the choosing of a new guard, those that Hizdar knows to be loyal to him in the pit fighters, with Kraz and all the rest of them. We talked about them last time in Danny's final chapter. These are the ones that will soon be raised to his council as well, because, you know, that's always a good idea, isn't it? Giving your guards enough power to start wondering why they aren't the ones being guarded. Barristan is unsurprised by the situation because Marine is somehow more tense than before, if you can imagine such a thing. Things are not so simple as his dar represented the great masses of Marine to Yunkai and he just got the top spot and now everyone supports him. No, of course not. That's too simple for George. Now there's this rivalry coming out between the different Miranese houses and some of them think they should be ruling if Danny is never coming back. The sons of the Harpy are out there somewhere still, though they might be in league with Hisdar, but then they may not. And whatever the relationship was previously with Yunkai, this is a new world, so like we already said, it just can't be guaranteed that there would still be a peace that the Yunkish would choose that. Perhaps they smell opportunity with no Danny, and also no Dafraki, and also no Unsullied, to challenge them, and that's going to come up later as well. Speaking of, we now find that Hisdar lost the Unsullied when he tried to repeat his nepotism and put a cousin in charge of them like he did with Skahaz and the Brazen Beasts. Grey Worm said, no chance, we are Daenerys through and through and we do not belong to you. So we love him and them for that, of course. As for the Brazen Beasts, even with his cousin in place, his dad doesn't stress that Skahaz isn't still involved with them in some way, which actually turns out to be a good instinct. So that only leaves these meagre pit fighters as his trusted allies. Barristan even says so, the quote is, the pit fighters were King Hisdar's only reliable support against a sea of enemies. So in fairness, while this situation is a dream for Hisdar, as we thought in Danny 9, as we mentioned earlier, it also brings a whole bunch of problems with it. Danny was maintaining the peace that Hisdar was benefiting from. We didn't see it like that at the time, so Barry is already giving us new angles that Danny just couldn't see. Hisdar needed her to a degree, it seems. 
But that begs the question, if that's true, then why use the locusts if he was the one to use them? Was it just meant to incapacitate her, maybe? It sure doesn't seem like it, does it? Or was someone else trying to kill Danny and then screw his dar over at the same time? There's so, so many questions, and unfortunately, Barry's chapters aren't going to be known for their clarity on a lot of these issues. Normally, this being the end of a book, we'd expect a decent amount of answers, but for Dance, it's the complete opposite this time around. The bottom line is, even with a queen and a dragon departing, the tension in the marine has gone absolutely nowhere. So Barristan's face takes on a blank slate, or what he believes to be a blank slate anyway, all while Reznak is stressing away at him about using the correct terminology for this area of the world, which is actually pretty funny and is a cool way to paint Barristan as another fish out of water. We know George likes writing those. At the same time, he tells Barry, don't go anywhere. Okay, we are firing you, but not really. We're basically going to keep you on a retainer. Just stick behind the scenes for now, okay? If this does come to war, then his dart is at least smart enough to know that he's super short on military commanders, especially right now. Besides, if he does have to send someone out to war, he'd probably rather send one of Danny's people than his, and Barristan could prove of use in some way, couldn't he? We leave this first scene with Barry departing the conversation, thinking of his dart as vain and Resnak as oily. So Barristan might be clueless on some things, such as foreign titles for example, but he can still read people, definitely. He's now left alone to make the huge climb back up the top of the pyramid 800 feet above him, and such an undertaking has him thinking of his age and how long his body will hold up, which is sad. We don't like that, do we? We've made the athlete analogy all through this project with regards to John and Jamie and Brienne and others. Well, Barristan, he's the ultimate veteran, isn't he? He's the old superstar who's passed his best days. He was never just an average guy who hung around by keeping his head down. He was one of the very best. And he's one who's been around the longest time, which is not a combination we get to see all that often. What a career he has to think back on. So the idea that that could soon end is very tough to face indeed, and it really does strike at some of our hearts. It really gets through to me at least. In a rather beloved fashion, his only thought is if that day soon comes, then it is his duty to ensure that there are others who can take his place, so that Danny can continue to be served. He must make new knights, he thinks. And this aspect will pop up quite a lot in Barry's chapters, and in Wins as well. Clearly, for a man at his age and on the edge of battle, he considers what he will leave the world, what his legacy will be. Sons have obviously never been an option, thanks to his cloak. And those fellow Kingsguard he was Lord Commander of were mostly below the par, thanks to the corruption of the Lannisters. But what he can leave is a new generation of knights, his own children in a way, so that they may continue practising what is really the love of Barry's life, knighthood, chivalry. Those things mean more to him than any other character we meet other than maybe Brienne. When he finally does get back up to the top of the pyramid, the absence of Daenerys is at its most obvious. Her apartments, once so busy with handmaids and servers and everyone else, are empty. They're abandoned. And we quite like the fact that at least Hisdar hasn't had the confidence to come and take Danny's physical place just yet. He's not that bold. His rule is so tenuous with both the Unkai and his fellow Miranese that he prefers to hide in the pyramid's safest depths although he has felt confident enough to steal all her cupbearers. It's important to note here that Barristan cannot bring himself to think of those cupbearers as hostages, just as Danny couldn't. They are innocents, they are children for the most part, so he has to keep them in one category, not the other. And we're also told here that Eri and Jikwi have gone with the other Dothraki, so that's important to remember. They've barely spent a day apart from Daenerys since the start of the series, so this is a gigantic change to their lives, no wonder they've gone off to help find her. So that just leaves him and poor lonely Masande looking out over the city that still stands on the brink. There are still walls that need defending, still war camps outside those walls, and you can see that Barristan's mind is already calculating, always working as only a soldier's does. But then there's this unknowable extra in the pale mare, 
which we devastatingly learn has not only gotten worse out there in the camps, but in the city as well. And that's truly bad news. If it's on both sides of the walls, there's really no way to defend against it. It's going to cause chaos both out there and inside. Okay, Marine has been smart enough to institute a semi-lockdown, enclosing the markets, etc. But his Hizhar hasn't joined in with his beloved fighting pits. Then again, at least the people are wising up to how big of a deal this is. Surely it will only get worse before it gets better though. And that's the kind of thing we can envisage wins being really on brand for, that kind of terror and just awfulness that unfortunately we're all too familiar with at the moment. As Barry looks out over the city and considers all this, we're told that this book hasn't just been hard on Danny. Barry has had to watch his queen go through all these many things, these defeats and injustices, and they've weighed on him almost just as much as her. And now the biggest crime is that they all think that she might have died. And that hurts Barry deep down because he can't bear to consider they might actually be true. He'd rather shun such hurts. He'd rather just push them back. And that appears to be a learned skill that he had from long ago. But it's only going to work for so long because soon such an idea will be spoken out in the open. That new level of daring will be reached by then by both sides as well, Yunkai and Miranese, and Barry is not looking forward to that. So Barristan felt very tired, very old. Where have all the years gone? Of late, whenever he knelt to drink from a still pool, he saw a stranger's face gazing up at him from the water's depths. So dance has taken its toll, and this is an emotional paragraph that is easily relatable. Not only is he having to deal with advanced age and just getting older, again, like I said at the beginning, He's also got all these really important problems he's trying to process at the same time, which have all just got a lot worse with Daenerys flying out the window, so to speak. Now, thinking of his age and how far he's come sends him down memory lane, and we can now appreciate what we actually have on our hands in Barristan as a POV. We touched on it in the beginning, but let's revisit it in a bit more detail now. As I said earlier, not only is he the only one who can join Jamie and Jonkon, I suppose, as the only POVs who are in the royal court in pre-series years and can give us first-hand accounts of Robert and Ares as well, but for Barristan, it obviously goes back much further than that. He can tell us about pre-Jamie stuff as well. He's got this great, great expanded knowledge that really no one else can match anymore. As I said earlier, I'm pretty sure he's our oldest POV. Yes, we do have Crescent, but he doesn't really count, does he? And not only is that knowledge just wide and there's lots of it, but it's specific to what we're interested in because he's really our best access as a POV for Targaryen and royal history. Just think of all we could learn from him. In case in point, just to really back that up, this guy was knighted by Egg, remember, as he remembers here, which is almost too wonderful to consider real, really. We have an actual living connection between the Duncan Egg Tales and our current series. That just seems so far back in the future, but here he is. He can link both of those worlds for us, even if it is a bit mind-blowing. Remember, he earned that knighthood after unhorsing both Prince Duncan and Sir Duncan the Tool in attorney. Now he doesn't think on that part specifically here, but we know it and well again mind blowing is the only way to put it, isn't it? Now that knighting, that was obviously a huge big point in his life, the biggest point really, all the way up to his throwing a sword at Joffrey's feet when his second big change came over him. It means so much to him, even now, half a century later or more, when his present place seems so fake, so unworthy. Yes, there's nothing like the glamour and prestige of beloved Westeros is there. Barry is a homegrown guy, make no mistake. And he tells us as much. How unnatural he feels here. And he feels that even more keenly than Daenerys, you could argue. And he came here for one purpose. Serving his rightful queen and bring her back to where she belongs. And now he falls into complete self-pity when he thinks on how both of those counts are actually going. I came to bring Daenerys home. He had lost her. Just as he had lost her father and her brother. Even Robert. I failed him too. 
Oh, Barry, you are too hard on yourself, I say. Because this hits our heart. Many are down on Barry overall, and fairly so, but I just can't bring myself to do it. I love the guy, so thinking of half of his life as a failure is just such a shame, especially when he's put in so much effort for Daenerys and has genuinely saved her life before. He served her as well as any man can, and he's a massive, massive boost, a massive part of why she's been a success. Now, we can have arguments about whether that's going to continue in the future, but so far, he's put his best foot forward, he's tried to do what's right, even if it took him a few years to get onto it, so let's appreciate him for what he is. He specifies his blame to Daznak's pit now, replaying Danny's final moments on those sands again, as we guessed he would at some point. It's all, oh, ten years ago this, and if I was ten years younger that. He's truly angry at himself for being too slow to even realise what was going on, let alone stop it. Again, he's used to being the very best. He was better than anyone in the land, and now that's not true, and his body doesn't respond in the same way, and it's tough to get used to it for him. And I think, again, that's relatable for many of us. Getting used to that new reality is hard. But it's also unfair, because he's still way above average in both bravery and skill. We've seen it. So it truly hurts to see him shoulder 100% of the blame and begin listening to what these younger morons say about him, that Sir Grandfather stuff. I would still put my money on Barry beating any one of them one-on-one. But that whole thing with Danny and Drogon was so dramatic that it even encroaches on his dreams as he takes us back to the pit to fill in all the details that we missed while Danny and Drogon were having their soul-melding moment. Belwas was so bad he was retching up blood. His dark really, really wanted Drogon dead, which we could have guessed that one, and there was absolute chaos up in the stadium which is hardly surprising when a grown dragon comes down breathing black fire in front of you. Though even in the dreams, Danny remains the focus. Apparently, Drogon got close enough to set her hair on fire. Now, she didn't even feel that in her chapter, which does give life to some debunked theories on Danny being fire-resistant. But still, it makes you think, and it connects you back to the funeral pyre scene in Game of Thrones in terms of theme and important dragon moments. And speaking of those, he saw her bring Drogon to heal. He saw her fly away on Drogon. It was a sight he hated, but at least we confirmed that it did happen as we believed it did. But there are other gaps to fill in that neither we nor Barristan were present for, like the chaos outside the pit, with humans and animals both not knowing how to react to this sudden appearance of a dragon. Apparently, some threw spears and fired crossbows, because of course they did, how very Miranese of them, to work against Danny becoming a dragon again. It's not like they haven't done that before, is it? Yeah, some big symbolism there. Except this time there's an actual dragon to retaliate, and retaliate Drogon did. We learn that over 200 people fell to his flame, to say nothing of the wounded and burnt. I don't think that actually gets mentioned enough, that a not fully grown Drogon wipes out 200 people with apparent ease while disabling a further 800. That just really shows you how powerful this guy is, and there's two more still locked up beneath the pyramid, remember? There's no weapon even close to matching that kind of devastation. So that really has us salivating for further possibilities of what they could do, especially if all three of them are mixed together again. Now we have further questions. Did Danny direct Drogon to do this, or did he just go wild with anger? We'll get some of the answers for that in Danny 10, I believe, but for now, we don't know. For Barry, the most important part is the rumours that she was fell or was hit, but he insists she is not. And why is he so confident? Well, we have another quote for you. So Barristan knew no more of dragons than the tales every child hears, but he knew Targaryens. Daenerys had been riding that dragon, as Aegon had once ridden Balerion of old. Well, that's the best comparison we could hope for, isn't it? And it gets us even more attentive, even more excited. And it's coming from a knowledgeable source as well, so yeah, we take that one to heart. He thinks that maybe she was flying home, as we ourselves asked last time out. And wouldn't that be wonderful, and yet wouldn't it be sad? You can't leave Barry behind, not when that was his whole mission to get you to go home and you go about him. No, we don't like that idea. And that thought is immediately echoed by Masande, who continues her new hobby of stepping out of the shadows, and she brings news with her. Skahaz wants to make contact. Now, Barristan knows that that is risky indeed in terms of Missandei. Just talking with the man, even indirectly, is brash from her and is kind of cunning as well. 
well, if Big Walder can scheme, then why can't Miss Sunday? At least Barry recognises that she full well knows what she's up to. She's a clever girl. We also learn that Skahaz has far from given up the fight. He's been flitting in and out of the pyramid whenever he likes, just as we once guessed. He's basically a more militaristic Varys. One uses secret tunnels, another uses masks. So Barristan had hated the masks from the start, and never more than now. Honest men should never need to hide their faces. Certainly he has brought up the masks many times, and he's now been proven right. Skahaz has gone in here whenever he likes, it is a security risk. Imagine how many more have been doing their secret dealings in plain sight. And a quick aside here, I wonder if all this consternation over masks and hidden faces is a hint that Barristan will one day come up against a faceless man. Hmm. It's possible. I sure hope that doesn't end up being Aya though. Imagine if Barristan Selmy is killed by Aya Stark. That would be, that'd be rubbish. And actually now I think about it, would Aya know who Barristan was? Would she recognise him still from Ned's death? And that's probably too much of an aside to get into right now, but interesting idea. It's Skahaz that Barristan focuses on now, because he knows as well as us that the man burns hot with his passion and will go to any lengths to achieve it, no matter how vile. Historically, he's always been on Danny's side, or he's appeared to be, but we still can't be sure. And the question remains, where will he lean to with the latest news that she's gone? Does he have plans to hinder Hisdar or the Yunkish? All of those are possible, aren't they? The official line is that he's turned down the River Warden job and is holed up in his pyramid in the same way that his is in his. Obviously, that is not the truth, and he's clearly got some plan in mind, or he wouldn't risk the danger of his catching him and either imprisoning him or doing something worse. It's the same risk that Masunde and now Barristan could be vulnerable to if either of them get involved with this latest scheme. It smelled of deceit, of whispers and lies and plots hatched in the dark. All the things he'd hoped to leave behind with the spider and Lord Littlefinger and their ilk mentions of Peter Baelish. I don't like it. It's very hard to resist swearing. So Barry gets to be the fish out of water again now. He didn't like so many aspects of Marine anyway, but now he's actively involving himself in all these things he doesn't like. He just wants to be the shining knight. He just wants to go about his duty and ignore that scheming and that backstabbing. He doesn't want to even admit it exists. He just wants to be Kingsguard and nothing more. So there's a definite element of sticking his head in the sand, which unfortunately will prove all too common with Barristan when we consider his past. He admits that the same things did exist back in King's Landing, the place that he dreams of getting back to and considers better than Marine. I guess he figures that there are just less players back there and it's at least a bit simpler for him, but I really wouldn't be too sure Barristan, especially King's Landing as it currently stands. We reflect now that it is a choice that every Kingsguard in history has had. Stick to the duty and close your eyes or get involved in the game. And he thinks that many have done just that, they've got involved to varying degrees of success. And though there is an element of turning a blind eye, I still think Barristan should be commended for the fact that at his core, his biggest motivation is just to serve. He understands why the lesser men have failed, he understands the human element of it all, but he has never succumbed himself. And that's not a weakness, even if he should have acted on some, slash many occasions, which we'll talk about a bit later. But with his queen gone, he will now have to involve himself, much as he might not like it, ill-prepared as he may be. Because this is going to be far too complicated, even for us who have the benefit of reading multiple POVs. Then again, it's still probably a bit simpler than some of the plots its predecessors have been involved with. One more quick aside, one quick quote for you here. The worst were those who played the Game of Thrones. And I bring that up because ding, 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 that is the last time we hear that phrase in the published books. It's always a little bit fun when it comes up, isn't it? Well, that's the last one. But I'm sure we'll come up again if it wins at some point. For now, Barristan accepts that he will have to debase himself. He's got no royalty to protect right now, so he's got to do something. So he says to Masande, go back, find this owl. And she says, no problem, I'll do that straight away. She definitely is a resourceful little girl, isn't she? She proves her smarts again by asking pretty poignant questions about the Yunkai building extra scorpions to take Drogon down should he ever return, or how hard would he be to track. And Barry does his best to comfort even if those same questions are bothering him as well. 
The other Carls and the Dothraki Sea are mentioned, which is both a good instinct and a good hint for us later. Now Barristan takes another dive into history. You've got to think that George is loving the opportunities he has now with this guy. He's actually probably being quite resistant here, only dropping his history talk in sporadically, when he could just do a whole chapter on it, couldn't he? Barristan is now measuring his life in kings. It began with Egg, Aegon V, who knighted him. Jaehaerys II, his son, joined him to the Kingsguard, that greatest honour of his life after further success on the Stepstones. But then after them came Aerys. In that same cloak, he had stood beside the Iron Throne as madness consumed Jaehaerys' son Aerys. Stood and saw and heard and yet did nothing. And that's the really damning line. That's the one that anti-Barristan people focus in on and you really can't blame them. It's completely true. We've moved from success to failure. His greatest failure and the biggest knock that people have against Barry, like I say. And they are right and Barry was wrong. He stood by and watched a man do many great evils, mostly to poor Rayella, And he did nothing. Now that's an argument we've already had with Jamie in his youth. Protect and obey. That whole going away inside you thing. How these sacred oaths bind you and stop you instead of actually letting you get on with things. How the O's of the Kingsguard counteract with those of being a knight. We've talked about that ad nauseum on and on again, so I won't bother you too much with the argument here, but you get it, don't you? And really, we're focusing on how kings, Targaryens in this case, essentially found a loophole that exempted them and allowed them to do what they wished. And that is what Barry still tells himself, even now, that it was duty, it was what he was supposed to do. But clearly his soul does not agree. Even at this point, decades later, the idea still bothers him because he knows really that he was wrong. He should have stepped in. He should have prevented evil, whatever that made him, whatever that did to his oaths. Jamie eventually found the truth, even if it took the most extreme, and most personal, let's not forget, circumstances to do it, but at least he did it, and he was so much younger. Barristan failed to protect the innocent. He failed the most basic oaths and the test of just being a good person, forget your oaths. And deep down, he does know that. It does weigh on him, even if he can't face up to it exactly. That would all be enough to haunt you. This most costly of mistakes that led to others suffering pain, but for Barristan, there is this whole other side to it in Duskendale. It's the armor exercise in pointless hindsight, if we're honest. Through again doing what he was supposed to do, and being absurdly awesome at the same time, let's not ignore that, Barristan plunged half of Westeros into darkness by doing something great. He saved a man's life, his king's life, and, well, look what happened as a result. Obviously, there can be no logical blame there. Barristan wasn't to know, no one was to know. But the guilt is just as strong given all that happened after. He even says, Duskendale had been his finest hour yet the memory tasted bitter on his tongue. This is a haunted man. Again, it all hurts deep. He's never done anything for himself. He's never cheated or plotted, and yet he is still pained, as he should be for the failure to act on Ares once he knew what he was, but Duskendale specifically should hold no pain for him. And those are not the only points, because Barristan now considers the eventual knock-on effects from that saving. There was Robert's Rebellion and the innocents who died because of it in Elia, Aegon, and Rhaenys. Even Rhaegar, he thinks, which is the eternal question mark that Barry could have given the world if he'd acted a bit differently. And then he thinks on his kings, Jaehaerys, Aerys, Robert, all of them dead on his watch, all of them failures that will never leave him. For some, it's understandable. For the kings, less so. Firstly, Jaehaerys died of illness. It's not really Barry's fault, is it? Aerys died, and the world markedly improved. If anything, his guilt should be that he didn't beat Jaime to it. Plus, he was sent away, so he never had the opportunity to save his king, if that's really what he wants to be bothered about here. Robert is slightly more debatable, both in what Barristan could have done and how much Robert deserved it, but in Barry's mind, it's just the bottom line. Dead royals means failure for him. Now, I can't agree with that assessment. If he extended his barriers of looking at it, he'd either feel a whole lot better, or he'd add another layer of pain. The problem here is he's looking at the wrong thing, or he's at least given the majority of his focus to the wrong thing. Dead kings don't matter. It was that failure of your most basic oaths. That's the real crime here, Barristan. 
Now it's worth noting, I know it went by quite quickly there, but he did think of Aegon, as in Rhaegar's Aegon, the one we're talking about in this book, because we obviously expect they will eventually hear the tale that he lives and is now in Westeros, and that is probably, we're assuming, going to flip his whole world upside down and put him in a much tougher moral quandary than is provided here. We think this is bad, wait until he hears all about that. And many expect that Barry, still guided by these troublesome oaths, will even eventually betray Daenerys on the idea that Rhaegar's son should come before his sister and that Aegon is the one he should technically be serving, which is tough to deal with for us who do actually like him. It's incredibly hard to imagine him actually going through with that, but we can see why or how he would. It would be one of the ultimate heart conflict moments and a major shifting point in the series, both in plot and in Barry's soul. I can barely even imagine the pain that he'd go through to come to such a decision, whether it's a case of just leaving Daenerys or whether he actually has to do a brown ben plum and betray her before he goes over to the other side. Maybe circumstances of the future do push him towards it. Maybe a wilder Daenerys comes back. That fits in keeping with the John mirror, doesn't it? Or maybe Barry thinks that this will help everyone out, but probably not. There will probably be major consequences, and maybe he'll find out one day that he made a massive mistake in either that Aegon is fake or just that Daenerys is the much better person that he should be morally following. Again, we can imagine a lot of pain if we ever do get to that point. In terms of structure and plot, we would guess that that betrayal would, would be tied to something pretty good in terms of consequences. Maybe that gets Aegon a dragon, or well, there's endless possibilities. We don't know enough about wins to guess, really, but you'd think that is going to matter, Barristan switching sides. And I really also can't bear to think how this betrayal would destroy Daenerys. Absolutely. It would honestly be one of the heartbreakers of the series for her to realise that. And really it'd be an end to her trusting anyone at all. Which is just what you need for the end of the series and the ultimate war when she's really going to need to trust some people. Maybe a Jon Snow, maybe whoever else. Oh no, I don't even want to imagine it. That would just be too rough if she ever does have to go through that. For now though, Barry is thinking of those failures as a motivational tool. As far as he knows, there is one Targaryen left and he will not give up on her. She is not dead. I will not believe it. After all that pain and guilt, Barry needs a refresher and he gets it by spending an afternoon with his true love, the teaching and training of his knights, both in skill and in chivalry, which is just as important. As mentioned earlier, this is to be his legacy. And we see through this passage that Barristan's happiest life would have just been as a teacher. He genuinely loves it, both the grind and the overall goal of giving Daenerys more knights. And it actually turns out that these boys are another byproduct of Daenerys making good rules as well, despite what his star might say. She is loved for saving these boys from the pits and will reap the rewards one day, we hope. And while we do hope that, we're also thinking, well, I hope we don't have to stick around long enough to find out, but hey, maybe they can come to Westeros with her. I don't think we really want to see them come to maturation, but still, it would be cool. After his nice afternoon and supper, it's time for Barry to head to this meeting, and he's well aware of the maze of possibilities he's in now. This is Marine. Any double cross is likely, including this all being a fake trap to paint him as a criminal and get him arrested. Maybe there was no Skahaz at all and Sunday was fooled. Maybe they mean to trap him in the same net as Skahaz and call it treason. He just doesn't know. Infuriatingly, he thinks on how his oaths still bind him. We really wish he'd just kind of give up that talk. If Skahaz comes and talks treason, then Barry is on a bound to arrest him, no matter how much he might agree with his points, because technically, he says, he is in service to his star now, even if he doesn't want to be. He's not a king, but he's the closest thing remaining, and is royal through marriage, so Barristan believes his duty is tied to him. Again, that is annoying for us. He's just focused on how the rigidity of his oaths led to costly mistakes in his past, now he's preparing to repeat the experience. He hasn't learned that the world is not so black and white, and he needs to actually think about what he's doing. 
then again, I suppose the habit of a lifetime is hard to break. At least he's now considering those questions. He's looking for a technicality that would allow him some leeway. He thinks over the rules of the Kingsguard, first kind of missing the irony that he thinks on the bad rules of keeping secrets and keeping quiet as well. That's all very well and good until you get an Ares, isn't it? Technically, you have to give an explicit order to extend the Kingsguard duties to members of kin, like Hisdar, and Danny never did. So there is space to move against Hisdar, even if Barry doesn't like it. He's found a loophole, but the more striking irony is that these are clamps he's putting on himself. They aren't in Westeros. Danny is Queen of Marine so far, not King's Landing. So Barristan Selmy is not part of the institution of the Kingsguard as he knows it. He's a one-man institution of Danny's creation that can be whatever it is. This is all just an imitation to make it seem more real, which we get, that's part of being a queen, but he's playing by rules technically he's made up. He could change any of them if he wanted, if he really wanted to, but again, that is not his style. The world was simpler when I had a Lord Commander to decide such matters, Selmy reflected. Now I am the Lord Commander, and it is hard to know which path is right. You'd think he'd be used to being Lord Commander by now, wouldn't you? It has been a few decades. But it puts us in mind of Jamie having the same issue. Barry never really wanted to lead, he just wanted to serve. He never wanted the decision-making powers, and now he has an avalanche of them all of a sudden. And for now, he doesn't land on an actual answer, so we're left wondering what he will do. He does his final rounds, including a trip past the dragons, and I have to wonder if they heard Drogon's return and they want to get out even more than usual. Either way, we keep mentioning them, we keep putting them in the text here just to set up Quentin's eventual storyline. Barrison heads to the stables now and out of the shadows comes Skahaz, wearing a different mask than usual and proving Barrison's overall point about the mask being completely unsafe. He was right. Skahaz claims his being dismissed has done nothing to diminish his powers. The brazen beasts still belong to him and he in turn controls Margaz. He says he's still a major player, he's a danger to others, and is in no danger himself. Now, do we believe him about these claims? Well, who can say really, but he certainly talks the talk, and he has the confidence to back it up. This is a proactive man, obviously, doing this, being here with Barristan. He's been doing this, that, and the other to accomplish his goals, while Barry has been wandering around, internally arguing about his moral rules. Skahaz has just got on with it. Case in point, Barry is not even sure what he's talking about when Skahaz says he's caught the poisoner. Barry has barely even considered such a person exists, so the shave pate seems more than a few steps ahead. We personally might not have even got that far in our thinking, but Skahaz is pretty confident in the story. This was an assassination attempt by the harpy, meant to kill Daenerys, and it ended up getting Belbas instead. If Skahaz is to be believed, there is actual evidence for that in the court confectioner, but then that's the game, isn't it? Is it actual evidence? Is it something he's formed up, something he's put together? If it is true, then we have to feel for this confectioner that apparently had his daughter stolen, ransomed, and then brutally killed for a failure that obviously wasn't his fault. And in fairness, this particular style of cruelty does seem exactly on brand for what the harpies used to get up to at the beginning of the book, so we do have to wonder. But then the same old questions arise. Are the harpies a separate entity, or did this also involve Hisdar? He was pushing the locusts, we always have to remember. But maybe that was just coincidence. There's just so many questions that we really can't answer, we just can really just guess at. Barristan questions the motives. That was all supposed to have stopped, remember? That was his Dar's deal, and it evidently worked. The peace was formed. Then again, that invites more questions, because did they stop because his Dar controlled them, and therefore was one? Or did he betray them as well, and this was actually aimed at him, or him and Daenerys? Again, questions, questions, questions. Skahaz provides some more answers, though, when he announces that the peace that is the hope of so many that Danny gave up so much for is broken. And he does validate it originally, which is nice because we've always had our doubts. He says, no, okay, it was real for a time, but not now. The threat of the dragons and the Unsullied was genuine for the Yunkai. They were afraid of them, so they made this peace. As much as they might have been dicks about it and they still want to dampen down Danny and treat her as a figurehead like we've discussed in the past, they did want the peace. They didn't want to incur those threats and they didn't really want the cost of war either. 
Not that any of that means that Scar has supported the idea still. We remember from his thoughts when that used to come up, with his opinions about Astapor, etc. But still, he does admit that was legitimate. And he goes on to explain how conditions really were perfect for that piece. Yurk has the supreme commander. He respected the danger of the dragons. Daenerys was willing to see the overall piece as a good thing and to accept it. But as we guessed, the pit, what happened down there, blew it all to pieces. Because Daenerys is gone. One of the dragons, one of those threats, has gone with her supposedly the other two are nowhere near as dangerous without her that might be a line of thinking and perhaps just as importantly we learn that Yurkaz is dead we're going to come back to that point in Tyrion's chapter as well that's really important and he seems to have been the only Yunkish commander with a head on his shoulders now you'll remember way back when we went through the absolute lunacy of the shared command of the Yunkish that they're now going to employ after Yurkaz's death that will come up in following multiple chapters this week and next week. And we all had a good laugh at it then. We get to have an even bigger laugh at it now because obviously it makes absolutely zero sense logistically, but they're all also morons ideologically. So it's a real mix there to deal with. The people who have survived Yurkaz, or the majority of them, they want war now. Bloodbeard, he wants war now. He wants chaos. All of them didn't really realize how good they had it and their ambition is overtaking them or their bloodthirst is overtaking them now they're going to be pushing pushing war again it's not all of them we'll come back to that in Tyrion's chapter as well but the majority the louder ones they're all fools and isn't that just a tale as old as time that part that you have someone with a bit of wisdom a bit of control on top he's doing the clever thing and ruling things with a steady hand but then he dies or is removed whatever and the idiots come rushing in and here we are. And Skahaz doesn't stop there with the big news, as he reminds us of something that we actually learned about ages ago. Volantis is coming. Here's the quote. Volantis? Selmy's sword hand tingled. We made a piece of Yunkai, not with Volantis. So you can see, he knows the weight of these words. This is a big deal, a huge deal, because this is a true war. A gigantic force is sailing here that the Yunkish are now going to try and team up with. And worse, the great masters of Marine, at least some of them, will team up with them too. They'll cut a deal to save themselves. They'll open the door for the Valentines. And then they'll stand back and watch as utter carnage takes Marine, sweeps through the city, and the legacy of Daenerys Targaryen will be finally just swept away. Everyone will be enslaved, including Barry and all of Danny's ilk. All those who were slaves before she arrived, all those who were free when they arrived here with her, they're all going to be put in chains and it's just the very worst kind of defeat imaginable, especially for Daenerys' side. And Barry can barely believe what he's hearing. The peace sucked, fine, and war with Yunkai was always on the table, but this pincer movement trapping them between the sea with the Volantines and Yunkai's siege on the other end, doubling up the incompetent Yunkish with the much more potent, much more capable and dangerous enemy of Volantis now coming from them too. Well, like I say, we knew it was coming or we pretty much had it confirmed, but it seemed so long ago and we never dreamt of the circumstances that would happen at this particular point in time marine is in trouble even more than usual and it does look like it's up to barry to save it so the crescendo has gone nowhere all that build up in danny's chapters and it turns out it's still here that build up and the tension it still lives and even though we might be starting to suspect that we won't see the fallout of this in dance those pages are getting thin we can still see how this is going to be an era defining a series altering moment and we can compare it once again to what we've seen for the build up of winterfell as well even if that lacks the same emotional resonance winterfell means more to us but we can still see how this is a big deal plus there's the time limit which is always sure to produce drama the volunteers are coming this is going to happen any day we need to act fast and barry falls back on the habit of a lifetime by immediately deferring to a royal in his mind saying hey we need someone to decide what to do here so scahas has to get across the urgency of the moment 
with this quote. Skahaz grasped his forearm. His fingers felt like iron. We cannot wait for her. Skahaz, he's certainly not going to be doing any waiting. Like we said, he's Mr. Proactive. He's already sought out allies in the Freedmen. He's already decided that the only way to save themselves is to break the Unkai first, before this pincer can be implemented. And for that, he needs Barristan, because he also needs the Unsullied. Grey Worm will listen to you. Speak to him. To what end? He is speaking treason, Barristan thought conspiracy life said Skahaz. the shave pate's eyes were black pools behind the brazen cat mask we can see how indoctrinated barry is in a way even with this news his mind is still hitting on the rules and his oaths first Skahaz is the more realistic the one actually willing to do something as he outlays his plan break the siege do the unexpected finally take advantage of the yunkish gluttony and arrogance and self-assurance that we're well used to have seen by now Skahaz has spies out there because of course he does and we've seen it ourselves via Danny and Tyrion and Quentin we know that the Yunkish are really awful people so this really amps us up that we could finally be going to war with them we can really get behind that idea these guys have been our bane for more than a whole book now we can stretch this back to Storm they've been so awful to Daenerys in every way they're awful in general they are slavers after all and we've had to wait around and just take it from them all this time now Skahaz is giving the option of actually doing something, again, proactive is the word, of actually giving what they deserve for so many reasons and of giving us an actual victory, even if we ignore that this is genuinely needed before Volantis arrives or it's all for nothing. So George surely knows how to fire us up, especially at this late stage. And we're probably just genuinely interested in this type of warfare again. Perhaps it's all the build-up of Winterfell getting us into this little stupor, but there's so many barriers up there to battle actually being waged, so this seems like something closer to the epic Blackwater, and it really gets our blood up. We really want to actually see something now. And again, we know the truth of Skahaz's proposal. We know the Yunkish are becoming more and more sick every day. Tyrion saw sprawling chaos in their camps. We're going to see it again in a moment. We've seen how useless the Yunkish commanders are already, and this is before their stupid rotating leader idea has actually been given to us the cell swords of course are always ready to turn on one another so we know this is possible they say it here break the siege kill the slaver lords turn their cell swords it's thrilling it's persuasive but is that the point is has trying to manipulate barristan or do something for his own ends i tend to believe him but we can never be too sure can we besides even if we do buy into his motivations and his tactics which again i would like to we know everything is not so black and white Tyrion and Penny are over on the other side. Also, Sir Jorah, although I care a lot less about him. What will happen to them in this scenario if they go through with it? There's so many questions, as always, but we really get the sense of what the post Danny Marine arc will be. This is going to be the focus now, this actual battle. The one that will take the remainder of this book, and probably a pretty decent chunk of the next as well. I'll say it again, this is going to define this whole area of the world, and what happens going forward. It turns out, as hot-blooded as he is, Skahaz is a pretty patient guy, because the reality of the situation still isn't sinking in for Barristan, who instead insists on playing Johnny Law. They are still under the agreement of a peace, he says, an agreement that Daenerys signed to, although that is really ignoring the extreme context in which she signed up for it. If they break it without orders, it is technically treason, is what he claims. So Barry, on some level, refuses to learn a lesson about oaths and restrictions and doing the right thing. You can see why some of the fandom gets so annoyed with him. Still, Skahaz, as well as being patient, is skilled at getting through to him in terms of what Danny would want, whether she be alive or dead, and that is protection for the children. And he's dead on. 
We know it, Barry knows it. That was always her ultimate goal, bar none. And it seems like Skahaz is the only way to ensure their protection. But still, Barry dances, he tip-taps, he can't quite make the leap. Battle and swords and deaths, he's used to that, but this is a bigger chasm than Barris and Selmy has ever leapt before. So he tries to build up some more excuses. This time it is his dar, for this is a blatant move against him. So now he's just trying to invent his own barriers, apparently. Skahaz makes his argument that his dar is an enemy of the queen, that he played at least some part in her attempted murder with the locusts. And to be honest, he repeats the take that I presented during this project of his dad doing all this to get exactly what he wanted. Where is your proof, Barristan asked. The crown he wears is proof enough. The throne he sits. Open your eyes, old man. This is all he needed from Daenerys, all he ever wanted. Once he had it, why share the rule? So you can see, that is what we've been saying, isn't it? And perhaps this is me absolutely falling for George's trick here. Maybe he's making it so obviously believable so you can pull the carpet out from under us later on. We know he's capable of such. But I've certainly fallen for it, I put my hand up, and I absolutely believe whatever Hisdar's level of involvement, Skahaz is at least on the money in terms of his motivation. Whether Hisdar has had to change lanes now with what's happened, we'll see some of those questions in the next Barristan chapter. We know that that part is at least true. He wanted this throne, and he got this throne. Maybe he wanted Danny kept in a corner. Maybe he wanted her dead. But either way, he is not her friend. That's the bottom line. And that does all make sense to Barristan. He was there. He heard his dad push the locusts, but refused to eat him himself. So it all fits together too nicely. It's almost too good to be true. And this probably persuades me that maybe it is likely that his dad isn't involved in the locusts. But that's besides the point. I still think he was against Danny either way, whatever the details, and he still needs to be taken down for this current problem of Atlantis and for the betterment of Marine in general, and especially of Danny's cause. And it's entirely possible that Skahaz is aware of that. Maybe he's pointing the finger at his dad because he knows that that's the way to manipulate Barry. It's perfectly possible. There's even ideas out there I've seen before that Skahaz is the poisoner and wanted to use this as an excuse to take down his dar after the fact and do it as a framing job. That's a lot less likely, but I can see their way of thinking. I don't agree personally, but still. I definitely think Skahaz is about the end point and maybe Barristan is being manipulated. But if he is, then that's because it needs to happen. Still, I feel for Barristan here. He's tired, he's in pain over Daenerys, and he's confused. He doesn't know what is best, what is right. What would Danny want? What would keep her children safe? What is legal? What is honourable? He's out of his depths, clearly, and it's all a bit too much, and he doesn't know what to do. So flawed as he is, my heart does go out to him, as he struggles to make a choice, even as he pushes through, step by step. Small, slow steps, but steps. He will question this confectioner, he decides, to learn what he can on his own. And that seems right, to do it himself, to get some self-collected evidence. That might give him the morality to act upon it if he's actually done it himself instead of just believing Skahaz blindly. And if it does prove true, if that makes him feel better and good enough to move against Hisdar, he still demands that there be a level of honour about the thing. Hisdar won't be butchered, he says. He will be a prisoner until proven guilty. When Skahaz insists again that he is the harpy and the source of much pain for all the city and for Daenerys too, Barristan sticks to his guns and you do have to admire him for it. He won't act on anything less than evidence, cold hard evidence. And until then, Hisdar is Danny's consort and will be treated as such. And privately, he thinks if Hisdar is guilty, if that is proven, then Barristan himself will deliver the sentence in the form of justice in the form of a clean death, not the enjoyable hobby that the Miranese make out of it. So this whole page, especially the ending and the talk of a just killing, gives gigantic Eddard Stark vibes, doesn't it? Which some might see as an insult given how that all went for Ned, his investigation back in King's Landing, but it's really not. These are good men in bad times doing the best that they can, and that's all we can ever ask of anyone, that's all we can hope for. It's tough because he's pushed through some painful barriers, but Barristan has decided. He says this, for the children, he told himself, for the city, for my queen. I will talk to Grey Worm, he said. It's very, very rousing, both for Barristan and for the overall plot. I'm 
definitely sold. I want to know more. I want to see Barry do what's right for others and not what's right for his owes once. And yes, there is every chance he's being manipulated or that he might be betrayed. Because as much as I trust Skahaz's motivations and his tactics, we still can't quite trust his word. Either way, what it is, is great setup for what's coming. That was the real point of this chapter. Like I say, to point us in the direction of what post Danny Marine is going to look like, and what we're going to be focusing on via Barristan and probably Quentin and probably Tyrion as well. Now Quentin, he might deviate a little bit because he's not that long left, unfortunately. But Tyrion and Barristan, definitely, and soon Victorian, who's coming up in a second, that's going to be the focus of what's going on, both here at the end of Dance and of Winds. So that's a really great introduction to Barristan, who we're going to be seeing a lot of, like I mentioned, I haven't looked, but it's probably basically every week now. We're going to have a Barry chapter, and I, for one, really enjoy them. And I do actually probably like the Miranese not, the Miranese plot as well, more now after Daenerys, because it's just so sad when Daenerys is around, and I hate to see that. Now things are happening after all the staleness that we've had in this book. Things are going to move very quickly. They're going to move towards battle, which is what we all kind of really want to read. So I look forward to that and to this arc. So there, we're going to leave our brand new POV of the day. We're going to head to a POV new for the book, that, but one that we have had before. We'll move on to our third chapter now. It is Victorian 1 slash The Iron Suitor. I'll be honest, from the get-go here, I've reached that point in the recording of this podcast where I look over, I look at how much time has already gone on to it, and I think, wow, that's a lot to edit. So you'll forgive me if we don't do too much preamble about Victorian, but... To be honest, I didn't have that much down anyway because eh, we're just back with this guy, aren't we? You might remember from Feast, I'm not the biggest Victorian fan. I like him more than Aaron, that's true, but I don't think any of us really like him, do we? Now, in terms of separating whether we like a character from how good their chapters are, that's a fair discussion, but I'm not that big of a fan of his chapters either. So there's not a whole bunch to say, but there is some things to say, and there are good bits that are very exciting, interesting bits in this chapter, so don't let me sell it short. This is still worthwhile, totally. All I'm saying is, not quite as much as the other new POVs we've got today, the chapters we've got today. Victorian is always just at the back of the line of interest for me or motivation he's just not that cool is he and he's horrible they all are now if you're interested this of course brings up the Greyjoy total to three for this book Theon, Asher and Victorian that puts them on equal footing with the Starks because we have Aya, Bran and I'm counting John don't care what you say so that's three each for those families in this book which is good because in Feast the Greyjoys took the lead obviously for Starks there was only Aya and Sansa whereas the Greyjoys snuck in with three Asher, Victorian and Aeron so at least we're back on equal footing in that sense. Now, like the other two, this is a new POV for the book. And I think I've probably said enough about how that's weird for this timing in the book and this stage. But still, this is quite specific because Victorian has the longest gap since we last saw him. It's a total of 85 chapters since we last had Victorian the Reaver, which was really about halfway through Feast. That was the 29th chapter of Feast. So this is a long long time since we've been with this character and i haven't checked but i'm pretty confident in saying in fact yes it's definite that this is the longest gap between a feast character being reintroduced to dance obviously oh no wait hang on maybe i've got that wrong because area of hotel is obviously right at the beginning of feast then we don't have him again for all that book he turns off about halfway through this book then we do quick maths Okay, I've not looked at that too closely, but I think Victorion just squeaks by. I think he's like two chapters more in terms of his gap. So we're close there, but we get the point. 
And if you remember that Reaver chapter that was back on the Shield Islands with Euron's conquest and all the evil he's doing down there, that was Victorian's duel with Talbot Seri, which we're going to reference lots today. And that was when he was given this new mission of coming over to Marine to getting Daenerys. And again, it just seems ages ago, doesn't it? So we're going to have a lot to catch up on today. Probably more so than the two chapters we've already had, because we know Cersei incredibly well and we've seen her more recently. We spent lots of time with Barristan and we obviously know the situation of Marine very well via Danny. But this is only the third Victorian chapter overall and as I say it's been a long long time since we had his last so we barely know the guy really he's on a brand new plot path anyway that we're only just informed of via Euron we had like two pages of getting to the terms of that and then Victorian has gone from the plot so this is really all new to us so this is pretty important as a as a chapter for just getting us back in that mindset what is strange is it's just weird having an ironborn here of all places involved in this plot this far east with Marie now we're not quite there yet Yet, but as we've mentioned before, Victorian is dance focused. This isn't really a continuation of a feast plot. This is dance only. This is all everything to do with Marine and Daenerys. It's just as weird to see them involved because they're from the other side of the world to us. This is cross-sectional as it gets, to be honest. We've really travelled all the way from the furthest possible western point, from those horrible cloudy aisles and now we're here in the pretty much opposite climate yes we've seen Theon and Asher adapt to the northern storylines but the north is that much closer to the Iron Isles so that's not that weird but going from the Iron Isles to the Slaver's Bay that's like I said it's the complete opposite it's like throwing Skahaz into the Winterfell plot or something like that it just doesn't sit quite right with us it's just weird and on top of that let's consider what we're adding in here what we really need for this extremely complicated melting pot of Marine and Danny and everything else we just discussed in Barristan is it really the Ironborn Victorian. That's what we're looking for here. This is another factor, one that's completely unknowable to us, really. It's unexpected and dangerous. No one knows that he's coming in Marine. No one's going to know how to react or really how these people work. Tyrion's never really had to in interact with the Ironborn that much. Barristan's going to know about them, sure, but again, that's pretty new to him. So this, we've just got no idea how this is all going to work. And that's before we actually get to what Victorian's aim and goal is here, to come and take Daenerys. Now, luckily, this chapter is coming to us after she's just flown off, so we're thinking, ha ha ha, sorry, Victorian, that's not going to happen, but he's obviously going to have some effect. George just hasn't written him in here to come, say, oh, she's not here, and then turn around again. Something important is going to happen. She might well be back soon enough, and maybe he will meet her. So yeah, there is some tension that he's going to come and ruin everything and take her away, but we probably doubt it's going to be that simple. And then is he going to team up with her in some way? Or is there going to be some kind of deal or pledge? We don't know. That's the issue. So we're pretty keen to find out, but just considering that motivation and Victorian's uh, intellect, let's call it, uh, is going to make for something big going down, we figure. So it's just throwing more fire on the tinderbox, isn't it, really? Let's get started, I think. Let's just dive in right here with this iron suit. Just to remind us of what that mission is. We could talk a bit about him only having a two-chapter arc here and what it means for him being placed in dance and whether we actually need it in dance. I think that's a valid question. That might pop up as we go here. But I think for now, I've probably done more preamble than I promised already, so let's just get into the text. And the first line tells us that the ship Grief has appeared alone at daybreak. And doesn't that just make sense? Grief has appeared. Yes, it certainly has. And its name is Victorian. That's what I think. And oh look, Victorian happens to be angry and frustrated at the beginning here. So the plot might have changed, but the POV 
It certainly hasn't. And now on this first page, George doesn't waste time in giving us the update on how this grand voyage is going. Because like we say, there's obviously this long old time gap to fill in rather quickly here to explain the current circumstances. And we need a bit of a base to work with. We need to know what's going on. And those details that we get at the beginning here, they go a long way to explaining why Victorian is currently frustrated. The Grand Iron Fleet, the pride of Victoria's life that is luckily kept in charge of when Euron came into power, set off with 93 ships in a gigantic force of war-ready vessels crewed by the most capable sailors that we know of. Obviously, like I said before, they are going to be of a huge effect somewhere along the line, you would think. It's a bit like the giants that we mentioned last week. It'd be silly to gather so much potential and then never use it. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's all about picking up Daenerys or kidnapping her or whatever. We don't know what's going to happen in Marine, but at some point down the road, this fleet has to be used by George, doesn't it? Maybe that's on the way home. Maybe that's back in Westeros. We've talked a lot before about the fact that there's many, many fleets still going around in various places around Westeros and in the Narrow Sea and stuff like that. And you'd think at some point, they're going to come into contact with each other and there's probably going to be a bit of argy-bargy. I think I've brought up here, if not here, then on Twitter, that there's the possibility of a huge naval battle happening somewhere. It might have even been the Radio Westeros Discord now that I think about it. I don't think that George can resist not having one of those in this series somewhere. I think he'd just really enjoy writing that. Now we got a little bit of it on the Blackwater and in Victorian's previous chapter, but I think there could just be a grand, almost all-at-sea naval battle and the Iron Fleet would be pretty lined up for that, wouldn't it? So maybe at some point we're going to see that. These are powerful ships and powerful sailors and they're always hungry for a fight anyway, so they're not going to be kept back. Whether it's in Slaver's Bay, whether it's in Westeros, we know we're being told about something key here. Like I said before, there's got to be a reason for Victorian and this fleet being included here at this late stage. And I will say it is being brought up right after we've just been told about the Volantine fleet in Barristan's chapter. So do your own calculations there. As well as some great chapter sequencing for welcoming Victorian to the other page of the map we've really gone across the book now, this is also a huge factor that Barristan and Skahaz aren't thinking about or are aware of. So our minds are worrying, even in these early pages, about how the Iron Fleet could mess with future plans and battles and just what the hell is going to happen in Marine. But to keep us back in the here and now, even though Marine is, is typically way more interesting than Victorian, in my opinion, we've got to ask what happened. Because the focus of Victorian's early frustration is the fact that he currently only has 54 ships. Well, hang on, it was 93 you left out with. So what's happened? Why have you only got basically half of your fleet? Especially when he's already captured some merchant vessels to nearly get those original numbers to triple digits. And I will say, just keep that aspect of it in mind because this stealing and recruitment of ships, that's going to be a large part of the future voyage and it's critical for what happens when they actually reach Marine if the wind's previews are to be believed. It's not going to come up too much in this chapter, but it will in the next and it will in the future, so keep that in mind. This noble lady that they've captured here, she's going to be making a reappearance, as will others, so, so again, just remember that. Before we get answers, though, we first have confirmation of where Victorian actually is in the world, and it's the Isle of Cedars. So allow me here to give you a bit of a reminder of where that is. It basically sits at the doorway to Slaver's Bay. It's kind of halfway between the ruins of Valeria, and it's across from the equal kind of height of Astapor. It's sat right there in the waterway that you pass through between those two and into Slaver's Bay. So considering how far they've come, the remnants of the Iron Fleet are actually pretty close to the goal. We're not a million miles away from Marine here. So that raises the tension, obviously, because how soon can we expect them to be relevant 
to the marine plot line pretty damn soon it seems like and that also makes us wonder where they are in relativity to the volantines are they behind them are they in front we don't know quite yet so the isle of cedars then is very very much on the other side of the world as victorian says here he really is in completely different waters in a completely different type of world to what they are used to and more than a little bit out of their depths ironborn they like to go raiding far across the world but very few go this far and thinking about it, this is probably one of the longest single journeys in the series, I would think. Sailing right from the Shield Islands, at least, all the way to Salavas Bay. And there might be some good contenders I'm not thinking of, but it's at least up there, isn't it? And with such an incredible journey, the logistics of actually sailing it have to be considered. Because they don't get to all just come across the ocean together in one large group, as cool as that would look. Victorian might be an idiot about many, many things, but he does understand sailing. So he tells us here that he split the overall Iron Fleet into three separate fleets to give them a better chance of someone avoiding the storms and they get to split the spoils between themselves better and they might also get to hide their progress you notice three fleets less than you'd notice one massive one and he's going to dive into this theory a bit more later but for now he offers the mathematical breakdown of what the iron fleet looks like today and actually before we get into that it is weird that they never bumped into the golden company and john Connington, isn't it obviously the timeline is just completely up in the air we really don't know what's going on there but at one point they were kind of heading towards each other so they must have been fairly close to seeing each other maybe we'll find out that some ships did interact maybe we won't anyway this mathematical breakdown let's, let's get down to it victorian brought 22 of his ships to the southern tip of the isle of cedars that's where we are now and we can assume that he probably had the most out of that original 93 and he kept the strongest ships for himself i mean he is the, the admiral isn't he if victorian was truly loyal and had really bought into euron's mission then it would only matter that someone gets to marine to get Daenerys but seeing as he is planning on taking her for himself I'm going to assume you'll remember that part of the plot he kind of needs to be the one to get there so he's going to give himself the best leg up and actually let's give a side note here what does the crew actually think they're doing because I don't think this gets addressed in this chapter maybe it does later but have they been told Euron's version where they're going to fetch his bride or did Vectarian leave that bit out and say oh actually we're going to get her for me has he deceived his crew or do they know they are deceiving their king so they're going against Euron, who hasn't exactly shown himself to be merciful so far in his reign. Now, that's a really important question, I think. I, I'm pretty sure it doesn't come up in this book. Maybe it will at wins. You'd think it would do at some point. Anyway, back to the ships. 14 have arrived with Ralph Lalimpa's group, and 9, they were the last to arrive from Red Ralph's group, with Red Ralph himself actually missing. So there are problems already here at the beginning in terms of missing ships and missing captains, and not knowing whether they're going to turn up in an hour, maybe. We've just seen one turn up here at the beginning, or maybe they'll come next week or in a month or maybe they've already gone beneath the waves on the way these three groups have taken another nine prizes another nine ships to get them to this 54 total but those ones are no warships they're just merchant vessels in various states of disrepair so important as they'll turn out to be in those wins previews overall it's a massive loss right now right here for victorian their strength has nearly been halved that's pretty incredible and that's obviously why he's so vexed at having what he perceives to be the most powerful fleet in the world now only at half strength and let's bear in mind he's only got a half idea or that's what we think right now of how much he's actually going to need all those ships in terms of warfare and what's coming to marine so we're told now that they have been waiting for stragglers for ages now and no one has appeared for three days straight victorian is obviously not a patient man at the best of times now he has this constant decision to make of when to cut his losses is it better to get to marine fast or is it better to get there strong it's a tough choice in all fairness to him in the meantime, we get an update on which specific ships have come in. The return rate has been slowing down, but Viterran obviously thought or hoped that they would get more. This is the biggest deal of his life, let's not forget. He doesn't want to go forward with anything less than he absolutely has to. 
and some of those ships that are here, even some from his own group, are half damaged as well. So there's even more annoyance and second guessing, and oh, poor Victorian, he just can't catch a break, can he? No, sorry, George, we're not going to feel bad for this guy. To no one's surprise, it turns out that storms are the reason for the fleet being so scattered and slowed perhaps even sunk like we said. We've talked about storms a bunch now. They're all over the place in Westeros and the Narrow Sea. John's going to talk about a really big one next week up in, um, up in Hardhome. We know how important that is. And you would probably figure that the ones down here on an ocean this size are even more powerful. The one that gets described here by Victorian is definitely painted differently, possibly because it's come straight out of Valeria. And that incites thoughts of curses and evils coming their way, which is a concept that's going to pop up a lot through this chapter. At the same time, we have to wonder if the storm that nearly took down Tyrion was also one of Valerian origin, given its sheer power and his having passed that way recently too. But that one didn't look like the one that's described here. These ones of red winds that smelled of ash and brimstone, and just how, again, how powerful it was. But what's funny about that is, of all the places Victorian doesn't want to see a storm from, it's Valeria because that reminds him way too much of Euron's supposed journey and those constant comparisons that we get between the two brothers. Now, Ralph Olympa, he's the one that suggests curses, both of Valeria and of Euron, who maybe he's just sent them out here to die. Now, I'm pretty sure that Euron wouldn't give up a hundred ships and the whole Iron Fleet to do that. I think if he wanted Victorian dead, he'd probably be a bit more direct about it. We were there for his command after all, and we probably believe him to some degree, but Victorian thinks the voyage is likely simply cursed just by association with a creature such as Euron. Maybe that's true. He does seem pretty messed and storms literally smashing ships to smithereens like toy boats is what convinces him of such he gives us that description as well and let's consider this is a veteran sailor he's probably seen his fair share of storms so for one to intimidate him such via this strength probably points to pretty powerful storms in all fairness whether they are euron cursed or not that's left up for debate then again he does just like blaming euron for everything in existence so we can't take his word too strongly here besides he's busy reminding us of what type of guy he is when he slaps ralph the limper for having the exact same thought he's just had about curses. So Victorian, he's always a hypocrite, isn't he? There are further sources of frustration also, because, well, of course there are. Most critically for this chapter, it's the hand injury sustained in taking the Shield Islands that still plagues him, I'm sure you'll remember that. Coming to the other side of the world apparently hasn't healed it yet, which is curious. Right now, we just get it as a little tease, with our thinking that it probably should have healed right now, but it will receive much more of the spotlight later on. Injuries are bad and annoying, to be fair, and we'll find out specifically how bad this one is soon enough. But Victorian is still immature slash foolish enough to let it influence his temper and his actions as he blames it for his striking of Ralph Lenemper. Oh, my hand hurt. I always wound up. That's why I hit him. Nah, that's really not a good idea in this situation, in this part of the world. He needs to be better if he's going to be in a position such as captain for much longer, or again, admiral, or whatever he's called. The other big annoyance for him is a monkey infestation, as if we needed any clearer sign that these ironborn really are in a very different part of the world to what they're used to. Monkeys, to be fair, are pretty new to the reader as well. Outside of Mark Mullendod and his famous companion, these are the first ones we've actually seen on page. These and a few that were for sale in Volantis, but I'm not going to count that. It's not expanded on yet how they came to be aboard, but we can imagine them frustrating Victorian to no end, playing these games and teasing him, and he's going to enlighten us about that a bit later as well. Victorian, who considers them filthy, noisy beasts that really do add to the frustration and make ever snails seem that much worse, is of just a real indicator of his overall mood, isn't it? But he returns to the biggest source of his consternation now, the lost ships, as he wonders on why his fleet is decimated so. Is it the gods? Is it him making a mistake of some sort? 
and here he mentions Aaron, his brother, for the first time, wishing he were here to guide him through such issues, which raises the question of where he is again. Obviously, that's going to be really, really important the further we go. That was already a little bit of a mystery at the end of Feast, and in some of Ash's chapters, and we'll find out well, the answer. That's not nice. We'll find that out in the Wind's preview chapters. So already, Victorian is giving us the impression of foolishness. Like in Feast, he's setting up his own barriers and his own doubts that don't allow him to actually do anything or to excuse his own failures at all. But the bottom line really is that this is not enough for what he wants right now. So that's the question. That constant question that's still bothering him, that's what's really winding him up. And we do actually get a decision now, as is relayed to Wolf One Ear when Victorian watches Grief come in again, like at the beginning of the chapter. And I'll remind you here that Grief was actually one of Victorian's important ships in Feast. That was one of his rearguard at the Kingsmoot, just for a little connection there for you. Anyway, he orders Wolf to gather the main captains, recall the hunters from the isle, break the camps on the beach, load what you can, we are off. He says this, the fleet departs upon the morrow, on the evening tide. They're going to leave behind one of the broken ships, one named Shark, for any stragglers who do actually turn up. So we're left to wonder, well, if some do, are they going to appear later in the game at some point? Maybe on a return journey they'll bump into each other? Or will they just be a rogue group of ironborn, left to make nuisances of themselves in this new section of the world? Or they could even head for home themselves and add to that storyline again. Maybe, who can say? Wolf points out the obvious conundrum. Waiting could mean more ships, which is perfectly true, of course. But Viterian has judged the scales and has chosen a side. He's going to cut his losses and go with what he has, which is actually pretty bold of him. He did need to make a decision, and he says, we can't stay here forever. Loyal as his crew might seem, that's not going to sit well with them, is it? I need to kind of keep going here if I'm going to keep these men. So it remains to be seen, both from this chapter and the next, whether a lack of numbers is actually going to cost him. But right now, speed is the issue, he says. And because he still feels the need to outwardly exude confidence to keep his men in line, he turns the whole thing into a plus. He says, hey, if there's less of us, then our most assured victory will be all the better. The songs are going to sound better, aren't they, if there's less of us? You don't want to share any glory, do you? No, you don't. So let's get going, shall we? Let's head towards our certain victory. And that's some kind of Fionn and Winterfell thinking right there. Besides that, we get the important note that Victorian is well aware of the Volantines as well, so that's pretty big. He knows that he is in a race, and this really is the deciding factor in his choice to leave. So we really are getting a reminder ourselves of Volantis and their fleet after not seeing them for so long, that was like halfway through the book. And it also combines really well with some obvious chapter sequencing from George, we've just discussed them in the last chapter, to place Victorian in the marine arena in our minds. He is discussing the same things as Barristan and Scahaz were. He's part of this world now, or he's going to be pretty soon. So we realise we've got another camera coming to cover another part of the battle. So we've actually got even more than we do for Winterfell now. So again, as we said in that last chapter, this is big stuff coming to marine. Victorian learned about this problem of Volantis when he saw it firsthand at the city. He went, he went via Volantis. He saw the galleys himself, just as Tyrion did, just to further meld himself into that side of the story. His memory takes us there now, and he arrived just in time to witness the conclusion of the election we heard so much about in Tyrion's chapters. Evidently, Jorah's hope that Donifoss would be returned to the Triarchy, and war was therefore going to be avoided, has proven false. Instead, you might recall that the widow of the Waterfront, remember her, thought that one of either Alios, Parquello, or Belicho was likely to be elected, and if any of the three would be, that would mean war. So we're guessing that that's exactly what's happened. And all those thoughts about the Volantis power and that whole storyline that we focused on back in the middle of the book comes rushing back to us now, especially the effect it could have on Daenerys. So Victorian, again, I'll say it, it really is part of this new world now. He's been the places, he knows the storylines, he's involved. And he certainly feels like it himself, now that he's visited a place where people actually talk about Daenerys as if she were a real person, 
instead of some far-off legend, and a beautiful real person as well, which Victorian doesn't happen to mind, funnily enough. According to what he sees, Volantis is very much a city apparently hungry for her defeat, or at least, this is key, the free people are. The slaves, eh, not so much. And again, we know well about that story and what might happen there in Volantis in terms of revolts and supporting Daenerys and all that type of thing. And he also mentions that he has to pay the gold price in Volantis and that he hates that idea. He's just a, a funny little chap, Victorian, isn't he? So, back to this race then, this race to beat Volantis to Marine. This is a really, really important race that could make all the difference, as Barristan's just told us. Victorian had the head start, and the Storms will have hit the Volantines as well, but still. Galleys, they're generally fast. They could be in the Gulf of Greek, where the Ironborns still pretty much are, and gaining fast, or they could be going the other way, around the Isle of Cedars. Victorian's kind of taken the east route, he's on the southern tip, he's going to go around it and then up to Marine, but it is possible that Volantis has gone the other way, although generally that's a bit too close to Valeria for most people. Whatever it is, he must reach Marine first if he has any chance of meeting his goal. He needs to get there first, he needs to pluck Danny out of the city straight away and then leave, according to him. As powerful as the Iron Fleet is, he has 50 ships so far, or near enough, and he thinks, according to his account, that Volantis has anywhere between 300 and 500 ships. Whoa, that's amazing to think of. It's hard to actually imagine an actual fleet of that size and it frames Skaha's description of what is coming for them in an even worse light. We already thought it was bad from that description we've just had but there's 500 ships coming for Marine? Uh, yeah, a lot more pressure on Barristan all of a sudden. If they arrive in Marine and our good guides are still fighting the Yunkish slash their own masters then they are completely screwed aren't they? It looks like it would be a tough enough fight straight up even if you didn't have the Yunkish and the more annoying masters. So living in Westeros has obviously given the Iron Fleet a bit of a false ego. Previously, Victorian would have thought that they were unmatched on any sea and now he's dealing with a fleet of maybe 500 ships and that's without all the ships already outside marine from new geese and Carf and tolos and elsewhere victorian he's just got his 50 so the odds are truly stacked against him somehow and let's remember he doesn't give a twig about marine or her people obviously or danny's children but he does need danny so speed is of the essence and that sense plenty of tension for us and again, let's, I'm going to remind you, we've barely even mentioned that he's actually saying this towards a place that no longer even has a Daenerys. So we've just got these questions, these constant questions of how that's all going to work out. But I'm going to guess that his reaction will probably involve more frustration. So it all seems a little bit dire for Victoria now in numbers and timing. So what's his motivation against these huge odds? Well, that's exactly what we would expect, wanting to beat out his brother. This is sibling rivalry writ large. It always all comes back to Euron for Victorian and the feelings of inadequacy that Euron's crimes have placed on Victorian. The ones he obviously has zero ways to actually deal with. We discussed that plenty back in Feast. For now, Victorian turns his attention to the ultimate goal, Daenerys. And he actually thinks that she'll turn out to be less than hoped for because that seems to be the story of his life. Uh, again, poor old me, Victorian. But the evidence is against that from what they've heard as Danny's legend spreads and spreads and spreads. And, well, wait until everyone finds out she can ride dragons now. Then wait to see what that happens to that legend. So this is where he actually bothers to remind us, since it has been quite a while, that he will not fetch Danny for Euron as per the mission. He will take her for himself as the ultimate act of vengeance. Although note that he makes no mention of how he actually intends to do that, although the word claim is troubling, we don't like that word, no. But this is Victorian obviously, he doesn't think that far ahead or maybe just figures it a bygone conclusion. He's too wrapped up in the potential of that win to even think of the detail. And what's interesting is he isn't even that ambitious in terms of being Danny's husband or what he can get from her in terms of power, he literally just wants to do it to hurt Euron in the same way that his brother hurt him. And I can't get rid of the sense that it's not really going to work out like that. I think you probably agree. 
but it is too late to turn back now, he says. You wouldn't only have to deal with the shame of limping home a failure, but, much like Quentin says, they spent lives on this. People have died just to get this far. So what can really be achieved by turning back empty-handed now? Well, I might say the saving of more lives. That could be achieved, but that never seems to come up, does it? So here, a few pages in, this is where we learn that he also has a maester aboard, which is very ironborn. And keep that in mind, because that's going to come back in, in just a moment. For right now, while he waits for the camps to be broken up so that they can leave, he reflects on the isle that they are moored at. This isle of cedars that apparently has no cedar trees, despite the name, thanks to the doom. That's what we're told. And Maester Curran, like we say, he's just been mentioned, says it was once called the Isle of a Hundred Battles, which certainly sounds like it comes with a backstory that we could probably get our teeth into. Unfortunately, we're not told about any of these battles. Victorian is uninterested in such histories, only what the Isle can provide other than mooring. And mainly, the big advantage is plenty of food, unfortunately, for these little piggies. You've actually got to wonder if this is where Drogon's lunch came from, that, that huge boar that we saw in the pit. That might have come from here. But it's also the home of these cursed monkeys, the ones that spread like a plague, which is not a good comparison when considering what Viterion is going to find in and outside of Marine, but still. For him, it's just another sign of this all being unnatural, all of it feeling wrong. Barristan had similar feelings, but for a very different meaning. Victorian, a famously small-minded chap, does not care for anything different than what he knows. There's the climate, the colour of the water, which sounds gorgeous by the way, and okay, it's fair enough that he hates the different and more powerful storms, but still, he's not a fan, he prefers his good old home, and it's pretty weird that someone could like such a place as the Iron Irons at all, but especially in comparison to where we are now, but I guess the world takes all sorts, doesn't it? And now he actually focuses on extending his hatred to this strange, cursed isle. Ironborn, they're obviously not used to trees at the best of times, but these forests, these jungles, are full of strange plants and colours, and much worse things from drowned Velos. And the tales of what Victorian experienced when they camped near that ruin definitely pricks our ears up, because we always like those kind of tales. They remind us of Sephoros and all those kind of creepy horror stories almost that I know History of Westeros have covered before as well. So what about Velos then? Is that place cursed? Did it send Victorian bad dreams or was that just mere coincidence? It's probably the latter, but it's always cool to imagine, isn't it? Cursed lands, or lands that have been cursed specifically because of whatever happened to Valeria, seem to be a common occurrence. It seems to be like a stain that can't be washed out. It's a corruption of the land, perhaps because of the power once held there. And you know, there's all those different theories of how that came about and crimes against nature and all those kind of things. So maybe that is true. Viterian actually gives us a little bit of a history lesson, even though he doesn't want to, when he relays the effects of the doom here. This 300 foot tsunami that killed hundreds of thousands of people and destroyed two separate cities on other sides of the island just to tell you really how powerful it was. And it's actually, it's pretty cool because we've never heard about the doom in quite such detail before. We've never heard of actual eyewitnesses, at least not within A Song of Ice and Fire. The other Westeros based texts such as the world book yeah they, they talk about it a bit more but it really puts it into context for you really makes you question what actually happened there if it was anything other than a natural disaster then just the sheer scale of human cost is unimaginable it just keeps it prominent in our minds as important to keep considering and how it still is really affecting this world even now at this point it's worth thinking about when dragons have returned to this part of the world isn't it if you're going to believe in why that all came about or why it happened i mean that's a whole different pathway we could stumble down that we've talked about at different times anyway but it does just stick in your mind doesn't it and of course because he's victorian he insists on shoehorning the drowned god in here whether as a sign of those nightmares from the loss or as a sign to more here because so many people drowned here once and the god might like that yeah, I know, it's such weird reasoning Besides, he's soon second-guessing himself, as always. Maybe he got it the wrong way round, and the Drowned God wouldn't like it because so many people drowned here. Maybe he's made a mistake again. It's the exact same questioning of self that he had earlier on. 
and it shows how much he actually relied on Aeron or even Balon before him. Basically, he needs his handheld at all times, and he mentions Aeron's location again just to keep that mystery alive. But he's had enough talk of frustrating numbers and this stupid island, so now is when he goes back down to the cabin, where we have the reintroduction of the Dusky Woman. You remember her back from Feast. Yes, she's had her whole life uprooted again, she's been taken clear across the world, and no one seems to care what she thinks about it at all. And we personally are no closer to figuring out what her future plot points could be or her personal history. What we will find in these chapters is that she's going to be privy to an all lot of information really key information even more than we get ourselves actually so there's always a possibility of her value being recognized and used at some point maybe by euron as many guests maybe that's already happening or maybe by someone else instead for now victorian reflects on her being one of euron's poison gifts that he was always going on about in feast he was so sure that he would never let himself be tempted by such he thought he would kill the dusky woman before he'd let that happen but somehow he didn't go through with it then and he hasn't now Instead, she continues to be his sounding board where he can let off all his steam without having anyone to actually talk back to him. Yes, he's just that big of a moron. And he gives away more than he thinks as well. She's already been given the duty of nurse to tend to his injured hand, as we see here, while he details the fleet losses and she undresses this awful wound. And this is where he gives his reasoning for the split of the fleet now. It almost seems like he has no confidence in himself at all, hence needing to justify everything to her. And all of his reasons make sense, the avoiding slowing down, the higher likelihood of being welcomed if you're on a smaller feet, the better passing out of food or the ability to find food, and also the storms were probably going to split them apart anyway, but he still has to tell that, he still has to get across that he's smart. Like so many, he's just ruled by ego, unfortunately, and insecurity as well. But we get more details here. We learn that Red Ralph was sent with the fast ships south along Sephoros, that place of curses. And maybe it's not coincidence that he had the least ships return and that he himself hasn't returned, remember. The slower ships went to lease with Ralph the Limper to sell the captives that they got on the Shield Islands. And yes, that does leave a rather sickly feeling in our stomach, doesn't it? The whole could never happen here vibe of Westeros is in tatters now. We've got captives from both ends of Westeros now being pushed into lives of slavery, a concept so outrageous and horrible that even Westeros, of all places, bans it. Victorian hates the actual industry of slavery and he details how it is different from taking thralls, although probably not for the victims so much. He thinks it's an insult to humanity. Well, unfortunately you're really going to hate going to Slaver's Bay then, Victorian, but it does earn them coin for supplies, that was his reasoning. As we already know, Victorian hugged the southern coast of Essos, going via Volantis like we detailed, and then swinging around Valeria just as Tyrion did, or half did, anyway. This is the busiest lane, and one of the best chances of success, and pit stops to rest, and also gaining more prizes, so, so of course he took that one for himself. Besides, he can't have anyone saying that Euron can actually go to Valeria, and Victorian can't even sail past it. No, that wouldn't do. He's still grumbling about his numbers, and now justifying not only his decision to move, but what he will do when he gets to Marine, and it's, uh, it's pretty basic as plans go. Here's the quote. The only way to do this is to take the slavers unawares, as I once did at Lannisfort. Sweep in from the sea and smash them, then take the girl and race for home before the Volantines descend upon us. Ugh, yeah, this is definitely a Victorian plan, isn't it? So ignoring that this is absolutely nothing like Lannisport, really, in that he does not know the geography or the players or anything like that, Victorian also seems to be of the opinion that Danny is just going to be stood there on the docks waiting to be stolen like she's Princess Peach. I'm going to go ahead and assume that he's got no idea what a pyramid is, but he has seen buildings before, he's seen cities, so why is he not assuming she's going to be in the middle of one of those and not on the edge? What is his plan for getting past the land forces of Yunkai, or inside the walls of Marine, and then past all those many different factors 
of the city that we know so well, as well as getting her out of any protective shelter where she would logically be. He does not have an army, he'd have no idea where to look or who fights for who. So unless he truly believes that Daenerys is looking for a way out herself and will recognise him as that and come to him willingly, well, we can assume that Victorian has not really thought this through or, well, it's basically either that or he's keeping his cards very close to his chest in terms of an actual decent plan because this one sucks. And remember, he only views the Volantines as actual enemies because they are the only other fleet and the only one he respects in turn because they are like him. It really does have us wondering what he'll actually do when he gets there. It seems like it's going to be hilarious. We know from some of the wins previews that it's going to be brilliant timing at the very least, but he must have some role there. Or again, why would he be involved plot-wise? He is actually very, very confident that he'll soon be returning with his queen. Again, he's got no idea what to do with her other than stick his tongue out at Euron, and the Dusky Woman will get to be her maid apparently. And yes, he does not ask the Dusky Woman's opinion on this. So now enters Maester Kerwin, or poor Maester Kerwin if you're a rereader. Because this guy, he's been punched, he's been raped, and yet he still has troubles ahead as well, so he's not a particularly happy character overall. Victorian does not like the man, both for his personality and for the fact he's a maester in general. So he's a typical ironborn in that respect. He does mention that maesters have their uses, and this one's is inspecting his hand, which he does so now. But that injury is not healing like we said earlier, which again seems odd. Kerwin believes the hand might need to be amputated to save Victorian's life, a suggestion that is met with flat refusal and the threats of further abuse. So he'll have Kerwin aboard to give advice, but he won't take it, even if it suggests oncoming death. Typical Victorian bullheadedness, of course. And maybe he suspects Kerwin as just trying to take his hand as a form of revenge, we're going to revisit that idea later. And if that was true, even though it's probably not, we could hardly blame him given what's happened to Kerwin since he came aboard. It's typical Victorian, isn't it? He would equally blame Kerwin if exactly what he says will happen, happens. For now, the maester is just on hand to drain it again, while Victorian is busy mentally insulting him because he himself is somewhere on the leaderboard of toxic masculinity in these books. But we're focused on the injury here, aren't we? And we see that gigantic amounts of pus, disgusting pus that even Victorian doesn't like, comes out before you can even see any blood. So clearly, he's in a bad way. Way worse than he should be. And the obvious question is, why? Why is it lasting this long? What's Talbot Seri using a poison sword? Seems unlikely, doesn't it? Is it just sheer bad luck? Is this just infection? Or is this another one of these curses that he's always going about? We're definitely wondering. It definitely sticks out to us that this shouldn't be like this. So we're going to figure it's going to become important at some point. Victorian insists on grunting his way through the experience, not admitting to any of the pain or even the worry of what this might mean long term. That's not a manly enough concern, clearly. Once it's done, Victorian banishes both the maester and the disgusting contents of his hand. It's just kind of swimming in this bowl here. It's pretty disgusting. So... Like we say, he really is messed up, but he doesn't want to face it. And that denial is actually getting harder for him to maintain a grip on. The smell of the wound remains, probably because Victorian refuses to let it get any fresh air. If he shows it to the crew, he thinks his command would be in jeopardy, and that cannot be allowed. Not here, on the edge of the world, with such a dangerous mission. Plus, you know, ego is involved again. He focuses on the pain now, the pain that worsens every time he actually tries to use the hand, and he remembers where it came from, in Talbot Seri. A boy that he respected at the time, thanks to his bravery, but then he had no clue that this would be the eventual result. Seri had surprised him when he cut through the gauntlet as he relives the experience for us now. He did not respect the wound as much as he respected the man. He cast it from his mind almost as soon as it happened. So this might be a simple case of him not having the brains to clean it out properly and just considering himself invincible. And now here he is possibly paying the price. 
He also does consider the possibility of poison, which again seems super unlikely, but the idea enrages him more as he remembers the Kranagmen, his former enemy, the Bog Devils as he calls them, and we're reminded of his loathing of them due not only to how they fought, but that they were beating him because of how they fought. That's what really winds him up. So he looks for other possibilities as well. The maester, like we said, seems the most likely, given his access and his motivation. The fact that he came from Neuron only seems to cement the idea. All his gifts are poisoned, remember. And this is where he thinks maybe he is doing it to remove Victarion's hand. Victarion thinks such a motive would be most unfair, since Euron was the one who captured the maester in the first place, which is obviously ignoring what's happened since Cohen boarded the ship, as well as the fact that to him, one ironborn is probably much the same as any other, both are evil. And a quick little note for you here, we should detail that he hasn't sent back any of the ravens, so Euron knows nothing of their progress, at least theoretically, that might be important later on. What Victarion doesn't do is suspect the one other person with access, even though he comes very, very close to naming her in his own curse. He says this, Poison was for cravens, women, and Dornishmen. The dusky woman is right there as he's speaking this. How she would be doing it, I've got no idea, but she does have the access, and she does have more than enough motivation, so that is certainly a possibility. We get a change of scenery again now, when news comes that Grief has a captive that they fished out from the sea, and that he's apparently a wizard. Now Victarion is obviously intrigued, and so are we. He always needs more toys to battle against Euron, and Euron is supposed to have wizards, remember? And yet again, he wishes for Aeron to be here, to guide him, which is ironic given that Aeron is actually going to be tangled up with his own wizards in the Forsaken chapter. Besides, it's all a distraction from his still painful and clearly worsening hand. We've already got a clear time limit of that, and he wants to think about something else, so up he heads. And we're wondering who this could be, this someone who has been fished out of the sea. A great many first-timers likely are already guessing it's Makoro, seeing as we specifically saw him get swept out in this area. And this person that Vitarian meets up on the deck, and the description we've cut of him so far, that definitely fits the part. But maybe some thought it was Marwyn. He's only a maester, not a wizard, but he doesn't look like one. Or maybe some are even thinking Pirate Pre, because we don't have the Forsaken chapter yet, do we? Luckily, we don't have to wait long for our confirmation. The Vole, Captain of Grief, introduces Mokoro, apparently alive and well. So this is another measure to involve Victarion in this brand new side of the series. He's had similar thoughts to Barrison like we detailed. Now he's meeting a character who we were introduced to in recent Tyrion chapters. So he's well and truly here and in the mix now. Victarion's close-minded description of Makara is, uh, is quite something. And in the end, he believes this man to be cursed because of the colour of his skin, a being made up of the fire that it will turn out he supports, and that is also boosted by his slave tattoos, which Victarion tells us are marks of evil. Now, he's already mentioned that he doesn't like slavery, so that does make sense. But it is definitely quite the introduction. Ironically, he says that the man looks like he's been burned, which is exactly what part of him will end up looking like before chapter's end. More amazingly, Wheeler Mokoro claims that he was in the water for 10 days. Now, obviously, the timeline is all a bit confusing when, com when comparing to the chapter order here in Dance, especially at the end, but it does make sense given what we saw happen to Tyrion. What doesn't make sense is, how could that possibly be true? Victarion's right for once, no one can just drift for 10 days at sea, yet here Mokoro stands. So he's either lying about the timeline, which would be weird, or he really did do that, which is even weirder. What kind of powers does he have to allow such a thing? None that we know of. We've been in Melisandre's POV, we know they've got some tricks up their sleeve, but nothing like that, as far as we know. So the impression of mystery and power, that's going nowhere. We can see why the others thought he was a wizard, as Mokoro declares himself a red priest, which is something that Victarion can connect to a bit easier having seen them before, even if it doesn't explain how he survived. But his clothes do suggest that he was in the water that long, so the mystery continues, I guess. And the crew, they don't like it. Just like Victarion, they are too attached to their beloved drowned god, and a fire god is pretty much the exact opposite, so they name him Demon and they mock him. 
Victorian Greyjoy mistrusted laughter. The sound of it always left him with the uneasy feeling that he was the butt of some jape he did not understand. That goes a long way to explain quite a lot about who he is now. He's someone who was always worried about being tricked or mocked. Someone who always feels the need to justify and explain by way of showing what he's thinking and that he has intelligence. We've just seen that of the Dusky Woman. The jokes made by Euron and Aaron were all the worse because they weren't presented as jokes, they were tricks. And that is what produced the inferiority complex, I believe. That he wasn't good enough compared to them and that he wanted to be part of the team, part of the crew. It's a well-worn story that we're all familiar with. It also explains his anger and his general mood. Those experiences hurt him bad, and he was never able to let go of it. So that's a really excellent paragraph by George to get across so much in terms of backstory and explanation. And the monkeys are used as key examples of this. And it's important that they're brought up here, because they will be again at the end of the chapter. The crew move from laughter to accusation. All of them, like Victorian, are quite quick to talk about curses, which they believe Makoro to be, an evil spirit that takes down ships. Even though Makoro explains that he was shipwrecked, and note that he is not intimidated by the situation, which only really adds to his mysterious aura. Victorian double guesses. There must be a purpose, he says, according to his god. Besides, as mentioned earlier, he wants to match Euron, and the temptation to do that overrules his suspicion. But of what value could Makoro be? He asks the Vol, who replies that this strange sea wizard knows things. This is all very spooky. He knew where Victorian would be, and he knew Victorian would die without him. Obviously, they all take great affront to that. It's as good as a threat. So the crew calls for Makoro's death, and Victorian does too, until his wounded hand just so happens to really, really hurt right at that moment. So we have the obvious question of, how does Makoro know these things? If he can see something so specific, so fine, as knowing Victorian specifically has an injury that would kill him, maybe he's even seen that it's in his hand, then he is definitely a more talented via vision watcher than Melisandre ever will be. There's also the question of it hurting right now. Is Makoro controlling the injury? Did the Red God send this apparent affection? Is he making it hurt right now? If so, that's way beyond anything we've seen of these powers, again, that we've seen before. But the question's there, aren't they? I mean, it's, we're going to say it's not coincidence. And the pain is so bad that it's enough to make Viterian stumble out here in front of the crew. We know that's his nightmare, looking weak or losing control. Yet the pain is really so bad that even strong old Victorian can't ignore it, can't hide it. So this is really getting his attention of Makoro. A suspicious guy, sure, but it all fits too neatly. So it's definitely playing into what Victorian is thinking about here. Again, let's look at the possibility of coincidence. It's a matter of timing. How could it be that Makoro is here right at this moment when the hand hurts at its most? Now the crew is reacting as you'd expect. They already thought he was a demon and this to them is confirmation. He means them harm, so they should kill him quickly, they say, and they surge forward now. It takes a bellow from Victorian to stop them as he hands out orders and keeps them busy. And then there is this very real moment of tension where he's not sure if they'll obey. Whether that is because of the perceived weakness they've just seen or they are that strong in their feelings about Makoro, we don't know. To be fair, it is an awesome showing of power. So the question of mutiny, either here or further down the line, is set. And that would be fitting for Victorian, I feel. Maybe that's how he ends. I wouldn't mind that. The tension remains from now, though, as Victorian, the pain obviously having persuaded him that he needs this man, drags Makoro back down below to his cabin. And that tension is offset by immediate surprise when the dusky woman, upon seeing Makoro, hisses as soon as he enters. And again, the obvious question is why? Has she had some run-in with the Red Priest before, from whatever part of the world she originated? Does she know this man has come to heal the wound that she's actually been poisoning? Or is it that she's secretly a Euron spy and doesn't want Victorian becoming more powerful, as some have guessed? We get no answers here, as Victorian silences her with a fist, unfortunately. He turns immediately to Makoro and asks for details about this vision of him dying. And we've got to say, Victorian, he must be a Red Priest's favourite type of person. If Stannis can be persuaded, then this guy's got to be an open book, hasn't he? He's so superstitious, he's wary of gods, and he's so concerned about his own death, 
an end. So combine that with him ultimately being stupid and you've got a winner, haven't you? He's Mr. Gullible. It's ideal for a priest to work their plays upon. Makoro increases his mystique by immediately signalling that the hand is the source of not only the pain but the death and he confirms for us that he knows this via his night fires. He knows a lot. He knows Victorian's name and he has seen him with a blood red axe which we have to figure means Victorian has killed before and will kill many more. He's a sign of death and of devastation. Surprise, surprise. But Makoro also says that Victorian is bound in ways he does not know by tentacles leading back to a black kraken. The one already described to us through Tyrion's POV. Now he doesn't share that part but we know it so we have to figure that Euron is still manipulating Victorian in some way even at this distance whether that be via the dusky woman or by other means. Maybe it's just an omission. Maybe he guessed that Victorian would try to take Danny. Maybe it's got something to do with the horn that we'll cover in the next chapter. We don't know. But it definitely fits that Victorian could be manipulated without knowing it and that Euron would be the type of guy to do that. Obviously, Victorian's first response is one of ego again. He's his own man, blah blah blah, no one controls me, and dancing on strings, well dancing probably seems like a proper insult to him, doesn't it? And just to prove it, he shows off his tortured hand, which isn't the mic drop he thinks it is. It's actually already looking worse, it's already discoloured, I mean the signs are pretty obvious, it's not going well. So Macquarie makes his offer. This can be healed with fire and a blade, he says. It will bring the most terrible pain, but it can be done, and his hand will be his. Plus, his life will be saved, that's the implication. Victorian shows his bravery yet again, but clearly the pain was so bad he is willing to try anything. Kerwin didn't work and he suggested the same thing, so go for it. Which is especially exciting when he says that failure means death for Makaro and the priest's confidence is not knocked at all, so we're pretty keen to see what happens here. And now we leave the present for the final two paragraphs of the chapter and we take a more overall viewpoint. George puts his horror hat on by not letting us glimpse the monster. The cabin door is barred. We hear laughter. Mad laughter. But is it Makoro's or Victorian's? He's not supposed to like laughter, remember? He's just said that. But all of this is so backward and we really want to see what's happening. So yes, George, he knows what he's doing here. Then they're singing in High Valerian. And now the monkey is jumping into the water. Okay, that's great for Victorian, but what the hell is going on here? Something damn creepy. That's the answer. The setting for the final paragraph proves it. A blood red sun. A sea of black ink. And then Victorian reappears, finally, with all of us asking, again, what the hell has happened? He stands there, blood red to the elbow, and his hand, well he still has it, but it's blackened and burnt. It's all charred. So what, what the fuck is happening here? Why is his hand burnt? And how is it burnt and still moving? What's going on? Apparently, George is quite happy to let our minds run wild with this one because he knows that's the best way. That's how the horror writers do it. So it's just left there. That's the end of the chapter. And this is one of the creepiest unanswered parts of the series ending. We're not really going to get any answers in the next chapter either. What has happened to his hand? How did this defeat the poison slash injury? And why is Victorian apparently okay with it? It seems like he shouldn't be, his hand is all burnt and charred. So is he now under the influence in some way? Has he been turned? Is the hand a mark of that? Because he also buys into Makoro's demand that Kerwin must be killed and thrown overboard as a blood sacrifice for their wins. Although not burnt for some reason, which seems odd, but maybe it's just logistical. He's also been told of what he sees in the fires, apparently, he tells us that. So a partnership has been forged here, and who in the hell knows what is happening with them now? He promises harm to his dar. Okay, cool, we're not sure how that fits in. We're really not sure what any of it means. Is Makoro manipulating Victorian? Again, he seems like a certain perfect candidate and Victorian for now believes it's empowering. But what could be the end result? Is he still going to die from this? He doesn't know it. Does it make him more powerful himself? And why does Makoro need Victorian anyway? What we are sure of, or what we're guessing now, is that the message from the Volantis slaves that Makoro has been 
charged with will get to Daenerys or will get to Marine anyway that storyline we awakens now as well and if the Volantines do big damage then Daenerys might just head there for vengeance anyway so we've got that all to think of really we've got too many questions haven't we it's a creepy horror filled ending with zero answers but hey give it to George way to get us interested in this near sideline character like I say I don't particularly care for Victorian but I really really want to know what's going on with this hand what powers are being welded here how evil is it and consider that this is all getting closer to Danny. all this dark magic and all this just weirdness as well as this idiot who'd be stupid about wielding such apparently dark magic so we can guess that it's probably not going to be a good sign he's a marine because this is victorian and he's awful but even if we're not considering daenerys this is going to have some effect somewhere at some point like we said and we've just got no idea how so there we leave it for Victorian today. That's the end of our new POVs. We will be back with all of them before long. Barriston next week, for example. For now, we're going to finish off with someone we actually know well and true. It is Tyrion, as we enter Tyrion 11. So we're going to stick with the marine theme for our last chapter here. We've had it with Barriston. We had it a little bit with Victorian. Now we're really going to have it with Tyrion, even if it's from a different viewpoint. We said right at the beginning, marine is really going to get a boost here at the end. Tyrion is going to be part of that even if we do only have two chapters left and in this one we find a Tyrion yet again changing circumstances I know how many times have we said it but this time these are going to be circumstances from Tyrion's own control his influence which has not been the case throughout this book no not at all this is where we really see basically the Tyrion we know and him putting his skills his ballsiness to the best possible use as he changes from slave to something other than a slave we're not too sure yet we're not really told but it is Tyrion taking on the weight and responsibility of saving basically his life not only his but Penny's and Jorah's as well getting out from under these collars as best they can risking it all this is basically another kind of heist chapter in a way and putting himself back in a position of if not influence and at least well better than he was before definitely a position he can move on he's back on the ladder after this chapter and he's going to get there via this build-up that we've seen in recent chapters of him not only having the mindset to do this in the first place but the return of his skills of looking around taking in the world taking the information knowing how to work people and again just having the bravery to do it in the first place and to be honest i think i'm going to leave it there for introduction because we are running long and this is a good exciting chapter so let's dive right into it the heavy theme right from the beginning is the pale mare which ties back to what barristan was thinking in his earlier chapters the disease is spreading throughout and it obviously doesn't care who gets it because we see now at the beginning that the rich even the super super rich are just as likely to suffer in this setting outside marine anyway unfortunately that's not quite the same case as our own world at the moment but it is outside marine there is no defense not even if you are Yezen Zoquagaz as we learn here on the first page that his slow death has been sped up and in the most painful disgusting fashion by the pale mare we're told this by a healer right on the very first paragraph and Tyrion he confirms it as well he says he already knew it he expected this pronunciation of death which probably hints that in his mind he's been preparing for what to do after because he's going to have to do something although to be honest before we even get to that in our minds we're probably just full of worry about Tyrion and Penny because they've obviously been in really close contact with this guy and Sweets as well so our first concern is have they got the disease as well because that's not something we want to see of course especially with the descriptions of how it's affecting Yazan no not at all we do not want to watch that and the eagle-eyed might notice that this healer is talking to and giving this diagnosis to Sweets and not Nurse so our second question is where is Nurse we're gonna to have to wait to find out 
The healer also tells us some more information about the disease, about how the afflicted become very, very thirsty. They really want water. But the problem is the river water, which is obviously more accessible, is contaminated, which gives away how screwed they all are. This whole camp is it's just going to run rampant through them, isn't it? Yes, there is fresh water available from wells and stuff, but it's just, it's not going to be enough. And with that, it says the healer fled. So that really tells you the urgency. He knows the situation. He's not sticking around. And unfortunately, Tyrion also knows it. He says this, we need to flee as well so immediately right here at the beginning the goal and tension for this chapter is set something is going to have to happen but before we tackle that let's talk about how in some ways we would think that this opening news might be taken as good because this is Tyrion and Penny's owner this is a slaver that's dying this is someone who bought them and masters are bad aren't they of course slavers are bad so one dying would be good wouldn't it that would make sense on the face of it we want those who enslave or claim to own Tyrion and penny to die but with this being george of course it's not so simple as all that as both Tyrion and sweets will both detail for us over the opening two pages the first problem is that if yezan dies so will they. They will die with their masters. Such is the fate of favourites, which is what they've become. That is their reward, apparently, for pleasing their masters. And it seems that Tyrion and Penny have fallen in with sweets into that category. Which kind of shows you the closed circuit loop slavery is, obviously. That's a whole different discussion. On top of that danger is the fact that they are part of a grotesquerie beloved by no one and obviously of no use in a war. So if Yazan goes, everyone else is just going to think, well, why don't we take off a few more mouths from our hungry list? Less people to feed, less people to worry about or spread the disease. Brilliant. And because like we say, they've been in such close contact to Yazan, everyone else is probably going to think they are infected and they might just kill them for that. So this is a very real danger and the collars declare it of every step. Don't forget it has Yazan's name on. So everywhere they go, it's basically going to shout out to everyone unclean or dangerous or whatever you want to say. And keep in mind the problem of collars because that's going to come back in a moment and to keep in with this theme of this not actually being good news Tyrion also believes that Yazan was not as bad as masters can be he's been treated fairly well Tyrion says for a slave of course the nicest slaver in the world is still one of the worst people in the world so let's not go nuts here but it's worth noting that there has been some luck involved for Tyrion and Penny and it could have been much much worse for them depending on who else bought them besides being Yazan's slave has allowed Tyrion certain opportunities, like learning things at the various banquets. He showed off his reconnaissance skills in his last chapter, and here he is proving that again. And one of those things that Tyrion learned is that there is another positive mark to make in Yezan's column, because he was one of the Yunkish lords advocating for peace over war. Not that that makes him better in terms of taking advantage of Daenerys in the first place, and again, he's a slaver, but he is in the better half of the group for sure. It's just a good reminder of differing viewpoints within this camp, within these Yunkish lords. From Barry's position earlier, the Yunkish were all one group, but of course, this is George again, so there's always factions involved. Some of them want to rush the city before Volantis arrives so they can get the best spoils. Some want to wait so they can guarantee victory with the Volantines. So here we are at the beginning as well with lots of tension for Barristan's storyline on top of Tyrion's because this could kick off at any time. We don't know when this battle is going to begin really. So George is really playing with us here. And one final note on Yezan being better than some at least. He voted not to return any of the hostages via trebuchet as Bloodbeard wants. So that guy is definitely living up to his reputation. We're going to talk about him more next week. And it also provides some tension for those hostages as well. Are we going to see a Grolio go flying over the wall? Are we going to see a Dario or even any of his Dar's kin? We don't really want to see that for anybody. And well, we're going to talk about that next week as well. So Yezan turned out to be kind of cool for all of how George presented him. Who knew? But again, cool for a slaver make of that what you will Tyrion also tells us that this disease has only taken two days to kill off Yezan that's how quick it works and he also implies that nurses died 
And we, as readers, we're to assume that he went via the pale mare as well. Maybe that's even how Yezan got it. He got it from Nurse, who knows? But either way, with it only taking two days to kill, we can see how it's going to spread that fast. Volantis is two days nearer as well, so that tension is rising. As I said, it's all going to kick off. This is really building. We thought that I'd leave with Daenerys. Obviously not. So even if Victorian still seems a little too far off to really have an effect, the combination of Tyrion and Barristan chapters is really just amazing for getting us excited at this part of the plot. So the healers fled, Nurse is gone, we have Yazan and we have Tyrion, Sweets and Penny. And we see that Tyrion has actually complete opposites in these two who he's been left to deal with. Because Sweets is very near to breaking point. He's become utterly obsessed with keeping Yazan alive. In part because of their curious relationship, if you want to call it that. But mainly because it will mean his almost instantaneous death as well. He is broken, he's desperate. He's already kind of on his way out mentally. And he describes to Penny what we mentioned a moment ago of what happens to a slaver's treasures. He also argues that there's no hope in Daenerys. He says she has gone across the Dothraki Sea on Drogon. So we established that that news has spread to here for those who did not see it, as you would expect it to do. It's a pretty hot rumour. But of a more important note, and the person much harder to see in this state, is Penny, who seems to have basically retreated into fantasy land as a way of keeping it all together. She talks of slaves being set free, of them themselves going to find Daenerys, of them being able to go on a boat and sail the world for adventures, basically. Let's go to Calf, where everything is wonderful and all problems are solved. The war is over. They are saved, she says. It's obviously not the reality, and Tyrion's got to look at her and be aware of that. It's pitiful, and honestly, it's just upsetting to see how she can't face up to the reality. Not we understand why. She's terrified in the same way that Sweets is, and this is her way of coping. Some of it is her natural naivety, some of it is her natural positivity, but it will all be of no hope overall. At some point, she's going to have to face up to what's actually happening, and Tyrion will have to help her do that, unfortunately, if they are to have any hope of escape. Right now, he goes along with it, but it's going to be a problem that he continually deals with throughout this chapter. And in response to Penny's ideas of going further off to Calf and finding adventure, Tyrion thinks this, I have gone as far east as I intend to. Oh boy, we sure do hope so, Tyrion, we'd like you to turn around about now. So back to Sweets then, because he is sharing some of that sense of being out of touch with reality. He's trying to convince himself that Yezan will live, even though it's clear he will not. And Tyrion reminds us that while some of that is just being afraid of his potential death, some of it is his genuine affection for his owner, for his slaver. Either way, whatever it is, Tyrion alone shoulders reality and therefore responsibility. He's the only one who can do something via his wits and his attitude, so now is when he gets on with his plan, even if he doesn't actually say as much, and first-time readers are not to know that. He also doesn't explicitly point out that there is just no saving sweets, but that is what he believes. It is harsh, it's terrible, but the choice is stay here and die, or leave and maybe live. So he chooses the second option both for him and for Penny, as he tells her to come with him to fetch fresh water, something poor, pitiful sweets is thankful for. So it's a really emotional beginning here. There's no holes barred. And as they leave the tent, Penny puts her trust in what the healer said, the one that again, literally ran away, in thinking that fresh water will actually help Yazan. Tyrion, he already corrects her here, saying it's not going to help him any more than it did Nurse. And he confirms that their overseer was officially thought of as a pale mare victim. And publicly, towards Penny, he keeps up that lie. But privately, in his own mind, he tells us the truth of how he murdered Nurse, using those mushrooms from his boot to allow this escape. We have this quote. The last word Nurse ever said was, no. The last words he ever heard were, a Lannister always pays his debts. Damn, alright Tyrion, that is evil, it's dark certainly, but then again, it was also required, because it's the same choice, it was either that or die, but this wasn't going to work if Nurse was still around. Now, yeah, okay, he could have done it without being extra mean, but then again, he's been severely mistreated by this guy, and we'll talk about that a little bit later in the chapter, so you can understand where that notion is coming from. 
More importantly, using the mushrooms in this way is the ultimate show that he is finally choosing life. So that's great. That's a big step up in progress. Now, Penny doesn't need to know that, but Tyrion does need Penny to realise some of the facts if this next part is going to work. Because you can tell in her reaction to him saying, Yezan's a goner, she is not mentally prepared. And Tyrion explains it. The best they can hope for, if Yezan dies and they don't share the same fate as Sweets, is being inherited by a Yezan heir, who maybe is also nice, but just as easily, he could be worse. Or they could be sold again. They could be separated. And Tyrion's not going to let that happen. That would be almost as bad as a death sentence. Hence the plan which begins now as Tyrion and Penny head out into the camp and Tyrion engages this slave soldier Scar the sergeant to fetch the fresh water for Yezan he orders it the collars they're giving some level of prestige and influence for Tyrion and he knows that all of that will be gone within hours so this needs to happen right now and half of this engagement is typical Tyrion the kind we've seen a hundred times where he purposefully gets himself in trouble with some group by acting above his station we're well acquainted with that Tyrion he's received the whip for it plenty of times of late but this time specifically it is ordering around these slave soldiers this scar as if he were the great Yazan himself and when he calls out the fact that these men are slaves not soldiers as they'd like to believe and reminds them that they are the same level as him a lowly dwarf that insult is too much to bear and Scar knocks Tyrion down for like the 20th time in this book I think and with that then comes an aspect of Tyrion we don't see quite as much which is his acting skills or his overacting skills perhaps as he does his very best to look pathetic and thoroughly beaten he whines he lets these slaves feel dominant and he does this because he's smart enough to figure out the social structure within slavery he thinks this even amongst slaves, there were laws and peasants, as he had been quick to learn. It's something he also noted back in Volantis, how even slaves feel the need to be better than someone else. That's just part of the human condition. But obviously, this is being shown to him at a much closer angle right now. Still, he continues to think on the structure, mainly focused on sweets, to subtly remind Scar that Nurse is dead and Yezan is dying, so his chances to defy orders are looking real good for this short little window. And it also unfortunately provides another reason that Sweets is so terrified, because the other slaves are jealous of him and will react with violence when the time comes and he has no more protection. That's just not nice to think about the fate of Sweets. But Tyrion's acting, his planting of that seed, that is very cool. So this thought, combined with Tyrion constantly whining about the need for fresh water in his most annoying voice, let Scar come to his own conclusion that for one day only in his life, he can shirk an order, pass it off on someone else, and not get in trouble for it. So he tells Tyrion to go and get the water. Bingo, that's what we want. But Tyrion's not done there. He continues focusing on how weak and pathetic he and Penny are, and he asks to use the mule cart to fetch the water. Again, it is Scar's own idea that instead, they can take Jorah Mormont, the captured bear. The cherry on top of all this is Tyrion referring to Scar as Master, because that makes Scar grin. It makes him think this is all the great idea, and it will keep him from chasing after Tyrion and the others, or thinking about it all too much. So, pretty much has worked perfectly. This is peak Tyrion. We know him well, we're going to get it throughout the rest of the chapter as well. Penny gets the pails. Scar sends Morgo to fetch Shajora Mormon, and Tyrion looks like an absolute genius again. His success is an obvious contrast to the experiences of Jorah Mormont, who has somehow tumbled even further down into despair. It is a mix of his feelings for Daenerys, as well as how his honour has been ripped to shreds at this fall down the social scale. His pride slash give up attitude has resulted in him essentially just removing himself from the world. He still does not fight or truly offer resistance, he just does the minimum. He's just shambling through life, or he just refuses orders straight off. And even being confined to an iron cage and beaten every evening has not stopped him. Here's a very uncomfortable quote for you. The knight absorbed the beating silently. 
The only sounds are the muttered curses of the slaves who beat him and the dull thuds of their clubs pounding against Sir Jorah's bruised and battered flesh. Now, you'll know we're not a fan of Sir Jorah Mormont in any way on this podcast, but this particular description of repeated beating, the way George makes it sound like they're beating a rug, is very, very uncomfortable. We don't like that, no, not at all. And Tyrion agrees with us. He names Jorah a shell, and not for the first time. The guy is in an absolute state as he emerges from the cage and is discovered in bruising and blood. And as with before, Tyrion is worried the man's only action will be to eventually throttle someone giving him orders, such as this one saying to help Tyrion with the water. Some men would sooner die free than live a slave, I suppose. Now bear that quote in mind, I think, because that's probably going to be a large contingent of people fighting in the upcoming battle based on that exact ideal. Luckily, George does not choose now to throttle anyone and finally show signs of life. He just follows along, and Tyrion's plan continues to be an uproaring success, even if first-timers still don't know what he's actually doing yet. So off the three of them go, back together again, Tyrion, Jorah and Penny carrying their pails through the Junkish camp. So it's like Fionn and the Spearwives in a way, isn't it? They had their pails as well. Except this time, it's an effort to save themselves in danger rather than save someone else. And again, I should make the point that first time is still haven't been told what the actual objective of this is, but we know when Tyrion has something afoot and we all just edge a bit closer on our seats to see what that is. They move through the sprawling cramp with something resembling freedom, ironically, due to their collars. Tyrion has seen how this world works, he's identified the loopholes and how to take advantage of them. Again, he is brilliant in this chapter. But the issue is timing still. These collars, professing them as property of Yezanzo Quagaz, chime to everyone that they are valuable people, clearly working on orders. To interfere with them is to interfere with Yezan, the richest lord of Yunkai, and a very important person indeed, so no one's going to bother interfering, aren't they? In an odd way, it's almost like a VIP badge, really. But a slave is only as important as their master, and that is all going to go away the moment that Yezan dies, and Tyrion knows that so our tension is obvious. As they progress through, Tyrion and Barristan play off of each other as the former sees the evidence that was claimed in the latter's chapter. There are scorpions and crossbows everywhere, all pointed at the sky in case Drogon should return. No one wants to be the one who isn't looking and therefore gets burned if that should happen. Everyone would love, on the other side, to be the one to take him down. They would be a hero for all time. And as a side note for you here, there's this specific word, mangonels, and I feel like I've brought this up before as a highlighted word because they are only mentioned twice previously to this. Once when Mace Tyrell had them outside Storm's End, and once when Renly had them at Bitterbridge. And now that I think about it, they're probably those exact same physical ones. Essentially, I just want to explain what a mangonel is because I had to check. It is another type of trebuchet. It does the exact thing that you are thinking of. I had a glance at a wiki about this. They were used to fling things, sometimes even corpses designed to spread disease. So you can see why I'm bringing that up. You should probably bear those in mind. Now, Tyrion thinks this whole thing is an exercise in futility. None of them will kill Drogon, he thinks, not without some insane luck, which is a sigh of relief to all of us, really. He shares some of his knowledge on how best to kill a dragon here, and hopefully this isn't foreshadowing they'd ever need to use such. Maybe instead, he'll use it to defend them better. That'd be cool. Either way, we like whenever he's thinking about dragons now that he's actually so close to one, and maybe, maybe, he'll be able to use his knowledge soon. He also spies the legions from New Geese, and while he thinks that they might be decent, he does not believe they would match up against the Unsullied, who know nothing but the way of war. That is their purpose, that's what they're for. These, however, are men serving three-year terms with the potential for actual life back home. And they're not going to lay their lives down for the cause in the same way that the Unsullied will, especially if those Unsullied are fighting for Daenerys, we know how fierce they are. So that's another good note for us to remember as some more setup for battles still to come. That's really one of the main key purposes for these last two Tyrion chapters. 
and Tyrion shares more knowledge when they reach this line for the well, the freshwater well. He knows how bad of an idea it is to drink from the river, which almost all the youngish do, and we can see how quickly the Pale Mare is truly going to gallop through everybody, like we mentioned earlier. He even thinks Daenerys could have sped this all up if she really wanted, by poisoning these last few remaining wells and forcing everyone to drink from the river. It would be devastatingly effective, and devastating in general, as the disease would just kill off everyone, wouldn't it? But Tyrion is the kind of man to think of such things if it means victory, even if he does still pass it off as an idea of Tywin Lannister and not Tyrion Lannister. So the comparisons between those two renew, and Tyrion never really realises how influenced he has been by the man that he killed. And as with nearly every time Tyrion thinks of Tywin in this book, which is a lot, it puts him in an immediate bad mood, despite his success so far in this chapter. This time it comes in the form of shaming himself for not sticking with Griff and Aegon and the crew of the Shy Maid. If he had, he'd be in Westeros now, plotting his awful revenge, which is actually a bit worrying to think about, but it does remind us of the excitement we've yet to cover in that invasion beginning. Don't worry, it's coming next week, just for a hint. If he had stuck with them, he wouldn't have been stolen by Ser Jorah, he wouldn't have been captured by slaves, and he wouldn't be outside a city, about to go to war, but not if a deadly pandemic can topple them first. And in fairness, he does say it was his own fault. He walked into that brothel, he brought his own ruin about, and he put himself in this situation. He calls it his ruin. So that's good to an extent that he's owning up to his own part in it. I just think it's a shame that he thinks of the exact situation, yet doesn't display any guilt or even any recognition of the absolute evil he portrayed with the Sunset Girl. We have to remember that. Because he absolutely should be giving her the recognition she deserves. So that's disappointing, and it should never be forgotten by us readers. We still very much enjoy Tyrion chapters, and he doesn't mention that coming this way also brought him into contact with Penny and therefore shifted him towards being a better person and choosing life, both of which are great. We love to see him at work in these and other chapters, but we must never forget that blight on his soul either, and even more importantly, nor should we forget the nameless victim of his crimes. As they come closer to the well, they find it to be the social staple of gossip that you would expect, as several slaves debate different rumours about the fate of Daenerys, including one that she was struck by a crossbow and fell from Drogon's back. We're all pretty sure that didn't happen, but we don't like to consider the possibility, do we? Even if this story is coming from a third link source, and we all well know how rumours work. Luckily, Tyrion disputes the notion and says nobody was found, which is good news for us. Even if it does highlight Tyrion and Penny as the jousting dwarves, casting them as an odd celebrity pair for a moment among their current peers. We already know how big of a deal that was for Tyrion, and how he must hate being recognised for this feat. Yet he turns it to his advantage by making jokes about his position and about Pretty Pig. And it works, of course. He completely works the audience until they are laughing and completely on his side. So now they are hungry for more from their celebrity. This person was actually there at the biggest event in recent memory, and we raise our heads as well, because we know the significance of that moment shared between Daenerys and Tyrion being in the same place, even if Danny never knew who she was actually looking at. But Tyrion did, so we're incredibly hungry for his taking on this first sighting. He thinks this. I saw a slender girl with silvery hair wrapped in a tow car, he might have told them. Her face was veiled, and I never got close enough for a good look. I was riding on a pig. Even for being so downplayed as that, it still seems weighty to us, it still seems important. And what might be more amazing is Tyrion being instantly able to pick out Barrett and Selmy, a factor we probably haven't given enough credit to, to be honest, we've not really talked about that. However Tyrion might have come before Daenerys, whether via Jorah or Bran Ben, or doing the revealing himself, the only person who could truly verify that he is who he is 
would be Barrister and Selmy. And Barry would verify him, we know he would, and Danny would trust his word, so that would have been major. What Barry would have to say after declaring his name is a valid concern, as Tyrion details. We know his opinion on Jamie. he already threw his sword at Joffrey and Cersei's feet before coming over to their enemy, and while he might not have had a particular motivation or bias against Tyrion beforehand, Tyrion's recent crimes, mixed with that association of being a Lannister, would probably earn a negative review. Then again, Tyrion must be expecting that by whatever means he arrives in front of Danny. Jorah isn't going to argue for him, is he? So Tyrion would have always needed to persuade Daenerys himself that he is of a value and on her side. That would be the other part of Barry being useful, as Tyrion might be able to say things about the Mance in Pentos or of Illyro himself to prove that he was sent there by Illyro, although some of those details might just work with Danny herself as well. But we already know that the moment didn't come this time. Tyrion didn't reveal himself to Daenerys, but we didn't know he was so close to doing so. It's agonisingly close for us readers who would love to see such a major moment, and Barriss and Selmy being the main reason why not is even more frustrating. But it does set up a possible future relationship between he and Barry, which we could easily imagine. It looks like circumstances could quite easily allow that. Besides, what would have happened if Tyrion had revealed himself and then Drogon appeared right after? Nothing good, probably. Either Danny doesn't get on Drogon, or Tyrion is likely killed in the chaos. So, not yet, we can't have that quite yet, but soon. George keeps up with the teasing. On top of that, we learn of an even worse, more annoying tease for him personally. Tyrion didn't even get to see the dragon. On a day where tens of thousands of people saw one of the fabled three, and at its greatest strength yet, Tyrion had the sheer bad luck to be one of the few busy at the time, and busy getting his chains put back on as well, just to be even more annoying. Tyrion claims that the biggest potential out of Drogon's arrival is that he and Penny could have escaped in the chaos, which obviously would have been huge, but I think Tyrion is downplaying how much he would have loved to see a living dragon, considering his childhood affection for him. He does have bigger issues to think about right now, to be fair, but we know how curious he is. And we do have to wonder if George is holding back on that final sighting or meeting of a dragon to make it a bit more significant for Tyrion, for whatever reason. Maybe he just really wants that to be in Tyrion's POV. For now, Tyrion just shrugs off the dragon news and insists that no body was found, which again, we appreciate. The slaves continue arguing that Danny could have been one of the burned hundreds they found, which is an unfortunate possibility. But then the chapter refocuses on this earlier idea of the societal structure of slaves. All slaves are equal, but some are more equal than others, that type of idea. As this one man claims that he is of higher prestige than other, newer slaves, he says he loves his life and he wouldn't trade it for freedom. Now, some might think this is a boast to protect his pride or just give a good impression. And for many that might be the case, but some do genuinely think that way, as we've been hinted at before. We just don't come face to face with such very often. But George loves to give a whole cross-section of a people's, doesn't he? And most surprisingly, Tyrion can kind of see where he's coming from. He says this, Tyrion did not dispute him. And the most insidious thing about bondage was how easy it was to grow accustomed to it. And he goes on to give a brilliant explanation of why some people felt this way or feel this way. Those who are treated well and are in a similar vein to servants and Westeros or have grown their own personal loyalty for whatever reason. It shows some real empathy on Tyrion's part to understand why people feel the way they feel when you would normally assume the complete opposite. I'm sure the grand majority would still much prefer to be free, like 99%, but Tyrion doesn't underestimate this power. Some learn to love it as a way of making themselves feel better. It makes you think, and unfortunately, it also only makes for more complex thoughts for the mission of Daenerys. Tyrion comes across his first barrier of this plan when the well operator opines that Nurse normally comes with the mule cart for water, but Tyrion is able to deal with that easily by mixing the truth, that Nurse is dead, with a lie, that the Pale Mare is infecting Yezan's soldiers as well. And that obviously makes the well operator worry that Tyrion and company would be carriers, and therefore the water comes back that much quicker. So very clever. The first part of the plan is done, so they now begin making their physically demanding way back. And this is where Tyrion finally deviates from what they should be doing, and he uses the smoke from burning the dead 
as a convenient excuse when Penny asks what they are doing. It's a reminder that she is none the wiser, and that at some point, Tyrion is going to have to cross that bridge of either persuading her or tricking her, and we doubt it will be easy. I believe this is why George brought up the people who preferred to be a slave again. I don't think Penny would ever prefer it to freedom, but she is the type that will tell herself she likes it in order to maintain her sanity and positivity. She will cling to it out of a need for safety, and the idea of going against such, as we'll soon see, will be too risky for her to bear. And we're also reminded of Penny maybe seeking comfort of Tyrion, maybe just being a friend, but Tyrion pushing away that side of things anyway. It is while they rest that Tyrion also reminds us that Jorah is there. The man hasn't said a single word just to really give that shell impression. We're reminded he's actually alive when Tyrion checks there's at least some fight left in him and he replies in the affirmative. So first timers are really wondering what Tyrion has up his sleeve this time round. Again, Penny protests they are going the wrong way, which leads to a very emotional paragraph of Tyrion appraising the difficult balance between innocence and reality. He makes the connection between Penny and Sansa, which might be telling in a way, but he also lambasts Penny for that, in that whichever way you slice it, Penny is in a much worse situation than Sansa, not to downplay her own horrors of course, and she needs to realise it if she is going to survive. Tyrion actually lets slip his inner anguish now, even if he doesn't quite realise it. We've been saying how well he's been handling things, and he's been proactive and all this other stuff. The proof is in both his last chapter and in this one where he's taking charge and apparently saving them all. But inside this slave, inside this situation it's all tearing him apart and first you can see it in his anger against the world there's a quote if there are gods to listen they are monstrous gods who torment us for their sport who else would make a world like this so full of bondage blood and pain who else would shape us as they have so that sounds a bit like old bitter Tyrion. but then comes his true feelings of this sometimes he wanted to slap her shake her scream at her anything to wake up from her dreams. No one is going to save us, he wanted to scream at her. The worst is yet to come. So some of it is wanting someone to share his burden and just realise the reality with him. Some of it is realising the responsibility of saving them rests solely on him and he's not sure if he can manage it. And some of it is just making us realise how truly bad the situation is. And some of it is just a deeply covered jealousy that he can't have her innocence, even if just for a little while. The final part is guilt that he's ended up playing her into falsehood. He's kept the wall over her eyes to a degree, because he can't bear to make her feel like he feels, because he wants to protect her. So he's really struggling in a brotherly or even fatherly way of what is best for Penny, making her aware or keeping her happy as long as possible. It's a cracking paragraph if we're honest. He gives an example of keeping the truth from Penny when it's revealed that Tyrion knew about the lions that caused us so much stress in Tyrion's last chapter. It's another case of Tyrion being extremely quick on the uptake and realising what happened when he read the face of Nurse when he and Penny returned from the pit a lie. And what a moment that must have been to realise what your life is worth to these people, to realise what they see you as, this horrific entertainment. It's about as harrowing as it can get. And we can understand two things from it. One, why Tyrion decided to take out Nurse, and in that type of fashion, and why he can't bring himself to tell Penny such a thing. It's soul-shattering, if I ever heard it. And Tyrion just has to carry that knowledge around with him forever now. That's not really the kind of thing you get over. There are plenty of reasons for Tyrion to be bitter at the world, the masses, and this place in general, and this one is truly right up there. There's pity for Penny as well, though, because she is blissfully unaware. But we probably have to believe that Tyrion made the right choice instead of just being cruel. He could achieve nothing really doing that. And speaking of Penny, it is she who comes to a halt and insists they are going the wrong way. Luckily, Tyrion has come far enough as Jorah tells us he's redirected them to the tents of the Second Sons and therefore Brown Ben Plum. So our minds start racing with possibilities now. We understand why he took such pains to make sure they cross the camp unaccosted and we begin to suspect what Tyrion is up to, especially when he thinks he might be able to work something with Brown Ben. 
Certainly, it gets our hopes up and our minds whirring. But for Penny, it's too much now. She's beginning to look like sweets in her desperation. She is so very worried about being punished or whipped or anything bad happening. And it absolutely will if they don't do what they're told. This is a woman who's been educated that if she just keeps her head down and stays in her lane, she'll be safe. Never dare, never mess with anything or it's going to hurt. That's prevalent now more than ever, as Penny attests what they do with the whipping or the Telosi slingers as punishment. She's terrified and with more than enough good reason. Plus, she's right. If this fails or they're caught or Brown Pen turns them out, it'll be beyond horrible for them whatever Tyrion's technicalities of not leaving the camp might be. This is a huge risk. Plus, she's worried because Pretty Pig and Crunch are back there. Her whole world, her best friends. And that aspect is honestly too heartbreaking for me to even consider. I don't like that at all. Tyrion tells another lie to cover that evil as well, but he also confirms that he's trying something. We will never have a better chance than now. And then he walks forward, hoping that Penny will follow. And we do feel for her because she's absolutely terrified of what this could mean. But Tyrion and even Jorah are her only two comforts in the world right now. Even walking back through the camp alone would probably be unthinkable for her. So poor Penny straps on her bravery and follows the man trying to save all their lives. As we'd expect, the first barrier comes with the guards, who see not only dwarves but runaway slaves, so the whole thing looks to come crumbling down at the first. But also, as we'd expect, Tyrion is rather direct in what he wants when he announces he intends to join their company. It sends us whizzing again and it's enough for Penny to drop her pail. Luckily, a sergeant comes out at that exact moment and just so happens to recognise Tyrion from the slave market. That's enough to get them all brought to Brown Ben, so the first barrier has been passed via extreme luck. Although not for Penny, who has to suffer awful groping and abuse and is then just slung over a shoulder just to add to her humiliation. So in her mind, this is exactly the bad idea she thought it was. Here we enter the heart of the Second Sons, and we'll learn more about them than ever before. But that begins with the one that we do know, Brown Ben, who is likely very happy about extra valuables being dumped right in front of him here in this tent, even if he keeps himself distant right now. We know he's a constant calculator, always working out how things might affect him and weighing up the odds. He's going to be doing that right now, isn't he? Will this interaction make him any richer? Will it keep him alive any longer? Yet again, Tyrion goes with the make an impression approach by calling Ben a turncloak, twice a turncloak in fact, right to his face. That's enough to get the conversation going and all Tyrion ever needs is an opening. We've seen his political and intellectual skills return to him over the past few chapters, but this is when it's needed most. If this goes wrong, it means death. So he chooses to deliver. He first establishes that this is a good thing that they've walked in, because Ben clearly wanted at least Tyrion both at the auction and over the Savas game. That indicates that Ben knows Tyrion's true worth, as he puts it, and implies that both Ben and he have something to gain here. That should be enough to just hold Ben's interest for a little while. In the meantime, Tyrion wants three of these collars. He defends against Ben's point of that only causing trouble with the Yunkish as well, citing that Yezan is too busy dying, everyone's too busy to bother looking for two dwarves and the shell of a man, and even if they were, who would think to look for them here? And even if they did find them, would they really bother risking blood just for these three? Tyrion calls it a small risk for a great gain, because he knows how to talk to gamblers, which in many ways is what a sellsword is. He remembers his time with Bronn, clearly. It's just enough to figure, well, I might as well hear him out from Brown Ben, so it's superb work from Tyrion. He follows that up by showing off his smarts of working out exactly who Plum is, or at least who he's related to, in terms of House Plum. They're Westermen, they're sworn to House Lannister, and he's more than aware of how much Tyrion is worth because of that. And even that's not enough. Tyrion can also make an educated guess about the dragons liking Brown Ben, and that being linked to his semi-Targaryen heritage. That'll come back later on in the story. For now, Tyrion attacks the elephant in the room, Cersei. He knows there's every chance that Ben is thinking about Cersei's reward. Maybe that was what he was thinking about back in the auction block as well. Get the real Tyrion delivered to King's Landing and the rewards are nearly unimaginable. So Tyrion needs a quick defence against that. Again, he goes for the risk angle. It's true, the reward would be great, but the risk matches it. It's a long, dangerous way back to Westeros. 
It could risk Ben's life. He could lose Tyrion, or he could lose the evidence of it being Tyrion. Even if he makes it back, Cersei could merely be satisfied that Tyrion is dead, and then deny the whole thing, deny it's her brother, and Ben will be left with nothing. And Tyrion likely believes his own words, because let's face it, it is Cersei. But even if he doesn't, there is the possibility, the risk, and that's enough. Ben counters that he could lower the risk by keeping Tyrion alive, so he throws another counter, one that gets us going. I was born a second son. This company is my destiny. Damn, George, you've done it again. These little connections, you always slip them in there, don't you? All through this, there has been a bravo, dressed in pink, acting as Tyrion's adversary. He, obviously not getting the subtext of what Tyrion's arguing, says he and Penny can be of no use to a sellsword company, especially not one on the brink of battle. So now Tyrion's reason for fetching Jorah Mormont is clear. He's payment. A sellsword company needs fighters, and Tyrion's just bought them one. Did he also involve him because he has some odd care for him? Or there's the idea that they're all in it together? Does he maybe even feel sorry for him? Perhaps, just a smidge. Maybe it was just his insurance if they couldn't cross the camp, but this is definitely the main reason. And that is when Jorah actually speaks up, naming the Bravo as Casporio the Cunning and the Painmaster as Inkpots, which is a cool name, I think. Here we get reminded from so long ago, it's easily forgettable, that Jorah was actually a member of the Second Sons back in a different age, so the connections just keep coming and coming in this chapter. Even Brown Ben has his jaw on the floor for a second. Clearly, the memory of Jorah's skill, or perhaps just the fact he stood here looking like this after all his beatings, is enough to make Casporio keep quiet on objections and actually has him backing away. So that on its own is enough to get people rethinking. Whatever Jorah Mormon is, cough a dickhead, cough cough, he's also a hell of a fighter. You tend to want to have some of those on your side when battle comes, but Tyrion skips over that. He still needs to do his persuading that this would be of benefit to all to let him join. As evidence, he supplies names like Bronn, Shagger, and Timmit. It's been too long since we've heard those, hasn't it? Obviously, they mean nothing here. They're a world away, and even were we in Westeros, the last two are pretty hard to cross-reference. Bronn, at least, does have evidence of having a major upswing in fortune since meeting Tyrion. We don't get to see Tyrion go much further into that, but he is settling down, ordering his wine, about to explain how and why this all fits, and because we know Tyrion by now, we simply have to sense that this is going to work. Somehow, he's done it. He's freed them. He's avoided sinking with the Yellow Whale, and got himself and the others into a relative safety of a sellsword company, which is at least better than being a Yunkish slave. So it's a pretty major development, and we're obviously very, very keen to see what comes of it in Tyrion's final chapter. Now, they're not out of the woods, are they, really? The Pale Mare is still galloping around. There's battle any moment. The Volunteers could turn up at any time. And he is signing up with a man on the wrong side, a man whom Daenerys hates. But it's better than before, and that's all that matters. So he saved Penny despite her own issues at the moment. He's kind of reignited Jorah. He's done brilliant. It is a brilliant chapter. It's a great chapter. I really, really like that one. It's great for showing off Tyrion's skills and who he is and just gets our motor going for this Battle of Fire, as much of Dance is designed to do. Now, we got to work hard to make sure this one isn't as long as last week's episode, so we're going to have to wrap up pretty quickly there. Before you go, I will tell you very quickly what is coming next week, because while well, at this point of the game, the chapters, they just don't get any less important, do they? Next week, we will have John 12, where the wildlings come through the wall. Yeah, see, I told you, important. Then Barristan 2, the discarded knight. We're back in Marine for further advancements there. That works in conjunction with Quentin 3, the spurned suitor. Again, new plans, very, very exciting new plans. And then we're going to end with, finally, being reunited with John Connington 3, the Griffin reborn, the beginning of the Targaryen invasion. I think we know we're going to like that one. That is very, very exciting. So that is next week. I hope you'll join us then. Thank you again for all your interactions and sharings and downloads and everything else. It makes all the hard work worth it. Thank you to our patrons. As always, feel free to have a look over there. Check out the Radio of Westeros Discord and we will see you next week. Thanks, everybody. 